You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In a few moments, you will have an experience which will seem completely real. It will be the result of your subconscious fears transformed to your conscious awareness. It can be extremely harmful and result in severe trauma. You have five seconds to terminate this tape. Five, four, three, two, one. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Suppose it were possible to transfer from one mind to another the experience of another person. Hey, there it is. Any person, any experience. I'm telling you, it works. The test, sound, taste. Everything, everything, 100%. In fact, better. Did you have a breakthrough or not? Yes. I'd like a demonstration. Knock my socks off. What about um, military applications? Wide open. Missile guidance, that kind of thing? They're going to be able to plug right into the old noodle. I made that for you. What is it? It's me. You've blown communication as we've known it, right out of the water. You know that, don't you? So something happened to me. It was more than just a sexual fantasy. It was a feeling I had. I'm more than I was, Mike. I'm scared. But the thing is, I like it. I want more. No, I can't authorize this. The chance to take a scientific look at the scariest thing a person ever has to face. This is not the research we're interested in. This is my project. I don't want to see it end up on some defense scrap heap before we know what it's really about. I want these personal experiments stopped. I told you I want to play it out. Nobody plays that tape. Arrested. the projection booth i'm your host mike white joining me once again is mr david kittredge plug me in also with us once again is ms sam deegan hello hello 
On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are looking at Douglas Trumbull's Brainstorm, based on the screenplay by Bruce Joel Rubin. The film stars Christopher Walken as Michael Brace, a scientist who's helped make a breakthrough in the world of recording sensations, visuals, audio, and even more. He's going through a divorce with his wife Karen, played by Natalie Wood, and is maybe... Kind of involved with fellow scientists Lillian Reynolds, played by Louise Fletcher. We'll talk more about that as we go along. We're going to be spoiling the heck out of this movie, so if you haven't seen it before and don't want anything ruined, turn off the podcast and track down Brainstorm. We will still be here. So Sam, when was the first time you saw Brainstorm and what did you think? It's actually new to me as of a couple years ago. I went through and tried to find some... 70s and 80s sci-fi movies that I had missed. Things like Brainstorm and Demon Seed. And I just fell in love with it. I, I don't think I expected it to be as kind of emotional as it is. And was just really blown away by it. I mean, it's such a strange movie. But I feel like I find something new every time I watch it. How about you, David? I first saw this movie on home video back in the 80s when I was basically kind of coming up with my cinema education through video stores. And I didn't think much of it. I thought it was it was fine and interesting. Even at the time, I thought it was kind of weirdly structured because basically, you know, in a narrative, you have, you know, three acts and your hero wants one thing and, you know, it goes through the movies. In this movie, what the ending is, is not even set up until halfway through and most of the conflict in the first half is kind of thrown out the window. Um, it basically becomes a different movie about halfway through this and tries to do something much deeper. I saw it again many years later on a DVD, I think. And they were, they were, this was the first time I saw it with aspect ratios that, well, the first DVD, I mean, we can go into the aspect ratio thing, but basically this movie messes with aspect ratios because it takes place with people sharing thoughts and feelings and, and, and experiences through this brain headset thing. Whenever you do that, the movie is widescreen and like gorgeous looking. Whenever you're not, the movie is one, you know, one eight five or one seven seven standard. And it looks a lot grainier. So the DVD was the first time I saw it that way. And I was like, that's curious and interesting. And then I noted again, I was like, this is a very bizarrely structured film. Um, having seen it again a couple of times this year on Blu-ray, the Blu-ray, by the way, is, is quite nice. Um, it's a very, uh, in a way, a bit of a subversive movie. And it kind of goes back to Douglas Trumbull and what he wanted to do. And Bruce Joel Rubin, who wrote the original, I guess, concept for the script or the first script that then got changed into Brainstorm. You know, they kind of wanted to go beyond just a, a standard kind of sci-fi movie and into kind of a more metaphysical realm. And, you know, it, good or bad, this movie is notable, well worth watching. And, you know, it has a lot of chutzpah. The structure of this film is absolutely bizarre, and I really didn't know what to make of this. The first time I saw it, I think it was on HBO. I actually remember them reviewing this on Siskel and Ebert way back in 83, and 
Specifically, I think they showed the scene of all of the people watching the demonstration of the brainstorm technology and people sitting around a table with no noise, and then they would cut to what they're seeing in their heads, and especially the moment when they're on a roller coaster and the way that they would lean down and then lean back. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool idea, you know, all of 11, uh, 11 years old, and I'm thinking, oh, that, that's pretty pretty neat. And so, yeah, seeing it as a teenager, I was just like, yeah, I don't really necessarily get this movie. It was kind of shrouded by the whole death of Natalie Wood. I'm sure that we'll talk a little bit about that. I mean, there were plenty of horrific elementary school jokes about the only wood that doesn't float is Natalie Wood. But Uh, yeah, it was bad. I mean, we... There was a lot of gallows humor around my town. How did they know that the woman from Jaws had dandruff? Because her head and shoulders washed up on shore. Oh, that's a great one. (laughs) It took a long time to really connect with me because of that lack of structure to it. And it was finally, I think, last weekend when I finally managed to actually see this on the big screen, which was a revelatory experience. They, of all places, Monroe, Michigan, had this Trumbull Fest last weekend, and they showed Blade Runner, Close Encounters, Silent Running. Uh, What else did they show? They showed at least one of his kind of newer projects that he's done, and then they showed Brainstorm. And so I got to see this on the big screen, and I took a long time for me to figure out the whole switching of the aspect ratios when I watch this on DVD or Blu-ray, but seeing it in a movie theater, you can't ignore it when you suddenly switch to beautiful 70 millimeter and the image quality is so great. And then you go back to the real world and we're right back to, yeah, almost, almost TV ratio. I mean, it is really squarish. And just to have that contrast between the two things is really remarkable when you're sitting in a movie theater. I'm very jealous. I was just so lucky to have even found it. And then a friend of mine was like, oh, hey, did you see that Doug Trumbull's coming to town? No, I had no idea. That is the best example of kismet, of podcast kismet. I think we'd even already set up our date to record, yeah. and it just happened to be a week after that. I think there should be a, like a subsection of, of movie study where like movies that mess with aspect ratios, because it's a small number, but it, like if it's done well, it's very interesting. I always like the whole idea of, uh, I mean, I'm not a big Wes Anderson fan, but that Grand Budapest Hotel, he did quite a bit of that, and it actually was... Yeah somewhat effective and then you hear about certain other movies where oh yeah we shot this part in IMAX and then we shot this regular and I don't necessarily know the difference or maybe they just mad it all to look like it's the same aspect ratio but yeah I totally agree movies that play with that uh, and especially now in a world where we can actually see that difference, because seeing this for the first time on HBO, this thing's being shown pan and scan. So there is no difference in aspect ratio. You know, when you're talking about movies that were shot like the Chris Nolan movies, if you're watching it in an IMAX theater or, or first man did this, too, uh, like when he like just like steps onto the moon toward the end, it suddenly goes IMAX. IMAX has a four by three aspect ratio. It's just big and a huge. And so, you know, then for 35 millimeter, 70, well, 70 has, you know, other things like 2.2 and stuff like that. But, you know, for 35 millimeters, generally two, three, five to one for scope movies or one, eight, five to one for, for flat movies. Or, you know, sometimes in Europe, you get one, seven, five to one or one, six, six to one. 
you know, but very rarely, like, you know, because if you see Dunkirk in the movie theater, generally a standard movie theater, it's all going to be matted for the same box on the screen. It's all going to be matted, I believe, for Dunkirk was 235. It's all going to be matted for that. So you're just going to see the whole movie like that. But for this movie, you're sitting in the movie theater, and this is why it works much better in the movie theater than it does on Blu-ray, because on Blu-ray, you're just seeing, like, this tiny you know, 175 or 166 box in the middle of your screen surrounded by black, except for when the brainstorm stuff happens. And then it's just a standard 235 letterbox, like, you know, any, you know, action movie you would see. But there are very few movies that actually switch aspect ratios during the movie. I think The Horse Whisperer was one. I want to say that I, I'm pulling that somewhere out of my brain, but I, I hope that I don't know that that's true i think that the beginning of that movie was like all uh, you know 185 and then when she goes out to visit redford about 20 minutes in it just it blossoms to 235 and then it never goes back yeah you saying that reminds me of the opening of the road warrior and when it is the flashback to mad max it's all in almost a completely square aspect ratio and then once we get that opening scene we pull out of that spoiler onto max behind the wheel and we go into this beautiful wide screen but that that was very much that limited like here's the past this is now as opposed to flipping back and forth I don't think I noticed it as much in the past, but watching it this time around to talk about today, I found it really distracting. When it when it switched back to the smaller aspect ratio, it was like it just seemed maybe it was something about my TV, but it just seemed like way more noticeable and it almost made made it a little bit weirder narratively. Well, when when you're seeing it in a movie theater, it's not. It's like you're seeing this box that's projected in front of you, right? Like this huge, you know, one eight five thing. When it goes brainstorm, it's like an additive. Like you're adding the sides. When you're watching it on a television, you're not adding the sides. You're just you're this tiny little box surrounded by black on your television, and then suddenly it's like kind of quote unquote proper when the brainstorm stuff happens. On the first DVD, weirdly, um, all the one eight five stuff took up the entire frame. So it literally blew up all the tiny stuff, and then the brainstorm stuff was letterboxed to 235 like normal. Now, the, the problem with this, yeah, it is weird, because the problem with this is it makes real life look more enveloping than the brainstorm stuff, which is exactly the opposite, I would imagine, of what Trumbull was going for. So Trumbull and I, when we talk later on in the interview, he and I, we talk a lot about the whole idea of the high frame rate stuff, and I can't even begin to wrap my head around the whole idea of this movie having been, could have been a test bed for the show, show scan experience. So those moments of the brainstorm experience, not only would they have been in a larger format, but they would have been playing at a higher frame rate. And I just can't imagine what that's like because I have yet to actually see anything in a frame rate that is higher than normal. I didn't see The Hobbit when I was playing here uh, in a high frame rate. And when they were playing Gemini Man here, I don't think it was in any sort of high frame rate. I think, David, if I remember correctly, you actually got to see the high frame rate version of Gemini Man. I did. I made it a point to. And it's funny because it was shot. I mean, Angley's big thing, and he started this on Billy's, what is it, Billy's Long Halftime 
whatever. Then I can never remember the name of that movie, um, I, which I did not see. But basically, his his thing is he wants to shoot at 120 frames a second in 4K in 3D. It's an extremely enveloping thing. I got to see it at the ArcLight in Los Angeles, and the specs for the ArcLight, unfortunately, well, not, not too unfortunately, were 60 frames a second at 2K. Now the 2K wasn't a big deal because the screen was was not gargantuan. It was like it was like one of their standard screens. It was. You know, I'm sure 4K would have been better, but, you know, you didn't, they're, they're, you know, it was fine. Um, I, I believe, and, and again, I'm, I think, talking out my ear a little bit, um, that over 60 frames a second, the human eye can't really tell the difference between 60 and 120, because it's just, it's just natural. I was a fan of Gemini Man. I actually think that it was a really underrated movie, and, like, you read a lot of the reviews, and a lot of the reviewers, I, I read one that literally just bitched about the HFR for the entire review. And literally, I think he just forgot to actually review the movie, which is a, you know, a a fun standard kind of like, you know, uh, action movie. It's very well done. The action scenes are great. Will Smith is really good. The de-aging thing is kind of eerie and cool. And, but I mean, basically what HFR does, and, and this is just my experience. And I think others can, can talk about it because there are people that hate it. It, it takes away the dreaminess of cinema and it makes it much more literal. And so everything, all the imperfections, whether it's like some extra in the background or the makeup or whatever it is, like a camera bump, it, it's amplified. So, you know, it's a really interesting experience. Um, and I do think that there's something there as far as an immersive cinematic experience. I know that like theme park rides and, and certainly Trumbull, and I'm sure you'll talk about this with him later in the episode, you know, talks about show scan and, and how most of his career in the last like 20 or 30 years are for kind of theme park kind of stuff and, and like immersive cinema and, and that whole thing. And, you know, in that kind of respect, that's like where 4d came from, like, you know, moving seats and, and different kinds of 3d, um, you know, moving away from the eighties over under kind of polarized thing into like electronic shutters. And, and now we're in this world of near perfect 3d with passive polarized lenses or, or the Dolby version I think has glass in them. And it's just really fascinating to make a narrative movie and try to use kind of immersive cinema techniques in it. Uh, you know, certainly James Cameron was the, you know, recent, you know, uh, trendsetter for Avatar. Uh, he wanted to make that movie completely immersive and he did it to great success. I don't know where we go from here, but I think HFR is a thing you have to get used to because you're watching it. You're very, very aware that it's not a standard looking movie. It looks more like, you know, they call it, call it the soap opera effect because the soap opera, you know, all the video stuff, you know, in North America is shot and projected at either, you know, 60 interlaced fields a second or 30 interlaced frames a second or uh, 60 progressive fields a second if you're looking at 1280, uh, 1280 by 720. I'm getting very nerdy and techy and I apologize to everyone who's completely turned off by this, but it's a burgeoning technology. And, and the, the bottom line to all this is Ang Lee, using one of the biggest budgets out there right now for the movie Gemini Man, could not even show the Gemini Man the way that it was intended in 120, 4K, and 3D. Like almost anywhere. I think there were two theaters in North America that showed it in 120 at 2K. But no projectors could keep up with 120 at 4K. You know, we're still getting there. I mean, and this is one of the reasons also, and we could talk about this later, I actually think Brainstorm would be a fantastic 
remake opportunity because if you did brainstorm in IMAX and everything was just like standard like 35 scope and then the brainstorm stuff suddenly popped into IMAX if you're in an IMAX theater that would be pretty cool yeah a lot of this stuff just kind of lends itself to me to the idea of this being a stunt you know just like how the hateful eight was kind of a stunt when it came to the 70 millimeter especially because that fucking movie most of it is shot indoors and it's like why the fuck are you shooting a movie indoors at 70 millimeter you could shoot this thing in 16 and it would look just as good but they managed to retrofit a bunch of theaters with that and that was the most impressive thing that they managed to have this actually shown at the correct aspect ratio with the correct equipment at so many of these theaters it was just like when george lucas was like okay fuck everybody the phantom menace is going to be digital and you're going to start seeing in the newspaper to date myself you're going to see in the newspaper this theater is showing it in digital and that becomes the new buzz and everybody wants to go see it in that particular way and it takes a real interesting confluence of events to actually make that next leap when it comes to theatrical technology, because otherwise you're going to be like me sitting in a movie theater, watching a 3d movie saying, this is too fucking dark. I can't tell what's going on because they don't realize you have to actually up the light that hits the screen because of the 3d technology. For this movie, it's so in a weird way appropriate. I mean, I, I totally agree that does sort of feel like a stunt, but I think there's also something kind of magical about someone making a science fiction movie about this immersive video technology and at the same time trying to incorporate that in the actual production of their film. Like, while I don't think it always works, I mean, certainly I I, like, you know, I, I haven't seen it in a theater, but I think there are some issues with switching back and forth between the the different aspect ratios but i just admire that he was ballsy enough to try to do something like that oh yeah hats off to him for trying it i just wish that it had been adopted more successfully and that mgm would have stood behind him and said okay yeah we are going to make this in show scan instead of what they ended up doing which is a very neat experiment and i think it's successful for this movie but it didn't necessarily push anything into any sort of new realm well, are we going to talk about what was happening in MGM at the time? Because that's very interesting, too. And this movie was kind of a semi-casualty of, you know, basically they were they were at the end again. Well, I mean, this this company has been at the end a number of times in its history. <laughs> and, and, you know, it has been bailed out. It was bought by Kirk Kerkorian, like, what, you know, four times or something. And, and, and it's been sold. It's been bought. It's, it's you know, it, it's basically, you know, ever since, you know, the early 80s and, you know, Heaven's Gate, really. Uh, which was UA, which, you know, MGM, was MGM a part of it at the time? I don't remember if MGM bought UA after that. I think they bought it. But MGM, you know, basically was at a point where they were, you know, running out of money and and this was an expensive project for whatever reason. And I'm sure, you know, Trumbull could actually talk about this if you guys talked about this. You know, it went over budget. It went over schedule. um, And they got cold feet. And then after the death of Natalie Wood, they literally just wanted to shut it down and collect the insurance. And then it was only after other studios were trying to buy the film from them. They were like, oh, wait, maybe it's not bad, you know, and and it just goes, you know, with friends like these, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, you know, I don't blame Trumbull for like running away from Hollywood after this because 
this could have been amazing if they had actually released it in ShowScan or some something. Because ShowScan is what forty eight frames a second. Because that was the whole point. They wanted to double the frames. That could have been like uh, you know a pre-Avatar kind of quasi-Avatar experience for a lot of people. I don't know if the story necessarily would have hooked as many people as they think that it would, because it's it's a challenging story. It's a challenging film. I mean, the first 10 minutes of this movie are set up just to explain what the technology is and introduce us to the scientific team. And even with that, I'm not exactly sure of what the relationship is with some of these people. It takes a while for that to kind of shake out because we're introduced to Michael Brace, who Christopher Walken, we see him almost immediately or hear his voice because he is wearing the brain scan helmet and he is the receiver of this information and the giver of the information is Gordy, who just pretty much we learn right off the bat is just a big asshole. Uh, <laughs> so poster child for me too. He's like, he should just be called the me too character <laughs> out of should. four main characters that we meet in the first 10 minutes. We already hate one of them. <laughs> well, I mean, you don't hate him. He's just a dick. He's just like, okay, you little frat boy, enough. Uh, you know, he, he does, you know, spoiler alert, you know, die horribly. But, you know, it's like, okay. We are introduced to the brainstorm technology, and it becomes this whole idea of recording all these different sensations, and we get a little bit of a demo for that. As the movie goes on, we suddenly shift and it becomes not only can it record what's happening, but it can record your thoughts and your memories and your feelings about people. Because that's just a strange turn for me when we are going from this is going to you know, allow you to learn a different language. It'll allow you to experience a gourmet meal, allow you to traverse to the Arctic Circle or whatever and all through the, the safety piano. of your home. It's basically the total recall, but without the memory implant, without the threat of a psychotic embolism. But instead, you just get to sit there and then you can go to Mars if you want to and experience that whole thing just sitting in the comfort of your living room. And then, yeah, suddenly becomes, no, this is, it's an empathy machine because, and I don't even know, like, I didn't even see that in the script. There wasn't a point where they're like, hey, we can record people's feelings as well, because it just feels like they take Natalie Wood, set her down, literally just, hey, sit down, put this thing on. They record her thoughts for a few seconds. And then when he puts the headset back on and hits playback, it's suddenly him yelling at her from one of his memories. And it's like, whoa, where did this go? It's just this weird, hard left turn that the movie takes. But then it brings us into this whole thing of them repairing their relationship. And like I said at the beginning, I can't tell. I've watched this movie probably 10 times in the last few months. I can't tell if the Christopher Walken character and the Louise Fletcher character are supposed to be in love with one another or if they're just workmates because it feels like they're supposed to be a romance, but I never really see it. Tell me I'm wrong, but in the script, it's it's much more pointed to their workmates. I, I have to say, you know, just from a filmmaker standpoint, watching this movie... The first half is so much better than the second half. And structurally, I mean, like, the way it's put together, the way it's edited, you know, my, you know, my own personal belief is once we lose Louise Fletcher's character, it becomes that other movie that I was talking about before. It becomes about something else. 
And again, hats off to them for doing that. But if you're going to look at it from like kind of a development screenplay 101 perspective, and I really hate doing that, but I'm just going to do it right now for a moment and forgive me. What are the stakes of the movie? The stakes of the movie in the first half, this thing that they're building could change human beings' existence. Like, and, and the power is awesome. Oh my God, what if it gets in the wrong hands? The second half of the movie is this dude wants to play a death tape. That's it. Those, those are the stakes. Like, wh- okay, what are you going to lose? What's at stake here? Nothing. Like, what are they? Like, they still have the technology. They're still going to make the little brain things at the company. You know, you blew up the factory and stuff, but it's like, what, you know, what's that going to do? It's going to put a hiccup on them for a mo- like a month and then they're going to go back to this. It's like, I, you know, what are the stakes here? Like, what, what are we, what are we watching? You know, the first half is like really, really tight. And, and, you know, you have the love story and you have like, they're getting divorced, but is it because they like lost track of each other? And, and, you know, and then we have all the way up to Louise Fletcher's amazing scene, which we just have to talk about a lot because I, you know, I talked to her about this because I was interviewing her for my project, uh, another film that she's in. And she said that that was one of her favorite, the brainstorm is one of her favorite projects that she has ever worked on. And this death scene, I actually, I, cause I had to ask her about it because it's unforgettable. You've never seen a character die the way she does. I have never seen anybody in a movie die the way that she does and have it be so integral to the plot as well. I actually think this is her best performance. I think this is better than Cuckoo's Nest. I think her performance in this movie is just so indelible. It's so strange to me that the last time we were together and talked to movie about a movie, it was Exorcist 2, and it was Christopher Walken up for the role, and then Louise Fletcher was, ends yeah. up getting that role. No, 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 no. That's not right. Christopher Walken was up for the Richard Burton role. This is when 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 Borman... Oh, my God. We're going here? Okay. Bor- when Borman... <laughs> I... You know, you invite me on a podcast. This is what happens. We end up talking about Exorcist 2, The Heretic. When John Borman initially had that script, he wanted to cast John Voight because it was a younger priest. And after John Voight said, finally passed, he was dithering a lot. And Borman was kind of sick of it. And finally, they were like, okay, this is not going to work. Christopher Walken was this un- like virtually unknown guy. He was out of Juilliard. I think he had done some theater work. This is before The Deer Hunter. So he was literally nobody. I think he had a bit part in Annie Hall. I don't even know if they'd shot that at that point. Um, But he apparently flew to L.A., did a test. Apparently he had had a stomach bug. Uh, So his test was just not good. But then the studio basically said, no, we're forcing Richard Burton on you. Borman did not want an older priest. Borman likes Richard Burton, uh, like, you know, but did not want Richard Burton for this role. That was totally Warner Brothers. So it was. So the the role that uh, Louise Fletcher took was actually Chris Sarandon's role. Chris Sarandon was cast in that role, and then they did a gender switch because they were worried about it being something of a sausage party. Yeah, Gene turned into Gene. Yeah, exactly. They didn't even change the name. It's funny that we happen to be talking about two movies in a row with sort of headset contraptions that function in pretty crazy ways. But the thing that Brainstorm doesn't have, it doesn't have any characters with fat knees. And we even get to see the little boy's knees, you know, when he's coming in and out of the pool. So thank goodness. That's true. (laughs) Can we just talk about that kid for a second? What an annoying kid. I just hate that kid. 
he like comes out. He's like, you know, the dad gives him a snorkel. And if you read the script, because Mike, you provided the script for us, that scene happens much later. It's a very different place. And so, and the dad had it had already established that the dad had forgotten to give him a snorkel, and like he was like an absent dad. That's why they're getting divorced. He was like all about his work, and he was like, ignoring his wife, and you know, so they're getting a divorce. You get a snorkel. You ask dumb questions. And then you almost kill yourself because you're an idiot. And it's just like, dude, just whatever. Go, 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 go to college somewhere and make sure someone looks after you. I don't know. I have a hard time with that character, I think, because he's not like an integral part of the movie. And you could just as easily have cut that character and his scenes out completely because he just seems to wander into the movie at random times just to be fucking annoying. And or there's that the scene that I hate the most in the entire movie is when they have their sort of marital reunion and they spend this whole night together and it's like where's the kid? But then the kid comes in at the end. It's like where has your child been the entire night? Like you just forgot about him for 24 hours and now he wanders in while you're naked? The first half of this movie you never really understand why they're divorcing. It's it's it's, it's in the, in the script. It's a lot more explicit because there are a lot of scenes. I'm imagining that were cut because Natalie Wood died, and she died before all of her scenes were shot. Most of her scenes were shot. There were these like little moments where like they're in the interview, going to the to Alex's office, and they're having a conversation about like uh, going back to the snorkel, like talking about you know getting you know your son's really upset because you didn't get the snorkel and. You know, there were these little moments which kind of indicated that she was the mom kind of holding it together and he was like this workaholic, whatever. Like, he was going to become the Louise Fletcher character is the implication in the script. You don't really see that because the way that it's played is not really like that. But you get the sense that if he just continues going the way he's going, he's just going to be working all the time and family doesn't mean anything to him and, you know, whatever. This is all that means something to him. So if you look at it from that perspective... The stakes of the movie are he has to reclaim himself and the rest of life uh, by experiencing her death. And by experiencing her death, this part of him that is just a workaholic dies. But the problem is, in order to get there, it's already all dead. You know, basically because he's doing all this stuff for the family already. And he already had the the get-together with Natalie Wood's character. Like, the you know, they're, they're rekindling and everything. So it's kind of like, so that stake isn't there. It's very strange the way that in earlier versions of the script, there was supposed to be kind of an unrequited romance between the two of them. And that was supposed to maybe give some context for the the separation. But the thing that is so weird to me is that it seems like to, to what you were saying earlier, it seems like that's cut out of this version, except when we see her death scene and he finally watches the tape and gets to experience all her memories. It seems like her happiest memories are memories with him. And there are these really kind of like tender moments that would make more sense if the film made it clear that maybe she was in love with him or maybe they had some sort of unspoken thing. But it doesn't. It, ma- it makes her seem like like she's his boss for the first half of the movie. 
there are scenes, you know, you were talking about how he's maybe destined to become her and the whole idea of this workaholic thing that's going on. There are scenes in her memories of her talking with some really strange looking guy and she's talking about work and all this. Yeah. And then I find out reading the end credits, he's a reverend. I was like, oh, okay. So there's. Oh my like, God, really? Why? Yeah. I'm like, what is this? And then, yeah, in some of the uh, articles about the movie, it was like, oh, yeah, we had this reverend guy and he actually seemed to be an okay actor. So we put him in these scenes and he actually has some lines. I don't know if he has any lines in the final version of the film. But yeah, that's, she's talking to a reverend up on top of this bell tower or whatever and talking about how she works all the time. You don't look so well. Uh... Are things kind of tough for you? I'm just tired. Tired? You know I work all the time. But yeah. that's the way it's always been. Do you not wonder sometimes if there isn't something more than that? More, more than work? <laughs> not to me. Well, I guess I want to believe there is more. I never could. <laughs> I completely missed what was going on here. I didn't know who this dude was. Yeah, my assumption was that that was some sort of like failed romantic relationship or attempted romantic relationship because it seems weirdly personal when she says to him like work, work is my entire life. There's nothing other than work. Like it seemed like she's trying to reject him. So I would never in a million years have guessed that he's supposed to be a reverend. I thought he was the her ex-husband or boyfriend or something like, you know, and that was the moment where he realized, oh, she'll never be with me. She's just all about work, which I actually works better for the movie if you actually view it that way. But yeah, oh, yeah. I'm glad that you, <laughs> I'm glad that you thought that, too. And it wasn't just me like over reading. No, it makes a lot more sense. I mean, the only thing that this guy being a reverend brings to it is this air of spirituality, which kind of get shoved down our throat it's at the end even though if we, when you read interviews with trumbull he's just like no 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 those aren't angels i mean those things with wings at the end and the big heavenly music coming up those aren't angels wait what are they supposed to be you got me some sort of memory thing or something yeah it just it makes no sense totally makes sense if that's if there's a heaven and a hell because we really do get this hell scene which is amazing. Which I love, and was supposed to go on so much more. Oh yeah, the people with the glass pressed against their faces. It's so beautiful. I would have loved to see more of that. My favorite memory of the hell sequence was Dave Stewart standing up on a table with a handheld 65mm camera on his shoulder, which is a big, heavy camera, looking down over this thing that we had built out of cow jaws and guts from a butcher and filming this stuff and i thought wow this guy is really something else i learned so much about visual effects and about miniature scale and about uh, motion control photography and visual effects photography from him but that was the moment when i felt the most amazed by him doing this work with that 65 millimeter camera on his shoulder over these reeking guts. Now, there was a butcher shop strike. The meat packers were on strike right when we started this little thing. So we couldn't get more cow jaws. My first plan was to rebuild this thing every day with new guts. But we instead had to go out and buy a bunch of dry ice and pack the stuff in ice overnight and work the same guts and jaws and crap day after day after day. 
and it was unbelievably stinky and gross. Uh, but um, that was, that was, it was hell. It was Dave. Does this mean that this is of a piece with The Black Hole? Because I love that movie. That's what I was thinking of. That's why I rewatched The Black Hole last night, because I was just Oh, that's like, so funny. They seem to speak to each other. And really, people who listen to this podcast are sick of me saying this, but the whole spiritual vacuum of the 1970s. I mean, this movie was written, I want to say, 73. And in 75, we get the whole Raymond Moody thing about life after death. And this movie just seems to really follow in a lot of those tropes that the life after death theories have with the white tunnel and, you know, the whole idea of what happens afterwards, seeing yourself. I mean, there's a shot of Louise Fletcher where we kind of pull back. So it's almost like her seeing herself as a dead person. So I'm like, okay, yeah, it's just, it feels here we are in 1983. This movie's been around for 10 years. It feels like a lot of that 1970s spiritual hokum gets injected into it. I watched it a couple months ago as a double feature with the dead zone. And it's such a strange contrast in the dead zone. His character is very sort of specific and fleshed out and, dealing with a particular kind of spiritual conflict. But here, it it seems like you had 10 screenwriters and everybody got to write five pages and then they had to make them work together. Like, the whole spiritual thing at the end, to me, it just is so out of left field. And you're right. I don't know who Michael Brace is, and I never really seem to get to know this guy. And there's a moment that I found interesting, too, in the screenplay when – so we talked a little bit about Alex. Alex is the Cliff Robertson character who is the head of this institute, and he's kind of the conduit to the military-industrial complex. He basically sells the idea to the military. But there's a moment where he – says something to Louise F- Fletcher and she says like, you know, go, don't goddamn me, sweetheart. And then in the screenplay about 60 pages later, after Michael has been experiencing the Louise Fletcher death tape, he says the exact same line. And so it's like this idea of as you experience these memories, you become a little bit more like the person, which I guess plays into the empathy part of it. I mean, they even say after Hal, the one character we haven't talked to, the guy who dresses like Herb Tarlick, after Hal experiences this porn loop that Gordy recorded. Oh, that Gordy. That son of a gun, Gordy. <laughs> Be fair. That, that dude made a loop. Gordy just recorded it, and everyone experienced that, and everyone was cool with that. And then this dude is like, wait a second. What if I just do an orgasmo loop where, like, every two seconds – I I have an orgasm with this woman. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's maybe not advisable. I'm like uh, getting the feeling of coming in the gym. I'm getting the feeling of coming at home. I'm getting the feeling of coming backstage when I pump up, when I pose out in front of 5,000 people. I get the same feeling. So I'm coming day and night. He took it from like zero to 100. After he comes down from the porn loop, apparently his voice even starts to sound like Gordy's. At least that was a line in the screenplay. And I was like, okay, I did, that didn't come through at all in the movie, but that's interesting. This is more like Exorcist to the Heretic than we want to actually like. Oh, it. hell yeah. <laughs> it totally is. This is that's, that's very bizarre. I never thought of that. That's funny. But there's, he also has that great line where after he's recovered from his like mental break, 
he says to them that he's better now, but that the experience changed him and he's different. Oh, made him something bigger. Yeah. But they don't develop that. That's what they're trying to make the second half of the film about, but it doesn't quite get off the ground. Yeah, and poor Hal, he comes back twice. Michael goes to him for information, then goes to him for help, and they don't really talk to him like, hey, how you doing, buddy? Like, I want to know what has the this experience done to him? How has he changed? Is th- How are things with he and his wife? But he's just a normal dude. Like, oh, yeah, I, I freaking love golf. This is amazing. And that's about <laughs> it. <laughs> Which is a shame because Hal is basically my favorite character. And he just has so much more. I, I don't know. I feel like you get to know him. Like, he feels more real than Christopher Walken's character. And maybe it's because we just see these little glimpses of him. But I, I want more Hal. This is a very warm-hearted movie. The last thing we see with this character is that him and his wife are helping Natalie Wood and Christopher Walken hack into the system, and she's like run off to Kill Devil Hills and the Wright Brothers Memorial to see him because that's where they planned out. You know, he and the wife are hacking into the system. Or what do they do? They do something with the computer at the end, and then they hug, and it's just like, oh, that's so sweet. Like, the dude, like, she's, like, you know, forgiving him his virtual porn addiction or whatever. Yeah, but I want those scenes, like those scenes of him saying, okay, honey, my psychotic break was because I was instantly addicted to watching this virtual reality porn and took it upon myself to just (laughs) make a never ending orgasm loop. Like, that's just not addressed at all. Yeah, why did he think that was a good idea? Because he hadn't even experienced it, as far as I know. And he just immediately is like, oh, well, you know, uh, it'll be better if it's a loop. Yeah, it's the only logical solution. (laughs) It's like freebasing porn. Yeah. (laughs) We are now a planet of technologically dependent beings, and the current running through our cables is high voltage. How can I make this more intense? It's already virtual reality. Yeah, I mean, you're already literally having sex with this woman, not as you, but as this other guy. So it's kind of like, is that cheating? There's a whole monogamy conversation we could have here, but I, I think it's probably beside the point. This is so Black Mirror right now. Yeah, and I love him there in the Chase Lounge, and he's like shuddering like he's having a dry orgasm at that point. It's like, man, you need to just have some Gatorade (laughs) Gatorade right now. Don't they have him in some kind of a recompression chamber after that? Oh, yeah. They do for like scuba divers. And I'm just kind of like, what does he have the bends? I mean, like, why is he in there? What, what, what are we, what are we trying to heal? Like, are the (laughs) tissues damaged? I mean, like, come on. It's like, Permanent prostate damage. I don't think the PG-rated brainstorm was going to go there. So, I mean, you know, it's like, again, let's remake this. I swear. It's like, come on. Like, we can we can make this a soulful, IMAX, crazy 3D. Well, I mean, what what would happen if, you, like, you did the normal version standard and then the, the, uh, the brainstorm stuff 3D and IMAX? Sure. I think that would be amazing. That would be amazing. <laughs> So you're right. We've got all this stuff, and then we take another hard right turn when it comes to Lillian's death. And they really presage that she's got these problems with her heart, and there are a couple times where she's having issues. But yeah, her death scene is fantastic. And then, yeah, you're right. It colors the entire rest of the movie. It really becomes like Michael and and Karen are back together. Hal's kind of taken care of. Gordy's still there, but he's about to die. And yeah, Alex has sold them out to the military. And now it becomes like this whole 
national intrigue kind of thing. And yeah, with a little bit of war games in here, which was the exact same year. And now here we go. We're off to the races when it comes to all of this intrigue to get the Lillian tape and be able to watch her entire death. And they split it up into what, at least three different scenes. Once Lillian dies and the only thing at stake is, Oh, I want to play the death thing. It's like, uh, it just takes forever. This is, I mean, what I think should have happened is you needed the stakes to be, no one should have this technology. It's too dangerous. We have to put a stop to that. And the way to do that somehow, and you do it through film writing magic is to play the Lillian death tape. Somehow, if, if the point was to have that experience and play the Lillian death tape, then that had to factor into actual stakes. Like, oh, we can't let the military get this stuff because then you're going to have, like, whatever, psychic assassins or some something, like, you know, I, or whatever it is. But that's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see all the, like, they have all those extra things in the brainstorm file and stuff, and he ends up watching, like, a really quick clip, and his son watches a little bit more. But I want to see them actually use that in the real world and yeah. affect something, you know? They're, like, like, they're talking Zero like, Dark oh, well, 30, the, the brainstorm version of Zero Dark 30, like, yes. they're, like, instead of waterboarding Possibly. people, they put a brain thing on them and be like, and now here's trauma with this annoying guy in a weird, inexplicable truck in before it. I love that guy. I love his blonde <laughs> hair. And I love how Louise Fletcher's character just rips him every single time she sees him. Oh, you're a hack at MIT and you're a hack now. <laughs> well, and I, I feel like that's a big part of the problem with her dying is that she was the most motivated character. And so after she dies, it's like you have these two idiots who just like want to be on a picnic together. But <laughs> instead, they have to destroy this technology like, it just seems very kind of lackadaisical, and Christopher Walken just keeps shouting about how you can't, you can't shut me out. And it's like, okay, you, you have to have something more, like, kidnap his wife or something. Like, I, I don't know. There has to be more at stake. And I've locked that tape up where nobody Nobody can... locks me out! That tape is mine! Nobody locks me out! His son is in the hospital with trauma. Like, and he's like, you can't lock me out. I'm like, dude, you have bigger stuff going on right now. It's like your kid was just traumatized because he like logged into, you know, the AOL chat room trauma. That is another example of what I was saying earlier, where it feels like the kid is just there as a placeholder. They literally have this conversation where the doctor says he's had a psychotic break. No one cries. They just say, is he going to be okay? And the doctor's like, oh, yeah, I'll be fine. He'll just be here for two days. And they're like, oh, you need to keep him for two days? Cool. See you later. Like, what? It's like the kid logged on to 8chan and it's just like, all right, now we got to, I don't know, pump him full of water and glucose and whatever else in order to make sure, you know, maybe put the kid in a bariatric chamber as well. I wish they explained why that you need to be put in that compression chamber to fix things because it makes no logical sense the scene of them breaking into the laboratory just does not fit with anything else that they're doing this whole remote thing into the laboratory and it becomes it's a keystone cops thing it really (laughs) i mean they might as well be playing powerhouse while they're going through with all of these different machines and just everything going crazy and the guard coming in and tripping on the ball bearings and the foam and why do you have water activated foam (laughs) 
<laughs> what is the foam from? And how does that machine, how does that robot know to aim at that cop? Right. You Do remember they have that? Cameras like the nozzle is just like, and he brings up the nozzle like, okay. And I'm just like, all right, you're trying to be Steven Spielberg now. This is like, this is very cutesy. And the rest of the movie is not cutesy, but there are a few cutesy moments that it's just like, all right. Yeah. Meanwhile, Michael is experiencing life after death. And here's <laughs> this, you know, intercut with that is this thing. It's maybe, and I, I really do adore this movie, but it's one of the worst uses of intercutting. Like, it's just this deadly, serious, spiritual sequence cut in with, like, you almost could put yakety sacks over top of the <laughs> the lab oh, scene. Oh, man. <laughs> I, li- I like this movie a lot more than it sounds like you did. <laughs> you just said yakety sacks? Oh, man. No, I, I love this movie, but there are moments where I, I love it because it just really goes for it, and it's not always coherent, but it- I think it's always interesting. And to me, that's kind of like the high standard of what I go for. Like, I want to be fascinated. I don't necessarily need to feel like it's perfect. But right. the, just the chaos in that lab scene is, is is delightful. David, I know you're very worried about getting a Jeff Warner level letter sent to you by Doug Trumbull. But don't worry. I think he realizes that there's a couple of flaws in this movie. I would like to just say that I, I still feel really terrible about that. I do. I was very, I didn't even hate that movie. And like, I'm like, oh no, I made someone very unhappy who made a movie. That just sucks. I don't want to do that. That's not, that was never my intent. Like really just like, oh, I, I, this is like, I'm genuinely, I genuinely feel bad. If it was ever appropriate for me to reach out and apologize, I would, except I, I don't get the sense that that would be welcomed. No, no, I don't think so. It's okay to critique a movie, especially one that's from 1983. It's all right, you know? And it was so... But this movie is not bad. I like this movie. I know I've caught myself saying this too often lately, but it feels almost like there's too many ideas in Brainstorm. Because it feels like, okay, if we kept it to... You know, this almost like hyper VR type of thing. Okay, that's one movie. You know, you mentioned earlier, have the military intrigue in there. Okay, they're doing something with this that they shouldn't be doing. Now we need to stop them. Have it be an exploration of life after death. Have it be an exploration of this you know, being this incredible machine where you can record your thoughts, give it to someone else, and they can completely empathize with you. I mean, my God, wouldn't that be a great tool to have today where you can't understand why the fuck somebody is thinking the way that they're thinking, (laughs) you know? But it's like, okay, but we're going to put all that in there. And then, yeah, instead of it being necessarily acts, it's more like, well, here's this sequence. And then there's this sequence. I mean, cause it's like the morning that they have reconciled after their stupid fucking kid comes in is like, Oh, it's so great to have you back, dad. He's on the phone to Hal's wife and like, Oh my God, we got to go over there. And then it becomes this other thing all of a sudden. So it just, it, it just kind of whips you around a little bit too much. Yeah. But that's part of what makes it so endearing is that you never know what's going to happen next. The things that I really like, I actually really like their reconciliation and their memories and that we get the the intercutting of their memories one person person's POV to the other person's POV, especially when they're over at like the Kitty Hawk Memorial and then they they use that as the rendezvous place at the end because it was very special to them. It's like that's really nice and I'd like to see that interaction between Christopher Walken and Natalie Wood, and I would have been fine if it had 
had a romance in there, but then again, once Lillian's dead, it's like, okay, we're already settled with romance. We don't need to talk about this anymore. Yeah, and that's what's kind of frustrating about it, is if you just sort of moved that scene back a bit and gave them maybe a different, like maybe she's resistant to experiencing it, but she has to for some reason, and and he plays her his memories. Like, there are so many different ways you could have done that, but I think for me, that sequence is the one where they feel the most fully developed as characters. Whereas the rest of the time, he just sort of is wandering around the lab with seemingly no real motivation. Like, I almost wish he was a little bit more like Cronenberg's kind of typical male scientist protagonists, full of himself and obsessed with completing this project. But he doesn't even really seem that way. Patrick McGowan and Scanners or something like that. It's always been there inside me. Lurking away, sucking out my joy, rotting my successes. Yeah, or even Goldblum and the Fly, where he's kind of likable. He's kind of a jerk. He's likable, but you you get that the obsession to complete this project is his driving motivation, and he sometimes does things that are unwise or reckless, and that sort of leads to the end tragedy. Like, you totally could put that kind of similar story in here but he's not developed that way for whatever reason i think you're exactly right yeah yeah he just wants to watch the death video but but why i don't even know how much he had to do with the brainstorm experiment how much of the ideas were his because really it feels like lillian is so in charge and just feels like she's got her shit together so much more I never see him like, oh, no, you know, adjust the so-and-so to this and that and blah, blah, blah. And just like doing the work, it just feels like he's, you know, he he's like most male scientists where he's there to take the credit and then kind of surpass the female scientists who actually did the work. The whole thing with Project Brainstorm, when he confronts Alex, Alex says that he doesn't know anything about it. Do you think that's true or do you think Alex is lying? He's lying. Yeah, I really think he's lying. The next thing he says is just like, you know, he's like, oh, you don't know about, you know, do you know about Gordy? Gordy's dead. That's, that's his way of saying like, yeah, you need to stop because you're going to die. Like Alex is, is in a way, I mean, yeah, he's like kind of the proto bad guy, sort of. He, he makes an about face at by the end of the movie where he's like, he tells the other idiot scientists, let it go. In that way, Cliff Robertson does like, let it go. By the way, excellent casting. Cliff Robertson, there is no better kind of quasi-sleazy, but not maybe completely overtly sleazy executive dude than Cliff Robertson in this movie. I had no idea that there was a big scandal around Cliff Robertson. I really didn't know that this was like one of the first movies after he had this big scandal with Columbia Pictures. And I always see Cliff Robertson as being, you know, the Uncle Ben, the very upright guy and even when he's playing evil he has that kind of fatherly air to him but yeah the, he was uh the, it wasn't necessarily him doing bad things but he was involved in this big columbia picture scandal and it was like oh okay so this was his return to the industry well it's because he testified right 
Yes. I mean, you know, David Beagleman was the head of Columbia Pictures and he forged a $5,000 check. I mean, it was just $5,000, I think. And this is all from memory, so I could just be completely wrong and, you know, everyone can pop up in the comments if I am. But like David Beagleman was was charged with a felony, the head of Columbia Pictures, because he like forged some check from Cliff Robertson. And Cliff Robertson, of course, you know, I mean, Hollywood is very insular, especially more so even at this time. And, uh, you know, kind of huddled around their executives. But yeah, this uh, poor, I mean, you know, not saying poor Cliff Robertson, because if you watch the De Palma movie, De Palma has a lot of very interesting things to say about Cliff Robertson on the set of Obsession. It sounds like this actor was kind of uh, in, a, <laughs> in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's so good here, though. I, I, Alex's character wouldn't work if he was overtly evil. So it's kind of nice that they make his motivation a little bit more vague. And like you were saying, they make him sort of fatherly. So it, in a way, in certain scenes, it seems like he's just trying to protect them and trying to take this like big picture view, which I think is helpful in the overall narrative but i i also kind of wish they developed that more i like that moment it's pretty much one of the few moments that he has of any sort of character development when they're complaining about how big and bulky the headsets have to be because you have to have liquid nitrogen cooling down the processors and he's just like hey look at i've got this new processor you know he's basically santa claus right then and that's it. It's like, okay, well, I want more of that. I want what is that relationship? And it feels like he has a longer relationship with Lillian, and they make reference to things like, you know, you're not going to do this to me again and all this. And it's like, okay, what's that backstory? I would love to know a little bit more of their working relationship over the years. Well, in the script, I believe, and, and it was a couple of days since I read it, but the script apparently she had another uh, project before this that basically let blind people see. Which is interestingly prescient because I, I believe that people are doing this now. That that somehow there are sensors that can that can that can plug into or hack into the optic nerve or the the part of the brain that actually you know is able to to look at uh, deal with vision. And basically, the idea was that she had this breakthrough. The military got it. The military didn't see any use for it, and the military put it in a shelf. And and she and I think her line is something like, you know, there are blind people out there who still can't see. It's like, well, duh, they're blind. But the the basic point was she figured out a way to make it conceivably possible for blind people to see, which of course would change, you know, millions of people's lives. And so she's pissed off whenever the military comes in because they're just going to be like, and she has a line in the movie where she's just like, you're not going to you know, mess this up before we even know what it is, which is what she felt happened before. And that was her whole beef with Cliff Robertson's character. Unfortunately, I don't know why it didn't make it into the movie because it certainly would have explained a bit. I wonder if they knew that Louise Fletcher was going to be in the movie when they were talking about the technology that allowed blind people to see, because it's such a quick turn from her with her parents being deaf and if they maybe thought oh this is kind of a nod to her and her parents and both of them being deaf but we'll change it to being blind the script the final draft that i read it still said brainstorm temporary title by uh, the the final writer on here and it was dated september 1981 and Natalie Wood died in November 1981, so they were probably still writing on the script as production was happening, because obviously they didn't shoot this thing over a period of just like 
two months, or maybe they did. I don't know, but it seems like they must have worked on it for much longer than that. And it was originally had a Christmas 82 release date, but then with all of the rigmarole around Wood's death, it ended up not coming out until 1983. So it took a year, over a year after she died for them to finally release the movie. The amount of delays and setbacks associated with this are just crazy. And I think that's why it's a little bit easier to understand how it feels like, you know, five different films rolled into one. And I can't imagine how frustrating that must have been for Trumbull. Yeah, we talked just last week on the show about the movie Millennium, and he was supposed to work on Millennium from 1989, but he was still like hurting from he was millennium ended up being released in 89 but they were originally talking about it in 78 79 and he was tied up in brainstorm and then after brainstorm ended he was just like no no i'm not going to direct anything maybe forever so fuck off All right, we're going to take a break, and we're going to play a whole series of interviews. First up, we're going to hear from director Douglas Trumbull. After that, we will hear from actress Louise Fletcher. Then we will hear from all of the screenwriters involved in this project, from Bruce Joel Rubin to Philip Frank Messina, and finally, Robert Stitzel. And then, last but not least, we will hear from our old friend Joseph Madry, whose book on Brainstorm should be out in early 2020. And we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Fae Files. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies, how about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. 
donate today. It's the right thing to do. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we're going to hear from director Douglas Trumbull. I didn't realize until I was doing my research on you that your dad was into special effects as well. Before I was born, he actually got out of the movie business when I was born. When you were growing up, what kind of work was he doing? He was in the aerospace and aircraft industry. Did he tell you stories about the old days with special effects? Little bits and pieces. He didn't like to, he didn't like to talk about it too much, but I knew that he, uh, he worked on The Wizard of Oz. That was kind of one of the biggest, most fun things he ever did. And he helped rig the flying monkeys and the apple tree. And he was in charge of the, the lion's tail with a fishing line <laughs> to, keep, to keep it swinging around behind Bert Lahr and stuff like that. So he was on the set all the time. So what got you interested in films? Well, my dad took me to Cinerama. And he also took me to, D, you know, anything in D-150, anything in 70 millimeter, anything on a giant screen. But Cinerama was really probably the most influential thing that I remember as a kid. And it was it played at the, uh, I think it was the Carthay Circle Theater in Beverly Hills, which I don't, I don't think exists anymore. But it was a big, wide, deeply curved screen with you know all the curtains that opened up. And they ran this as Cinerama and things like that. I just thought it was mind boggling. So I just kept, I would go to any Cinerama movie there was. Uh, and then they did um, Brothers Grimm and How the West Was Won. And how the West was one was just fabulous because it was a truly dramatic movie made in the process, telling a story. So that was really, a, I thought, a big breakthrough. Were there a lot of Cinerama movies made at the time? Well, they, I think they made This is Cinerama, which was their first film, which was a travelogue, really, uh, for lack of a better description. So it was just a lot of different shots tied together. It had no story, no plot, no characters, no drama, no dialogue or anything. But it was just these amazing experiential things that they shot with these big uh, Cinerama cameras. And then I think they followed that every year with another exploitation film along the same thing. It was Cinerama Holiday and whatever. There was four more. So I think there was a total of five uh, successful travelogue movies. And then because Cinerama was making so much money in, you know, in one theater, <laughs> not just the, not the only theaters, but the, the starter theaters that uh, MGM decided to give it a try to do a dramatic movie, which which was uh, how the West was won with major directors and major actors and actresses. And it was an incredibly well-produced movie. And the, some of the stories I heard from Dave Strohmeyer and the people who have been documenting the history of Cinerama, the movie industry was terrified of television basically stealing their audience. And so they, the, the movie industry had hit a really high peak of attendance, which started to rapidly decline with the advent of television. Cinerama was so successful as being just one theater making a lot of money, MGM jumped in and decided to give it a try. But then Fox and all the other studios, Paramount, everybody wanted to have their own medium, their own widescreen medium. So VistaVision Vista, Vista was invented, uh, developed, I think, under Paramount and Fox Grandeur was a 65-millimeter process, I believe. 
And then Mike Todd came in with Todd AO, which was 30 frame per second, 65 millimeter negative, 70 millimeter prints, and uh, D150 and Technorama and Technoscope and all these widescreen formats. And then the one that really, I think, succeeded most was the um, Cinemascope, which was the, the anamorphically squeezed so they could get a widescreen out of a 35 millimeter print. So that was the that was called the poor man's Cinerama. <laughs> so how does experiencing Cinerama and that spectacle, how does that kind of light that fire under your butt to say, this is what I want to do or I want to be a filmmaker? It never occurred to me in so many words that as a result of seeing that, I wanted to be a filmmaker. I just, that just was not in my head, really. It's just that I was a big fan. And I never imagined that I would be in the movie industry. Many years later, because I was not only watching all these 70 millimeter movies and how the West was one and, um, and then, uh, Lawrence of Arabia and sound of music and Oklahoma and, you know, all these giant screen movies, I, I just thought were incredibly impressive experiences for me as a consumer. I never, I wasn't thinking about it being in the film business, but I was an artist at the time and I was interested in science fiction. And so I was reading uh, Isaac Asimov and Arthur Clarke and Heinlein and things like that. And so, as a young artist, my portfolio was filled with spacecraft and alien planets. <laughs> I wasn't into cartoon characters or, you know, anything like that. So that's what ended – it's a long story, but it, it ended up me working on a, on a film for the New York World's Fair in 1960 – that opened in 1964 called To the Moon and Beyond, which was 70-millimeter Cinerama 360. What, what they meant by 360, it was a dome screen. It was like a giant planetarium, 70-millimeter film, fisheye photography and projection. So it was one single strip, 70-millimeter, 10 perforation image. So the, the images on the film were round, circular, circular, projected into this dome. And I did all the artwork for that movie at a company called Graphic Films. That was my first job doing anything with movies. It was a expo film. So it was, I think it was 15 minutes long. And it had a lot of visual effects in it and stars and moonscapes and planets and spacecraft and stuff like that. And Arthur Clarke and Stanley Kubrick saw that movie at the fair because they were both in New York. And that ended up them hiring graphic films where I was working to start doing preliminary design studies for 2001. And uh, so I was working on 2001 at a very early stage in the early design phase in Los Angeles for Kubrick. And then he decided to move the entire production to England and felt that being that far away was, you know, there were no fax machines or dig digital anything. So there was no way to communicate except through airmail. And he just said, well, it's just going to be too far. There's going to be too much lag time between an idea and, a, and an illustration. So he terminated the contract with graphic uh, with all good wishes and everything. And, but I got I got laid off because there was no further work at graphic films. And I talked to my boss, Con Pedersen, who actually ended up working out 2001 later. I talked to him. I said, well, how do I contact Kubrick? I want to I keep working on this movie. So he said, well, he wasn't supposed to tell me, but Kubrick's phone, Kubrick's phone number was on the lower corner of the bulletin board at the office. And I could just call him. So I did. And I, I got two tickets for my wife and myself to go to London and start working on the movie. So that was the beginning. That was the beginning of my career in movies, because prior to that, I had worked on short films for NASA and the Air Force at graphic films, just like tra training and simulation films. And we'd done a film about the Apollo program, uh, which was kind of an internal NASA film to, to, to kind of show to 
congressmen and senators about what, why, where the money was going. So I was painting Apollo uh, modules and the vertical assembly building and lunar landers and the moon, you know, way before they went to the moon. So that was kind of the beginning of my foray into motion picture production. And I didn't realize it was going to lead to 2001. And as a young artist animator, I was going to end up working on this movie. So that was my first movie job. When did you start experimenting or thinking about different frame rates? During 2001, I, I had some experiences on that movie that were really interesting because one of the first things we were tackling on 2001 was stars, mo stars moving across the screen, top to bottom, left to right, diagonally, different speeds. And the, one of the first things that happened when we started moving the stars at, high, at faster speeds, one star would become a double star. There'd be like two stars moving along. And if you speeded it up, there'd be three stars moving along. And we said, well, what's that? We didn't shoot that. It's not, it's not in the film. Well, we realized it was in your eye. It was on the retina of your eye. was retaining one frame and then superimposing it on the next frame and superimposing it on the next frame because of persistence of a vision, which is what allows us to connect frames together. And so that's when we had this big aha moment that 24 frames wasn't fast enough for fast action. And it led to Kubrick's directorial decision to slow everything down in the movie, slow down camera pans, slow down movements, slow down animation. And so that was like part of it. And then during the last phases of the movie, Kubrick was reviewing tons of footage because the shooting ratio on the movie was very high, 200 to one. And he would review uh, 35 millimeter anamorphic prints on a, like a flatbed editing table. If you ever worked on a flatbed, you could run it at any speed you wanted because there was kind of a prism thing in there for, for viewing. And so I noticed on the little screen, it was like a screen this big on the viewing table, which was the way all movies were edited in those days, that when it sped up, there was some kind of fluid, liquid, very visually stimulating quality to it that I couldn't put my, couldn't put my finger on at the time. That just passed, and that's, I stored that in my brain as something to re remember. And then years later, after, after I made Silent Running, I was having a really hard time in Hollywood getting a job on a next film. I was a hot young director. I had development deals at Fox and Warner Brothers and MGM and Paramount, and I, none of them were getting traction. And I needed some money. So I said to my lawyer, who was kind of my agent, I said, I've got to get a job. And I'm technical, you know, I would, my father was an engineer. I, I, I do a lot of technical work, which I did on 2001, which is inventing, inventing weird photographic things. And I said, what if we started a R and D company to explore the future of cinema? And he said, well, that sounds like a good idea. In fact, he had a, a relationship with Frankie Blondes at Paramount and pitched the idea to him to start this R and D company. And he said yes and funded it. And it was funded in an interesting way, which was the whole thing was a tax write-off. That by Paramount owning 80% of this R&D company, they could write the whole thing off on their taxes. So it cost them nothing. It was called Future General Corporation. And I brought in my, my, my longtime friend and partner, Richard Yurcich, to work with me there. And we started thinking about, well, what are we going to do now? And one of the first things we did was we went back into the, the history of recent cinema and rented 70 millimeter cameras and VistaVision cameras and, cin and cinemascope lenses. We just tried everything. And then we built screens at all different aspect ratios and sizes. And we tried projection at different brightnesses. And, and so we were exploring everything that we could, including IMAX at the time. 
And we came to the conclusion there was nothing about it from one process to the other that was any better or, or, or distinctively different. And that was when it was only by hitting that wall and saying, well, it's just not getting any better. It doesn't matter what size or shape it is. It just doesn't get better. That was when we had this big aha moment that the only thing we had not changed was the frame rate. So we went out and right at the camera and shot 24, 36, 48, 60, 66, and 72 frames a second. And then we rigged a projector that could change speeds so we could project it at higher frame rates. And we had this big aha moment and started seeing things on screen that we'd never seen before. You know, if you do a fist coming across the screen, it's just a bunch of blur. And suddenly, if, if something moves really fast at high frame rates, it just looked crisp and clear and, and more frightening, more powerful. There was one little test that we shot of a guy teeing off at a golf course. It sounds extremely dumb, but we're, we're over behind a guy who's teeing off. And so he would hit the ball and the ball would you know, fly off down the fairway. And at 24 frames a second, as soon as he started to move his hands on the golf club, if you analyze the frames, you would see his hands were blurred and gone. The golf club completely disappeared and the ball popped off. Couldn't see anything. But as the frame rate increased, you started to see more of the action until you could actually follow the ball down the fairway at around 60 frames a second. So I said, ah, this is really interesting. Then we took the films we were shooting at these various frame rates and set up a laboratory experiment at Pomona University with some uh, neurophysiologists and hooked up viewers to electrocardiogram, electroencephalogram, galvanic skin response, electromyogram, and graphed out human stimulation as, with the frame rate being the variable, showing it to one person at a time. And w that's when we had this big epiphany that around 60 to 66 frames per second, we, people were getting much more immersed in the movie. We weren't changing the story. We weren't changing the characters. It had nothing to do with anything like that. It just had to do with physiological stimulation of a car driving down a winding road. So that was uh, kind of the proof that, Getting up to, to a higher frame rate around 60 was very effective. And then that, that then we developed the show scan process of uh, our first test were at 72 frames a second. And we realized that we could uh, make a projector run at 60 or 72 frames a second by putting a pin in the Geneva mechanism, you know, the pull-down mechanism. Put an extra, extra pin so it would pull down the frame on every shutter closure, not every other shutter closure. Most people that you talk to in the industry today never knew that each frame is projected twice. So, so when we projected it just once, there was something about the fluidity of it and the shutter closure that your brain would say, oh, that looks real. That looks very natural to look at. It's very easy to watch. And it was almost three-dimensional, even though it was just two-dimensional. Was there ever concern about the mechanism moving too fast that it might rip up the actual sprocket holes itself? Well, there was concern about that, but this double pin Geneva meant that if, if you're going to, if you know what a Geneva is or how it works, it's just, pull, well, it's just advancing the film on a sprocket. But what's happening is that the film is advancing to the next frame in a quarter of the time that the frame is shown. So it advances quickly and then sits there in the gate of the projector and then the shutter closes and it's still sitting there and the shutter opens again. And it's still sitting there. So each frame is shown twice by adding another pin in the Geneva, it gets advanced twice as often, but that doesn't change the rapidity of the pulldown. Didn't change anything. So you could get to 48 frames a second with no added stress on the perfs or anything. So it didn't, didn't wear the film out. And then just by 
tweaking the motor to a slightly like 25% higher speed, you could get to 60 frames per second, which seemed to be a really nice cruising speed for the projector and didn't add any stress on the film. And so it wasn't a problem with perfs or scratches or anything like that. So what year was this that you guys made this discovery? About 1975. Okay. And what was your first practical application? It was a demonstration film called Night of the Dreams that I wrote and directed that we shot on a stage in Hollywood. It was a little dramatic story. We wanted to do all the things that you have to do with the movie, with actors and dialogue and sync sound, interiors and exteriors and visual effects. And it was a maybe a 10 or 12 minute movie. And we set it up in a theater in Westwood in the man, I can't remember, one of those man theaters on a very large screen. So what we did was we got their permission to convert the screen to a much larger screen. But during conventional screenings, the curtains were closed halfway. So for regular movies, it was just a normal size screen. And anytime we wanted to, we could push the button and the screen would open up like Cinerama did. And suddenly this it fills with this gigantic 70 millimeter, 60 frame per second movie. And that was very, very impressive. We had lots and lots of screenings there. We'd screen there in the morning, you know, when the theater was close to the public. And there was a pivotal screening that happened for senior management at Paramount, which included Frankie Bonds and some other people. And Charlie Bludorn was there. Charlie Bludorn was chairman of the board of Gulf and Western that owned Paramount Pictures. And so he just leapt out of his chair and looked at these executives and said, gentlemen, if we don't make a movie in this process, we're fools. This is an incredible opportunity. We should just do it. And so they were under orders from the boss to make a movie. He stopped for a minute and said, okay, here's my idea. we got to make a movie that's partly in the process and partly normal so that the audience will see the difference. We telegraph the dis- difference. And I said, oh, okay, that's an interesting idea. And he says, well, you got to find a story that does that. And that led to finding Bruce Joel Rubin and a script that he had called the George Dunlap Tapes, which became Brainstorm. And the design of the movie was that part of the movie would be a normal 35 millimeter, 24 frame per second movie. And part of the movie would be 60 frame per second, 70 millimeter. And we would optically print the frames onto a 70 millimeter print running at 60 frames a second. And that was the plan. We got to go ahead from Paramount to develop the project and do location scouting and hire cast and crew and get ready to go and then excuse me i was at mgm and then mgm said you know we don't really want to try this new process because there's no theaters to show it in you got this chicken and egg problem the catch 22 of you know making a movie for non-existent theaters and by that time we were already screening demo films for the industry we were showing it to the society of motion picture and television engineers and the projectionists and the screen actors guild and the directors guild and MPAA and the Academy, and we're, everybody was really excited about the process, but everyone wanted to make it somebody else's problem. So the, the theater owners said, well, we'll convert theaters. We'll voluntarily convert theaters to this process, but only if all the studios will, will start making movies in the process. And then we go back to the studios and say, oh, you're ready to make a movie in the process. And they say, no, because the theaters aren't there. And so it was this stupid thing. But it was also troubled by the fact that the 70 millimeter prints were going to cost more and raw stock was going to cost more with the platters of film were going to be gigantic. It was just a non-starter. I tried for several years to make that breakthrough and I finally had to capitulate and agree to make Brainstorm conventionally. And so it was shot in 35 and 65 and the aspect ratio actually changed during the movie. 
and the point of view shots all were 70 millimeter and then conventional melodrama was 35 millimeter, but we didn't change frame rates. So that was an incredible disappointment for me to have worked this all out, solved the problems, got a patent on it. I was ready to go and the industry wouldn't embrace it. The worst thing that happened was Natalie Wood died during production, which completely screwed everything up. Uh, it was a very tragic experience that just completely undid me emotionally. I just completely came unglued about that. I said, well, you know, this is another time I'm having another big, bad experience in Hollywood. And I decided to just stop directing movies and leave altogether. So I sold my house in Santa Monica and moved to here in the Berkshires and re- kind of restarted my career to try to figure out, well, what am I going to do now? Because I'm, I'm a maverick. I'm just a misfit. I don't fit in Hollywood trying to talk about the technology or the lenses of the cameras. It's just a non-starter at the studios. And so I've got to do it another way. And so I realized there was life in this kind of what we call the special venue business, which is theme parks, expos, museums, and stuff like that, you know, like IMAX was. I figured, well, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. And so we did quite a few shows like that. And one of the other things we invented at the, at the time during Future General was the simulator ride concept. I built the first simulator ride. I said, you know, if we could take flight simulation and make it dramatically interesting as an entertainment experience, I think we might have something. Because we built the first moving theater with motion seats and a hydraulic rams underneath and a synchronized movie and uh, developed that. And then we had another idea for an interactive video game because video games were kind of becoming more and more interesting, you know, with Atari and all these other companies doing video games. And so I wanted to make a video game that actually had drama in it and characters and dialogue, which we did. That was under Future General. And then there was a fourth project we did simultaneously, which was virtual sets, which was kind of green screen automatic camera tracking so that one camera could be looking at actors on an empty stage with green and another camera would be looking at a miniature and those two cameras were slaved together to pan and tilt, move together. So you can see a composite in real time. And I thought, well, this is paramount. You know, they'll use it for Star Trek. It'll be a really great way to explore alien planets and save money on set construction. But they didn't get it at all. They didn't want to do that either. They just, rent, they just rented it for television commercials and other projects. So the first show using that was Cosmos with Carl Sagan. So that was very successful. We were trying to, you know, work outside the box and and still hitting the wall with a lot of these things. Paramount said there's no future in video games. Can you imagine now that we know the video games are a much bigger moneymaker than movies? There wasn't a lot of vision happening in, in Hollywood. And I was really frustrated. So anyway, so just jump more years into the future about the high frame rate thing. It took a few years and the, and the, and the movie industry is transitioning from celluloid to digital digital cameras, digital post-production, digital editing, and digital projectors. That took a few years to implement. And I started looking into it and found out that in order to do digital 3D, the projectors are running at 144 frames a second. And I had this big aha moment again. I said, well, that means that the projectors that do 3D could do show scan. And it's already there. It's done already. It's finished. And so I contacted Texas Instruments who were making the chips. I contacted Christie and I contacted Dolby and I contacted Barco and I started asking around, what can these projectors do? They said, oh, they'll go high frame rates, but no one does it. No one's using it. I said, well, can we do it? They said, well, yeah, you could. The new Series 2 projector probably could because it's implemented for 3D, which is multiple flashing, alternating left eye, right eye, 72 for the left eye, 72 for the right eye. 
144. I said, well, what if we did a different frame on each flash? We could do 144 or 120 or something like that. That led to the invention of this Magi process that I'm working with now, because there are tens of thousands of theaters out there that are running at very high frame rate and no one's using it. So we don't have to install new projectors. It's completely changed the landscape of the, of the exhibition business. Well, there's this other thing that's come up, you know, with, with directors like Peter Jackson and, J- and Ang Lee and Jim Cameron, who have made 3D movies, all came up against this roadblock of 24 frames being inadequate for 3D. There's a lot of motion artifacts and blurring and stuff that gets really weird when you're making 3D movies. Because you can get inverted stereo space, you know, if you pan the camera too fast or somebody moves too fast, the whole thing will reverse in stereo space. Because the the difference between frame one and frame two is the same as or more than the difference between the left eye and the right eye. It's a simple way to explain it. And so they all want they all started wanting to go at higher frame rates. I said, well, that's good. That's a move in the right direction. And I'm kind of watching what's going on. And, and then Peter Jackson made this very bold move of doing 48 frame on The Hobbit. On the, tril- the whole trilogy was shot 48 frames. And lo and behold, when it was shown, it got a very bad review, re- bad reaction, because people accused it of looking like a cheap soap opera or something. Because 48 frames is approaching the frame rate of video, which is 60, which is also 50 in the UK. So not much different between 48 and 50. And so he nearly, he, that was a huge failure. And I started thinking, well, why is it failing? Why isn't it working? Why doesn't it look great? And then Jim Cameron started shooting tests at 24, 48, and 60 frames and seeing some of the same artifacts in, in projection. And then uh, Ang Lee started experimenting with higher frame rates because he wanted to make a price fight movie, uh, which would have a lot of, extremely fast action with the camera right close to actors faces and he had done 24 48 60 tests in 3d and was still frustrated that it wasn't good enough and he heard about what i'm doing here dennis Muir, who's a friend of mine up at ilm said well ang you ought to go down see what doug's doing because i heard he's experimenting high frame rates which i was so that led to a lot of discussions with him about high frame rates and what to do and how you could do it and then he made billy lynn's long halftime walk at 120 frames 3D. And that failed as well because it looked too much like video. And it was only then that I realized that the missing component of all these failed experiments was the shutter. Okay. Digital projectors have no shutter. Right. So I figured out if you introduce a shutter, a digital shutter, you can make it look completely cinematic at any frame rate. It's, it's the dumbest, simplest thing, but it's built into my patents. So I figured out how to do this digitally. So you're really kind of replicating the shutter of 100 years of cinema and introducing it to high frame rates and digital projection and digital photography. And it looks fabulous. It looks completely cinematic, but all the artifacts and blurring and strobing is fixed. That's the short story. (laughs) I'm curious how you came upon the George Dunlap tapes, how you knew that that was out there. You know, I can't remember how that happened. I was introduced to the producer on the movie. Joel Friedman, who knew Bruce, who knew Bruce Rubin. I can't remember how we were introduced, but he said, you got to read the script because it might be perfect for your needs. And I did. And it was. Where in this timeline does something like uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind fit in? Well, Close Encounters was a conventional film, but it was <clears throat> the thing that was happening with me and my partner, Richard Yurisich, is that we were completely dedicated to 70 millimeter, which is 65 millimeter negative and a 70 millimeter print. It's the same thing. 
And so because we were working on ShowScan, we were trying to get our hands on cameras and optical printers and all the support equipment to be able to make a movie. Steven Spielberg agreed to do all the visual effects for Close Encounters in 70 millimeter. Well, while the rest of the movie was shot anamorphically 35. And one of the reasonable aspects of that is that when you shoot in 70 millimeter and then you duplicate the film for optical printing or something, the final result is still as good as an original negative at 35 because of grain buildup and contrast buildup. So there was a really good reason to use 70 millimeter. And then we did that again on, on uh, Blade Runner. And we did that again on Star Trek. And then we did that again on Brainstorm. We remained true to 70 millimeter and the giant screen. Then when we got into the digital age, and I was certainly going to a lot of uh, IMAX screenings, and I was familiar with IMAX. What happened with me was that I got the job to do the Back to the Future ride for Spielberg for Universal Studios tours, you know, based on the trilogy of movies. And this was an immersive 180-degree wide dome screen projection extravaganza with motion base that I had invented and coordinating the motion of the motion base with the motion of the camera in a way that wouldn't make you nauseated. Making the Back to the Future ride was a totally wonderful experience for me creatively because I, I could solve all the technical issues and the aesthetic issues and the directorial issues, the storytelling issues of how, how to tell a four-minute dramatic movie in a dome in a simulator ride. And I think it became one of the most successful theme park rides of all time. It ran for 16 years in three parks, probably made, probably made about $2 billion for Universal. And that was a big success. But the weird thing about it was that nobody in the movie industry understood it at all. It was dismissed as, you know, some kind of you know, theme park amusement. And, and I saw it as a, as a very important stepping stone in the history of cinema. You get ripped out of your seat in the theater and you're thrown through the proscenium arch and you enter into the movie and become part of the movie. You're a character in the movie. It's like becoming Michael J. Fox in the DeLorean car. That was the idea of making the experience a first person movie experience rather than a normal third person movie experience. I heard a story years ago and I probably completely misremember it. I'm probably going to tell it to you and you'll think that I can, uh, I'm a total nut, but some sort of story about you showing, I think it was Steven Spielberg, some footage, and then it looked like the the film broke, and then some guys came out on stage, and they were working on things. Can yeah. You, okay, so that's not a completely false memory. No, I no, that's, that, that's, that's totally true. When I was developing ShowScan, and I was saying, you know, we've got to take this high frame rate thing, which is highly realistic, and use it cleverly to create an illusion of realism, and... I came up with this idea for a little movie that we made at ShowScan called New Magic. It was a kind of an experimental demo film. And the idea behind the film was that it was going to be a short movie. It would have some travelogue aspects to it. But it was going to be a story about a guy in a laboratory, in a kind of a magic laboratory, a, a guy who works for a major magician. So we came up with, I came up with the idea that, the move, that, that anybody coming to see the demo would be coming because Doug Trumbull invited them to a demo of some new amazing thing, right? So I decided to do exactly the opposite. And we made the worst movie ever made, which was just a minute long, but it was, it was like a really crappy documentary about a fireworks technician making a 4th of July show. And we shot it very badly. We jerked the camera around. We did everything you could do wrong. And then we took the prints of the film 
and scratched them up, tore the perfs out and spliced it wrong. So the splices would come up into the frame. And then we projected this really bad 24 frame per second movie onto a screen and rephotographed it at 60 frames per second in show scan. Okay, so it didn't fill the screen, but it was a little crooked. There was a hair in the gate and it was out of focus and it jiggled because he kept bumping the lens. Everything that could possibly go wrong in a screening went wrong. And then the film jams in the gate and burns and bubbles up and disappears. And then the house lights come up, but they're not real house lights. They're photographed house lights on the bigger screen. And then you hear the projectionist swearing in the behind in the, in the surround speaker saying, oh, my God, what did I do? Blah, blah, blah. And you hear him walk around the theater and go down a stairway and then come out a door behind the screen and approach the screen and push on the screen with his hands, which catch it, which catches the light from this from the uh, the supposed house lights, which are raking the screen from up high. So it kind of caught the light of of his hands. And he talks to the audience. He's got a flashlight shining on his face. He said, everybody, stand by. It's going to be fine. I know I've got another print back here someplace. So just hold on. I'll get it fixed and everything will be fine. At this point, Steven Spielberg, who was there, and this happened to many people, gets up out of his chair, comes over to me and says, Doug, sorry, it's not working. Give me a call when it's fixed and leaves. And it wasn't until he gets nearly to the door that he's looking at the screen from the side and realized that guy's still talking. And it's an illusion because you can see from the side that it's just it's not really a puckered screen. There's not really somebody behind the screen. It's all film. And that's when he realized that something was up Then came back and sat down and watched the rest of the demo, which is really quite spectacular. So I think that's one of the greatest stories for me personally. Only a few people know that story. But it's about the fact that very few people understand how the medium really works or what is the illusion of motion or what is persistence of vision. Or what is reality? How does reality different from 24 frames a second? How different is 24 frames a second from silent movies at 18 frames a second? And so I'm a, an aficionado of all that stuff. And I'm trying to explore, okay, now that we've got it working, what do you do with it? And my, my feeling about it is you have to start creating a whole new cinematic language. We have to tell stories differently in a more immersive way to where the audience gets, to sen- gets a strong sense of our participating in the movie and being present in the movie. It's not like watching other people do stuff in the movie. It's like you're in the movie with other people. It's a different relationship. So I write it differently. I frame the shots differently. I edit differently. And I've been developing this whole process, which is a completely new kind of movie theater as well. Movie theaters are carrying over stuff from the silent movies. You know, they're usually long and narrow. The screen is not very big. And the quality, you just can't do an immersive experience under those circumstances. Which is a stone's throw from theater, theater. Yeah. So I'm very interested in theater, theater, you know, uh, Pirandello kind of fooling the audience about what's real and what's not real. And so that fascinates me as a filmmaker. So I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm a weirdo out, out exploring the frontier someplace. Well, somebody's got to do it. Well, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm making a lot of progress now because this process I've got actually plays through any DCP and any theater. And it's only a matter of how good is the theater? Is it a long, narrow theater with a small screen or is it a premium large format theater like an IMAX theater with a larger screen? That's good. I'm trying to go even larger. Larger is difficult because there's light limitations with polarizing glasses and three like that. But I've fallen completely in love with high frame rate 3D. And it's a, it's a startling illusion of realism to where you're, you feel like you're there and you're in the movie. And I think that's worth exploring. And I think people are really going to like it. 
don't want to insult you by asking about another Universal ride that I went to the same time I went to Universal and saw the Back to the Future ride. But how on earth did James Cameron make the 3D in Terminator 3D look so good? Well, that was three projector 3D. No, there was a triptych with columns between. And that ride, that experience, went through a lot of very difficult birthing processes because no one, including Jim, felt comfortable moving the camera very much or having fast action in 3D on film at 24 frames. But once he got into it and started doing experiments, he realized he could push more and more and more, which he did. It wasn't high frame rate, but it was very high quality, 70 millimeter, and uh, a lot of action, and it worked great. And tying that together, that immersive, like Cinerama type, visual effects type movie with live actors on the stage in front of the screen or whatever was a very important breakthrough. We're doing that right now. I'm, I'm working on a project here in my town with Shakespeare and company, which is a, a Shakespeare group. And so we're doing a thing where the ghost of uh, Hamlet is magi on a screen with an actor in front of it, interacting with the ghost in real time. And you can't tell what's real and what's not real. So that's another thing I'm, I'm toying with right now is it, you know, in, in large volume business, you can't afford to have live actors every day. It just doesn't work. It's not affordable. But as a one-off kind of demo, it's very interesting because we're exploring the nature of reality. You know, what is real and what's not real? And, and we're in an age now of virtual reality where people want immersive experiences and they expect their little headset to deliver them to some other dimension or whatever. And it's, it's going through a lot of teething pains because the technology is just getting there. VR is a wonderful idea suffering from the inadequacy of the graphics engine of the VR because everything has to be rendered in real time. So there's only so many texture maps and shaders and geometries you can render in real time and get a good result. So that's limiting as compared to live action photography of real actors or real sets or real locations. So it's going through a birthing situation right now. We'll see, we'll see how it works out. I'm not against VR. I think the, the idea of it is fabulous, but the human desire for immersive experiences has always been there. It's been there since the beginning of movies. Uh, I feel like we're, we're having much better results now with this high frame rate 4K 3D on a very wide, deeply curved hemispheric type screen than VR can. And we can tell a real story. Yeah, I was afraid after The Hobbit that that would have set stuff back so far. That It did. It did. It did set things back. The Hobbit set things back. When Ang Lee did Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, that set things back. So there was a two-time discomfort about high frame rates in the industry, and everybody said, well, it looks bad. Well, they haven't seen how to make it look really great. So that's what I'm doing. So I'm just trying to have screenings. and We just had some screenings in L.A. last week for the first time in Hollywood, and it went really well. So what was it like for you going from – you know, working at this smaller firm doing these, these films, which were pretty substantial films, working on 2001, and then a few years later working with real actors rather than working with primarily the special effects. That's not a problem at all for me. I mean, I, I, I have a great time with real actors. Uh, and I think it's, it's one of the lessons that I learned when I was making Silent Running because I was working with Bruce Dern. And I purposefully chose a story and wrote a story that didn't have a big cast. So I didn't have too many actors to deal with. I was kind of a, I was kind of afraid of the whole thing. And I found out working with Bruce that dealing with actors is not 
complicated that a good trained actor or actress can do a good job under almost any circumstances. And there have been many, many movie directors that have had stellar careers and all they do is say, stand over there and act. That's, that's their whole input and uh, relationship with an actor or actress. Other directors really want to get into the character development, the nuance of voice and expression and body language and everything else. So it's all over the map in terms of what is a good performance from an actor or actress. And so I had a great time working with Bruce on Silent Running, and he taught me a lot during the production about method acting and what he was doing and how he was using life experiences to bring that to his character in the movie. I said, okay, that's interesting. And then after that, I went and worked at the actor's studio for a while and worked with actors under, you know, controlled circumstances. And then I directed Brainstorm with Natalie Wood and Chris Walken and, and Cliff Robertson and Louise Fletcher. And they all loved working with me. And they all did great performances. And I'm very proud of the movie. So I became fearless about working with actors. And it's not a problem. It's not a technical thing. It's just I found that that's the easiest part of the whole process. It's the easiest. Believe me, actors know what they're doing. What's harder is the stuff that people like Ridley Scott does, which is amazing ideas and concepts and visuals and light and shadow and beams of light and all kinds of stuff that are what the cinematographer and the director bring to the movie that's beyond the acting. And so my experience has been working with Ridley Scott and Steven Spielberg and Robert Wise. I was watching them as directors, you know, working. I'm, I'm a support crew. And I'm realizing what I'm doing is the hardest part of that movie. And Kubrick, too. I was taking the movies to a completely different level that they had never imagined. They had hoped for, but they never imagined. But so I would go, I do the heavy lifting because it's not just acting. It's about the whole nature of the experience of cinema. And what do you do to create something really powerful on screen or iconic or uh, perfected in some visual way? So that's, that's kind of what I bring to the table. Well, when you're doing the directing on, say, Brainstorm, is there anybody else doing that heavy lifting, or are you doing that as well? I'm doing that as well. And I, you know, I've worked for years and years with my partner, Richard Yurisich, uh, who does as much heavy lifting as I do. He's a visual effects genius. And we've been partners, so we have a language, we have a lingo, and we know how to do it, and we know how to talk about it, we how to describe what we want, and we know how to get it. And we're working together again now on another project I want to get made, which is called Lightship, which is a, a big science fiction space action adventure movie that will be, it has some of the qualities of 2001 in, in, in the sense that it's incredibly spectacular visually. It's a space movie and it's a big journey to another star system. So it's kind of like the journey in 2001 to Jupiter, only more. And it's filled with wonderful characters and acting opportunities and some robots kind of like silent running. There are sentient robots in there. And it's using this Magi process to make the audience feel like they're actually on this adventure with these people. I think it could be a big breakthrough movie if I can get it made. It's always the toughest part. And the, one of the big problems that I have is that I, we just finished a screenplay of this thing and the screenplay describes everything that's happening. And so it's not just dialogue that he said this to her, and it's not just screen direction that says he comes in the door and she walks out or whatever. It's about what's happening visually on the screen is described in great detail in the screenplay. And I see people at the studios just glaze over and say, I, I don't have it. I can't imagine what you're talking about. So that's a big problem. 
is getting past the shortfall of imagination to kind of pre-visualize what a movie is going to be. So that's where trust comes in. The studio has got to trust the director, which they do often. They hire directors because they trust them. They hire Michael Bay because he can make another Transformers just the same. They hire Ridley Scott because he can do another Alien just the same. They hire Steven Spielberg or anybody else because they trust them to do their thing well and professionally. Once you can get their trust, I think getting the trust is is achievable by doing what we call a sizzle reel, a demonstration, you know, a five or ten minute piece of the movie. And then they'll say, oh, I get it. Now I see what you mean. I know what, oh, that's what you meant when you wrote that long paragraph about light and uh, And so we got to do that. So it's a stepping stone. When you were shooting those, the actual brain scan sections of brain scan, the, the, the helmet parts of that, what size are the cameras at this point? They're pretty, very bulky. They're usually pretty heavy, pretty noisy, very obstinate cameras, and uh, very hard to move around. <clears throat> Particularly the handheld cameras are very noisy because they're not blimped. If you're shooting with those, or even with IMAX cameras particularly, they're very, very noisy. So that intrudes upon the normal thing you want to do on a set with actors doing dialogue, particularly actors who don't talk very loud. That can be a problem. But now we're in the digital age. The cameras make no noise at all. So we've got we've got 3D cameras for Magi that are you know as big as this, and uh, they make no noise and they don't intrude on the set and they not they don't they're not heavy they're easy to move around, and so it makes shooting much easier and much faster. Did you have to do a lot of ADR on Brainstorm? Yes, a lot, but it wasn't because of that. It was because it was mostly because of Chris Walken. He's he's an he's a improvisational actor. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it any better way. Uh, every take is a completely different tone of voice, and it's just about the way he works. And I said, okay, this is the way he is. And I found out that he was pretty on the mark on the third take. The first take would be completely over the top. The second take would be weird. The third take would be pretty much on the mark, and the fourth take would be dying. And so we would made the movie up out of three out, out of third takes on almost every scene, and then we still had to loop him almost entirely throughout the whole movie to to even out his voice. And that was not a problem. That's very straightforward to, to, to loop people's voices. I really like Louise Fletcher in that movie. Yeah, she's wonderful. Cuckoo's Nest was one of, one of her roles that preceded Brainstorm. And I really loved working with her. I think that her death scene in the movie is like one of the best death scenes ever. I'm really proud of it because of her. We shot that scene in one take. It was so mind-boggling to be on the set with her dying. You felt I really thought they were going to die just before lunch, but we broke for lunch and recovered from it because her, her performance was so stunning that uh, it was it was hard to ask for another take. Can you do that again? You know, it's just like weird. Who actually designed the, the headsets, the actual, the, the first ones that you see? Several different people. I'm trying to think of the name of some of the artists who worked on that. Mark Stetson was one of the top designers. So he designed a lot of the helmets, a lot of the kind of industrial design type work on the movie, including the tape machines and the, the iterations of the tape machine that keeps getting smaller and cooler and the iterations of the helmet that starts out really big, gets smaller and smaller until it's this tiny little virtual reality type thing. Yeah, I love how that plays through the movie, that it just keeps getting smaller and smaller and just nicer and nicer until it's like now you've got the consumer grade version of it. We were kind of using, a, you know, something like an iPod or a 
iPhone or something as a model for the whole idea of product development and productization and human comfort and ease of market penetration and stuff like that. That was, that was all part of that design process. Where did the recumbent bicycle come from? Uh, I just found, I read about it, saw one, rode one, thought this was cool. And uh, the idea was to be able to show that Michael Brace, you know, Chris Walken's character was an unusual maverick who wouldn't ride a regular bike or drive a regular car or do anything any ordinary person would do. He was always doing something eccentric. And then we designed that recumbent bike so that he had kind of a little uh, electronic console in front of him, which actually had a light source in, in it to shine on him. So he could drive around at night and you could see who he was. And then there was the helmet idea. He had this kind of bicycling helmet that Natalie Wood then sees and says, oh, I could turn that into a, a brain sensor helmet, which she does. There's a scene about that. So he just constantly linking those visual ideas together. I guess that makes sense that Michael would have such an unusual house as well. We found that house. It was kind of an eco house in North Carolina. I think it was in Chapel Hill or someplace. And it had an indoor swimming pool. And it had a very interesting angled roof and everything. And we went in and changed that place profoundly. We built that deck that comes out over the pool, kind of cantilever over the pool so we could have scenes. Because there was a whole story in the in the movie about the boy who's ultimately going to have this drowning episode. He was going to have this psychotic episode that was his nightmare of being drowned by his parents in the swimming pool. That all was, we were not allowed to shoot that scene or much less talk about it. Uh, after Natalie Wood died because they thought it was just so prurient to talk about drowning because all all these stories were made up about how Natalie Wood was afraid of the water and afraid of dark water. And it was totally not true. He was totally comfortable with water. We had a big a boating scene in the movie that got cut out of Natalie Wood and Christopher Walken celebrating their reconciliation in a canoe on the pond. And we selected this house because it had a pond. So they were out in the canoe on the pond at night with a lantern, drinking champagne and telling jokes. And that got cut out of the movie because MGM didn't want any mention of water. It's less water at night. So that's one of the added tragedies of the movie. How much more was there to shoot? I know, of course, there's post-production, but how much more was there to shoot via the first production part of it when she passed away? Very little. There were only I can only identify three scenes that she was not obviously able to be in. So after she died, I went back to the cutting room to analyze what we could do because I didn't want to double hear her or fake her voice or anything. I wanted to so either finish this movie gracefully with no problem. And so I proved myself in the cutting room and by looking at the script, I said, well, there's one scene, for instance, where we had an establishing shot of Natalie Wood and Christopher driving up to the front of Hal's house. And they both go into the house. And then they were supposed to both go downstairs and find Hal in the basement, you know, on this sex tape loop. And I said, well, it really doesn't really matter if Natalie's there. She could be upstairs talking with Hal's wife while Chris goes down alone. I said, well, that's that's a no brainer. That's easy to shoot. It won't change anything. It doesn't dramatically change the course of the movie. So we did that. And there were several other things like that. Simple replacements where I could just shoot the scene without her presence. And the movie would still cut together just fine. The tragedy for me in that whole thing was that when the minute Natalie would die, the entire movie was terminated. The studio declared force majeure, which was an act of God, that the movie was unserviceable and unfinishable, which was not true. It's a lie. 
And since they terminated me and all the cast and all the crew and everything within hours of her death, I started being concerned that the, the common thing for a studio to do if a tragedy like that happens is to talk to the director and the producer and say, do we have a problem or, or can we finish without her or can we replace her or whatever? And it's like Ridley Scott's All the Money in the World. You know, they had to replace Kevin Spacey for other political reasons. But it can be done. But the studio didn't ask that question. They terminated the movie without even asking the question. That's when I started suspecting that there was motive and that the studio really had their eyes on a $15 million fraudulent insurance claim. Get your head around that one. And uh, that, that leads you on a whole different path of trying to analyze what could have happened. Well, even from what you were saying before, as far as them not wanting to, you know, invest in the show scan process and do it the way that you wanted to do it, it sounds like they weren't really behind this movie at all to begin with. I think they were very behind it at the beginning, but I think they were looking at dailies. This was another dynamic on the movie. So we're shooting on location in North Carolina, and the, the, the shots get shipped to L.A. to go to the MGM laboratory at the studio. So the studio is seeing, da seeing dailies before I see them. And I started getting comments back from the studio. They said, why is Chris's hair look so weird? Or, you know, weird kind of negative comments. And I think that one of the undercurrents was that as they saw the movie unfolding out of continuity, it wasn't making sense to them. This was a very advanced kind of movie. And they didn't get it. And they I don't think they actually liked it. And even though they were for it at the beginning, or they wouldn't have said yes to greenlighting the production. And they, they loved the idea of Chris Walken and Natalie Wood and Louis Fletcher and Cliff and by the time we were nearly done, I think they had turned against the movie internally. And so they were ready to sacrifice this movie and move on to something else. I was, I went into a meeting with Freddie Fields after Natalie died and he said, Doug, we're killing this movie. Just go on with your career. Like nothing happened. Everything's going to be fine. I said, no, I can't. I have to finish this movie. I'm not going to live the rest of my life with this movie in a vault. It's just not okay with me. I'm going to find a way to get this movie finished because I think any director who signs on, to direct a movie is you've got to be ready for the worst. You know, this was the kind of thing that almost every director's had major events happen during production. You know, like Coppola had all of his sets destroyed during apocalypse. Now, you know, the big hurricane went through and tore everything up, but he had to pers persevere and get it done and finish it. That's what directors are. There's, you're the general on a war. You got to, got to win the war. So I said, Oh, that's my job. I got to finish this movie. So, I had to finish it against the will of the studio. And I did it with money from Lloyd's of London, the insurance company, who backed me to finish the movie because they took me under deposition and said, can you finish it? I said, of course I could finish it. There's no problem. I'll, sh I'll show you that there's no problem. So they agreed with me and got behind finishing the movie. I've heard stories of you barricading the door of the editing room. Is there any truth yeah, to that? That's true. This was after I was fired. I went back to the studio, to the cutting room. The editor had been fired. No one was there but me. That was when I had to prove to myself that I could look at every reel and that I could finish the movie without her presence. I had to figure I had to figure that out in my heart that that was true. And the studio was calling me saying, Doug, get out of there. And, you know, you're not welcome in the studio anymore. I barred the door. I had my wife bring me food to the cutting room. I lived in the cutting room for two or three days while I was proving to myself that I could finish the movie. Did you sleep? Not much. <laughs> Um, and I was a basket case by the time we got the movie finished. It was just, I was shot. It was the worst thing I've ever been through. Well, then I'm sure MGM isn't willing to work with you after this, and they probably did no 
support of it when it came out. By the time it came out, the studio was under totally new management because David Beagleman, who was this, you know, he was the, a troublemaker, a, a con man or whatever you want to call him. He's no longer alive. I don't mind saying that. But he was well known. He had kited checks from the studio had gotten in a lot of trouble and had to do uh, community service time and restitution and all kinds of payments because he was kiting checks. And one of the problems was he kited checks of Cliff Robertson's on another thing. And so when I said, I want Cliff Robertson to play this character, everybody said, well, why? David Bugler is not to agree to that because they hate each other. But I actually made it happen. And it took a lot of dodgeball to, to make sure that that Cliff Robertson and David Bigelman were not in the commissary for lunch at the same time. But we pulled it off and made it happen. Yeah, Bigelman was a troublemaker. Freddie Fields was a troublemaker. And the, the line producer, John Foreman, was a troublemaker. And it started out with a bunch of really bad eggs at the top of the studio chain, chain of command that I had to get my way through. Sounds like you had a supportive crew, though, at least. Oh, that was fantastic. We all... Everybody on the crew and the cast came back. As soon as we got the money from the insurance company to finish the movie, everybody came back and we just went back like nothing had happened. It was a very sad day because of Natalie, but we persevered and got it done. Is there any way to go back and retrofit a film? Like, Could you go back to a brain scan and make those scenes that were supposed to be show, show scan into something like that? To a certain degree, you might be able to do that. I'm working on that right now. Uh, there's a technical way to actually increase the frame rate of an existing movie by interpolating frames. And in television, it's done all the time because if you buy a, a 2K or 4K TV, it's going to have a, uh, a default setting to 120 or 240 frames a second. And a lot of people are kind of outraged by that because it makes a tele it makes a movie look like a television show. And, they and the direct directors do not like that, which is a, a really legitimate complaint. And so they want to figure out how to shut that thing off. And it's very hard to find the menu on your TV set to shut it, to shut it off and get back to a cinema look. But anyway, there's that. That's interpolation, but it's interpolation of a television screen on a television screen. But when you enlarge the size of the screen to where it's, it's a much larger portion of your field of view, more frames per second is much better because your persistence of vision can connect the frames together. So interpolation actually works on a big screen where it doesn't work on a small screen. Very few people know this. I'm one of the only guys out pushing that frontier and figuring it out. So we've been actually taking 24 frame per second movies and interpolating them up to higher frame rates. And I just did some tests a couple of weeks ago of 2001 A Space Odyssey at 96 frames a second. And suddenly you see stuff you never saw before. And it's so there's that. So, yeah, the answer is it can be done. A few years ago, I heard about scenes from 2001 that were originally in there that were cut out, and then they found them, what, like in a salt mine or something? Correct, yeah. <laughs> Will those ever see the light of day? I don't know. They might be added to some kind of special bonus features on, a, on an 8K Blu-ray release in the near future. I don't know. But that was one of the funny stories. When I was, I was trying to do a documentary – about the making of 2001 for Warner Brothers, because they, they own the MGM library. I was working with this wonderful guy there named George Feltenstein, who was kind of the, the gatekeeper of the archives at Warner Brothers. He knows where everybody is buried. And it was a mystery to him how to find what was missing from 2001. And he or someone else there 
inadvertently one day realized that they'd had this big spreadsheet, columns of data of where stuff was stored. And there was one column off the screen. You had to scroll to the side to reveal this other column, which was all the stuff that had been put into the salt mine in Kansas. They use salt mines for storing film. That's a classic storage thing because the humidity is constant and temperature is constant. And so he found this stuff while I was working on this documentary. And so they started pulling stuff out of the salt mine when I was at the studio working on this documentary and realized that they had found the missing scenes because there's 17 minutes of footage cut out of 2001 when Kubrick shortened it right after the opening. They did a fast track cutting of the movie and they found that stuff. And then they found some visual effects scenes that never made the cut into the movie that were still stored there for some reason. And I think they found the prologue, which was an interesting introduction to the movie before you would see the movie of major scientists like Margaret Mead and other people, Freeman Dyson, people like that, talking about the possibility of life in the universe. And they felt the audience needed to be introduced to that idea before they saw the movie. That never was shown to anybody. And I think that was found in the vault. And then the original, what they call the yellow cyan magenta separations, which is like the technicolor process of red, green, blue. Kubrick had made a backup system for the entire movie before it was released. So those, I think, were found as out of storage. So it's possible to go back and restore 2001 to even better than its original form by using separations, digitally scanning them, merging them, aligning them, and making a new negative that would be better than the original negative. We could do that digitally now. So maybe that'll happen, maybe not. I don't know. Whatever happened with your documentary? Uh, They canceled it. They decided that uh, for somebody, something happened at the studio or with the Kubrick family. I don't know what it was that they were trying to keep this mystery of Stanley Kubrick alive. And they didn't want Doug Trumbull going in there and taking credit for anything. Something like that. I don't know what it was, but the whole thing was terminated after I spent a lot of money developing the project and doing a, a sizzle reel for it that they loved. And then they canceled it. I never, it was a total mystery to me. Well, wasn't that some of the controversy when the movie came out, that it was special visual effects, Stanley Kubrick, and, you know, you and the other guys are just like, you know, footnote down below the paragraph, like you have to scroll off the screen, as it were, to even see that you worked on it? No, it wasn't that bad. Our names are up there pretty pretty big, but there was this kind of semi-scandalous moment that was happening on my last days on the picture, because I was there, I was running the animation department, so we were shooting the titles the end credits for the movie. And one of the title cards was blank. And no, none of us knew, well, why is it blank? What's going to go there? We don't know what it is. But by that time, I was running out of gas and I left. I got a plane back to LA and moved on with my life. I was finished with 2001. I didn't know that someone was going to go in and photograph this title card that said special photographic effects designed and directed by Stanley Kubrick. And he had gone through all this stuff with the DGA and the director's guild and, um, the Academy to try to get approval to do that because the, the troubling thing at the time was because of Academy rules, they would not allow more than three people to be nominated for visual effects. But there were four of us, one additional person, because there were four of us who did all the major stuff on the movie. And so instead of solving that problem and getting the Academy to, or begging the Academy to add one person to that category for this special event, he could, took it for himself. So that was a, a bone of contention between me and Stanley for many years. We finally kind of made up over it. And I didn't see that Academy Award until I went to his funeral. 
I was there when Stanley was buried. You can you can see that story written up in uh, this movie called Space Odyssey, The Making of a Masterpiece by Michael Benson. It's a really good book about the making of the movie. Uh, yeah, I listened to the audio version of that. That was fantastic. Yeah, so there's that. Did they contact you about doing anything for 2010 when that came out? Yes, they did at the time. I went to some meetings at MGM, and I couldn't quite figure out what they wanted from me. But it wasn't any, it wasn't really anything. I was just set dressing. The guy that was directing the movie didn't want any help from anybody else, and Arthur Clarke was there. And I'm not sure he was happy about the whole script or anything. But I never liked 2010. I didn't like what it looked like. I didn't like what it did. Uh, it just didn't. The director, who will remain nameless, didn't understand what Stanley Kubrick had done, and didn't get anywhere close to what that was, and just did a normal melodramatic action movie. This is the one of the big mysteries of cinema for me is that I think 2001 stands alone 50 years later as a unique departure from cinema conventions. And it's a very highly respected movie for mysterious reasons. Well, normally I wrap things up and I ask people what they're working on, but you've told me a lot of the things that you're working <laughs> on, and it sounds fantastic. I mean, just the presentation of Hamlet alone is something that sounds absolutely fascinating. And that's doesn't, you know, that, that that's, one fraction of what you're working on these days. Yeah, I'm working on a lot of a lot of things simultaneously. It doesn't sound like you're slowing down. No, not at all. Got a movie in the pipeline that's going to have some stuff about Nikola Tesla. It's going to be really interesting. And then there's another one in the pipeline that's going to have a lot of stuff about Alexander Graham Bell. Because I really admire these great inventors because they go through the same crap I have to go through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, I, I relate to the story. So that's stuff. And then I've got my own movies that I want to make. Thank you so much, Mr. Trumbull. I really appreciate this. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, I enjoy this. Up next, we're going to hear from actress Louise Fletcher. I'm very curious how you got approached to be in the role for Brainstorm. You know, I think they just asked me outright. That was uh, MGM. Well, it was interesting because I think with Exorcist 2... They originally wanted Christopher Walken, and then you end up working with Christopher Walken in Brainstorm. Who thought he would never work again after Brainstorm, because he was so worried about the Natalie thing, and that it was, you know, he was concerned. Well, how did you approach your character? Because you were kind of the wise guy, cigarette smoking. I mean, my God, you did so much smoking in that role. <coughs> yeah, well... I did smoke in real life, so it didn't um, bother me that much, although it's always difficult to smoke on screen. Yeah, I was a big smoker, so it was something I knew how to do. <laughs> That's what I laugh about it now, although it's a very serious matter, that I should list it as one of my skills. I remember that uh, I took this class at Warner Brothers where... They taught you screen skills, how to kiss, how to get in and out of a car, how to smoke <laughs> on screen. It was funny. That was the tail end of that studio system. Well, what was it like working with Cliff Robertson and Christopher Walken? Because you worked with those two pretty much in almost all of the scenes that you were in. What was great about that part was that she was so anti that she was so uh, on her own doing her own research and 
answering to no one but herself or wanting to answer to no one but herself. It was kind of, I was kind of in a cocoon of my own. I could just go about my business and pretend they were all not there, except I depended on Chris Walken's character a lot. I was just kind of marching ahead to my own drummer. I remember having fun. I remember it was some of it was fun just because Natalie had such a wonderful sense of humor, kind of dark sense of humor. She would make cracks. You know, she was great at the the smart-ass crack, one-liners, one-liners. I don't remember Doug giving me much direction. Yeah, he seemed more like a technical director than a actor's director, I would think. Yeah, he let us loose. Once in a while, he would give a very significant direction out of the blue, and you'd say, oh, God, he really is watching, or he really is... <laughs> He knows what's going on, or he knows what he wants. He was surprising sometimes. It was altogether pretty much fun. You know, we were in uh, the Outer Banks, North Carolina. We were in that golf resort. What was that called? We stayed in a golf resort in North Carolina. Old-fashioned big hotel and that sort of thing. Did you have to do many reshoots on that one? No. That was the myth, the myth that the movie wasn't finished. There was just a part of a scene that she hadn't finished. I think MGM didn't want to finish the movie. I think they wanted their money back, and they were asking Lloyd to have taken out the policy on the film. And they said that they couldn't finish the film because she hadn't finished and then uh, we were all asked to give a deposition individually and what was our understanding of how much of them been shot and what did they have left. And was it our opinion that you could, that the movie was finished except for the special effects? That was a disappointment that the movie was finished. However, they did finish it. I can't, I think he, he just edited the scene and, and and didn't reshoot that part or didn't try to shoot that part of the scene. And then they did the special effects, but MGM didn't pay enough. They were disenchanted at that point, and they didn't invest enough in the special effects. The movie would have done better had the special effects been better, or they had been allowed to invest in the special effects what they had originally planned. Had you ever been through a situation like that before where you had to give a deposition on a film? No, never. I know that you've probably had scenes cut in the past, but the one real revelation for me over the last few years was being able to see you in Once Upon a Time in America. It was I was so shocked when they restored that film, and there you were. Yeah, well, it was just too long. For them, you know, it was an easy scene to cut because it wasn't pivotal. I mean, there was no information in that scene that made that movie go forward. I loved doing that. It was so much fun. I mean, it was so interesting to me to work with him because he was truly... I never worked with a director who was so specific about what he wanted. 
In other words, it was choreographed. He wanted my foot to hit a certain step on a certain word. It was intense. He had his his vision in his head, that specifically. I had some small parts, but I, I, I didn't have a part that was actually totally cut out. <laughs> and they were apologetic. They were... They were nice. They called and said, we're so sorry, but we have to. And then, the uh, I, I think the story is it was his children who redid it. Yeah, well, they got in touch and said, we're redoing it, and I had to give permission to something. Well, that was nice. I don't imagine the residuals on something like that are going to pay for your mortgage. <laughs> No, I don't think so. Residuals, you know, just don't mean a lot. They do to some people. <laughs> Every time you were on screen, it was just electrifying for me. When you were in uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, you were so fantastic as Kai Wen. I loved doing it. I loved doing it because it was the most professional Endeavor. I mean, everybody, every department was was better than the one before, really. Even though there were very long hours, which I thought they should have somehow arranged that better, because people were overworked. But they were amazing, that crew, that whole crew, what would you call it? The whole Endeavor was just top-notch. I think it was a it was a fun job. Loved my character. You know, she was bigger than life itself, and um, I loved playing that kind of power-seeking, ruthless person. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. So full of herself, like an evangelical, you know, with that beatific look on your face. And yet, <laughs> anyway, it was fun. Yeah, you play villains so well. I still get lots of fan mail about that. It was kind of amazing that there's still these Trekkies out there. Yeah. Well, Miss Fletcher, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate this. Well, you're very welcome. Up next, we are going to hear from screenwriter Bruce Joel Rubin. As far as I know, you are a fellow Detroiter. I am. Mumford High School, if that is registers for you. I went there, and then I went to Wayne State for two years. And then I finally made my way to New York, which is where I always felt I was supposed to have been born. But it wasn't. And I fell in love with New York City and felt I was truly at home. I'm surprised I ever left. But, I, but, the, but the leaving of it was, prop, was very important for me. Moving my way slowly to California and ultimately to Los Angeles and Hollywood, which supported a career that I wouldn't have had otherwise, I think. What was your early career like? I had a very strange early career. I mean, getting out of college, it was a film editor uh, at uh, NBC Evening News with uh, Huntley and Brinkley. And then I left that for a lot of different reasons. I hitchhiked around the world for about a year and a half. And when I came back, I worked as a film editor, a sound editor, I worked on movies that that got made, interestingly, in various roles. One of them was called Hi, Mom, with Brian De, Brian De Palma directed, and Bob De Niro was in, and Jennifer Salt. And 
And I and I did a movie with also with Brian and a guy named Bob Fiore called Dionysus in '69, which was a documentary of a very uh, important, I think, uh, play off off Broadway in New York. And then I gravitated strangely to um, the Whitney Museum, where I became first of all a projectionist, and then ultimately the uh, curator of film at the in the. In the uh, the Whitney's New American Filmmaker series, and and I had an extraordinarily wonderful time there. I was I worked with David Beinstock, who was the curator and a dear friend, and we began writing together. He passed away, and I took over. Probably in some way should have stayed, but I realized I wanted to make movies more than show people's movies. So in the end, I made a very long, slow journey across country to Hollywood, where I found the soil that I was meant to grow in. What were some of those early uh, screenplays or writing projects like? I tried writing. The first one really was uh, was a film called Quasar. And it was a film with David Beinstock, the curator. And it was a really good movie, probably would still make a good movie, uh, about a, a, an astronomer who discovers rather directly the a, a quasar, which he ultimately begins to realize is the Big Bang itself. And it has a profound effect on him, life-changing, mind-altering effect, and throws him into a futuristic awareness that is pretty potent and would have been a great movie. And I, and I had uh, Ingo Preminger uh, wanting to produce it at one point. But unfortunately, as it was the case for many of my early scripts, it didn't go forward. Uh, I know we were going to make this. We were going to make it at uh, Warner Brothers. Um, uh, the the people who were involved, uh, whose names I'm forgetting at the moment, uh, ultimately came back to me many years later to do another movie called uh, Deep Impact, which I did with with Spielberg. Uh, David Brown, I think, was the, one of the guys' names. And uh, I'm sorry, not remembering the others. But you can fill that in. You can do any research you want. It was a really good idea for a movie. And after that, I was working at the Whitney and decided because I wanted to be a screenplay writer, I would try this thing of writing a script at night, every night, one scene. And I had just had a little baby boy, my wife and I, and she worked out a deal with me whereby I would write at night for however long it took me to write a scene, which meant she often had to do the dishes and put Joshua to bed. And I kept writing, and in three months, I had created a movie called The George Dunlap Tape, which you may know is the original name of Brainstorm. And it was created completely by my wife's willingness to give me that space. And it's something I've talked about a lot with a lot of writers, because people always say they don't have time to write. And what I really realized was, if I write one scene a night, it could take half an hour. It could take four hours, depending upon the nature of the scene. But if you really are, st- you stick with it, 10 weeks to th- two, three months, you'll have something. You'll have a completed work. And that was how I got my first movie script that could actually, that actually was produced, made, and written. Who is George Dunlap? Where did you get the name from? The last name comes from a woman named Barbara Dunlap, who was the girlfriend of the guy, Barry Kaplan, who gave me my first and at that time only uh, dose of loss of LSD. 
And I, that was a, that is a big part of my story. And her being around at that moment was very important. She was living in our apartment. I really thought she was wonderful. She had a little boy named Alex. When I was trying to come up with a character's name, her name popped into my head. And it was a male, so I named Ope. And, well, one of the people who found me the day after my LSD trip, a long story, but who was very helpful to me was a guy named George Subkoff. So I married those two names. So George Subkoff and Barbara Dunlap became George Dunlap, which did not survive into the script, as you as you know, but into the movie. But it was in the script for a long time. A lot of your films or, or screenplays deal with science fiction. I'm curious how much of a sci-fi fan you were when you were growing up. Not an aficionado, but, but, but I love sci-fi. I loved uh, Twilight Zone, all the sci-fi movies that came out at the time, you know, Flash Gordon and all those films. But, you know, I go back a long way, probably much longer than your audience. And the films that were available at that time were kind of very low-rent sci-fi. But if they stimulated me, I was very excited. My son was four when the movie Star Wars came out, and I, I think I was more excited about it even than he, and it's become a feature of his whole life. But the idea of seeing something like uh, an early sci-fi movie turned into something as beautiful and spectacular and totally well-visualized as that was made me understand that that was my arena. I, I love speculative fiction. I love the idea of a world that's not bound by the day-to-day experience that most of us have. That's not totally true at this point, but it was a big part of who I was. And uh, and the the experience, the LSD experience, which was pretty profound, opened me up to other realities. So science fiction would become part of that fantasy, maybe being another part, or altered reality, which had not yet become a real genre, was something I was very uh, intrigued by. Does the LSD experience play right into the George Dunlap tape? It plays into everything I've ever written. This roommate of mine, Barry Kaplan, who I knew from Detroit before I moved to uh, New York. It was, we were roommates in New York. And his um, one of his good friends at the time was Timothy Leary. And Timothy Leary was experimenting outside of the university setting with LSD and friends. And Barry was blown away by his experience and very encouraging of me to try it. And I was not really an experimenter, really, but, you know, I would read articles about um, uh, Cary Grant and others in Life magazine doing LSD. It didn't have an onus around it. And I was kind of intrigued by what it would be. I don't think I was in any way prepared. But Barry did give me a book that I he said I should read before I took it called The Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is a, a, a book that comes out of certain traditions of, of Tibetan uh, teaching. And uh, and I did read it, and I was sort of curious about it, intrigued by it. I didn't know why exactly I was reading it um, in relationship to LSD, but, but, I, but I did read it. And then uh, he gave me a tablet to carry around with me waiting for the right day, you know, like, like a condom in your, in, your, in your wallet, you know, if you get lucky. But the day didn't come until finally one day I just said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take this LSD. And strangely enough, that very day, a man named Michael Hollingshead, who uh, uh, was a friend of Tim Leary's and also a conduit to um, Hoffman over at Sandoz Laboratories in Switzerland, had given him a bottle to bring to Tim to experiment with up in Millbrook, New York. And, and he did not want to leave it 
he didn't want to walk around the streets of New York with it. He wanted to put it somewhere. So he asked if he could put it in my refrigerator. And Barry said, sure. So that night, the night I was planning to take the LSD, uh, I did. I took this 65 millimeter, milligram pill, which is very big, and nothing happened. Just nothing. And Barry said, well, you know, we have a, a jar of pure lysergic acid in the refrigerator. Truly pure, the kind you can never get again. And uh, he said, let me give you a drop. And he got an eyedropper, and he went to give me a tiny drop of it. And, uh, and the whole eyedropper, by mistake, went down my throat. Thousands of thousands of, of micrograms. And uh, there was nothing I could do. I mean, it was just nothing. It, was, it had happened. And then this journey began. And, uh, you know, because we only have a short time to talk, I'll be brief. I'll just say it lasted somewhere between three and four billion years, as long as, as far as I can tell. I wasn't able to measure it precisely. But it was very long until it became timeless itself. And it was terrifying on many levels, very hellish at times, very... Um, totally beyond anything I'd ever known or experienced in my life. And then I was kind of disassembled on every level. The only thing that I've ever seen that mirrors the feel of it or the look of it is the Hieronymus Bosch, Bosch painting called, uh, I believe it's called um, Heaven and Hell. I don't remember what it's called. I just went to see it just last month at the uh, Prado Museum in, in Madrid. It is really an intense beyond belief experience. And by the time it was over, there was literally kind of nothing of me left. There was just pure empty space, as far as I can describe it. And then something happened, like I felt like I had been impregnated, like I heard something plop into the middle of nothingness. And the next thing I knew, I was divided in half, and then in quarters, and eighths, and sixteenths, and just kept dividing. And then strange things would happen, like part of my hand and a wall would appear, and then an elbow and my foot, and these things started like a puzzle, all being recreated. And then I came back into this room where all this started, and I was like beyond shocked to be back, because I had been so many millennials and eons away from it. And and I was roaring with laughter, but I don't know why. And then I asked, I think out loud, why am I back? And this very deep interior voice said to tell people what you saw. And that has become my marching orders from that moment, which is 52 years ago, to now. And all I've done with every film I've ever written, I, I teach a class in, in meditation, which is a kind of a a kind of a non-drugged version of how you, to get to some of that same space, really. Uh, and I've done that for 50 years after as a practitioner and someone who hitchhiked around the world looking for a teacher of how to do it and found that teacher, interestingly, four blocks from where I left in New York City. But I had to go around the world to connect with that teacher. And so I was a student. He passed away, and I became a teacher. And that's something I've been doing for decades. And... Uh, and, and that LSD experience has never been very far away from my core of who I am. And it's in every one of my movies in one way or another. Movies I've done for children like The Last Mimsy or Stuart Little. Uh, movies for adults like uh, you know, Ghost and uh, Jacob's Ladder and, of course, Brainstorm and uh, Deep Impact, uh, Time Traveler's Wife. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, whole bunch of films and a lot that never got made. <laughs> but films that, I, that were written, all trying to speak to these same sort of ideas, but with the understanding that what took place was so big 
that a movie would be one sentence in a paragraph if I had a career of trying to describe elements of the vastness of that experience. I'm not trying to turn people on to LSD, by the way. I just, I benefited from the purity of it. I think I was ready for whatever it had to do. It was very initiatory in a way into a world that I have to say most people on the planet don't visit. But I do believe in the end, that's kind of why we're here to find out what it has to say. It's quite profound. Where were you living when you wrote the George Dunlap tape? Was that still in New York or had you moved out to California by that time? I was living in an apartment on Greenwich Street in New York, Greenwich and 12th, with my wife and my little boy, Joshua. And um, I was working at the Whitney and uh, we bought this amazing loft. I have to say it was really spectacular. Um, And uh, (laughs) in those days, it was $5,000 to buy the loft and our upkeep every month was $88 a month. I, I sort of regret that I didn't keep it, but... But it was really, it was really lovely. Um, the long part of the story is that my my, my teacher passed away, and uh, to continue my studies, I decided to move with my wife and my son to uh, Indiana, where the another teacher was teaching the same work, and uh, and I'd, it was kind of a I, you know quixotic kind of thing. I don't know that I probably should have done it. On the other hand, everything has moved so perfectly for me on so many levels that even though that was kind of giving up a pretty solid career. I've had a history of giving up careers and not suffering for that. So what happens with the screenplay after you're done with it? Do you have an agent that can shop it around already? At that point in time, uh, no. When I finished uh, the George Dunlap tape, I wasn't sure who to show it to, really. I, didn't, I, I really didn't have much of an access, which is a really big frustration for most writers. I mean, how do you get anyone to look at it? There were no contests in those days, which right now are probably the best access to the agent community. Um, but I, I didn't have anyone. But I had this friend, Joel Friedman, who really uh, loved the script and thought he could get it made. I, I don't know exactly why he thought he could, but I, I, I had nowhere else to turn, and I trusted Joel. And uh, we started to get it, send it around, but there wasn't a lot of interest immediately. And uh, he had a friend who was teaching screenwriting at NYU, who I was, who I also knew, and who you probably have talked to or know about is Phil Messina. And, and he wanted to know how I would feel if, if Phil would, could write another draft of the script. And I, I was such a neophyte. I'd never, other than um, Quasar, I hadn't written that many movies, and, and, and Quasar hadn't gotten made, so uh, I just um, I just told Joel and Phil, try it, see what happens. And I I loved what Phil did. I mean, I thought he did a beautiful draft of it, and uh, was very was very excited in truth that I thought he had elevated the material on some on some real level. Suddenly, we started to have some interest. Uh, I don't know how he got it to Doug Trumbull, but Doug really wanted to do it. And I had a, there was a meeting with me and Joel and Doug at in Joel's offices at Cinnamon Productions in New York. And uh, the only thing I asked of Doug was that he please keep the brackets in the film, the opening and the closing of the film, which were really pretty much the core of the LSD ideas going into the script. And I don't know how much of those you are aware of, but 
He said, yes, I signed the contract and he cut them out immediately. And I was so betrayed by that. It was so painful because it was really the heart of the movie and it had everything to do with what the movie was about for me. And the, the basic idea of that original script was that we see uh, a huge bank of machines seemingly underground and the camera traveling over hundreds of acres of miles even of machinery with these kind of screens, pretty much the technology of the time. And we move into one of the screens and there's some flickering going on and all of a sudden something occurs that looks a little bit like an embryo. And we look at it and we watch a fetus form and then we watch it born. And then we see this life starting to happen from the inside out through the eyes of the fetus. And we're watching this thing and it starts to flicker and fast forward in strange ways. And suddenly we are in the, in the movie. At the end of the movie, we start to realize that this thing we're watching is starting to flicker and break up again in strange ways. And we don't know why. And we finally start to understand that there is a machine playing a tape labeled George Dunlap. And we are watching, in a way, the creation of the George Dunlap tape, which is the brainstorm machine in the final film. But this tape is trying to find him because it's looking for its creator as though looking for God because it knows that it's coming to an end. It's losing its power. It's losing its energy. And it wants to revive itself. And it's looking for the man who gave it birth and finds him. And it, But at the very end of the movie, we pull out of, we, I forget what happens with George. I think he's playing the tape and he dies. And we pull out of his tape and we realize that the, the machine uh, is playing not just his tape, but the tape of all the people, and that there are no people left. There is only tapes playing, and there's a machine that is playing all of our lives, and that's all that's there. Really interesting idea, and I had wished that it was still there, and Doug has in some ways said to me in recent years that he's sorry that he took it out. For me, it's the possibility as an idea of, re, of returning to that movie, to that idea, and at some point doing a sequel to the George Dunlap tape or Brainstorm, because I think it still has viability, and I'm a better writer now than I was when I was writing that all 50 years ago. I don't know if I will do it. I don't know if I, if I care enough to do it, but uh, it's an interesting concept, and I've even spoken to Warner Brothers about it, and there's some interest in that, so it's not impossible that there will be a sequel to Brainstorm. But at this moment in time, it's too early to tell you that. Was the whole idea of the person who is dying, I mean, it sounds like George Dunlap was dying as we're watching that, but was the whole idea of someone recording those final moments, that almost life after death moment, was that in all of the screenplays? Yes, it was It was central to the story. The whole idea that in the, in the original version, um, the, the cohort, I forget her name, who works with Michael uh, Brace, uh, Lillian, I guess, was her name. She was, the, she was his mother-in-law. But in the, Phil's version, she becomes the uh, cohort at the, at the lab. But one way or the other, both of them played their, their – they put the tape recording on the helmet, and they recorded their deaths. That's the reason I wanted to make that movie, because 
the revelation of what happens when you play that tape, that you do not die, that life goes on in a way, the LSD trip, that life goes on into something much bigger and much greater, and that there is this remarkable journey ahead for all of us, and that it has heaven and hell aspect, and it has beauty in it, and it has wonder in it, and all of those things, which to me is real, not not a fabrication, or, or even a fantasy. I think this is this is what lies ahead. And not only does it lie ahead, I think it's embedded in the very structure of our current lives every day. But but we don't, we're not geared to see it, or we don't sit quietly enough to let it announce itself, which is why I meditate and try to encourage people to do the same thing, because it's in stillness that this thing starts to appear and reveal itself. But if you're distracted all day long, you don't you have no clue to what this is about. But that was the reason I wrote Brainstorming. And I wanted to show a movie about what happens. And then I had the conceit of having it be all of it, a tape that takes place after humanity is gone. How long did it take for you to go from that initial draft to actually sitting in a theater and seeing Brainstorm? <laughs> Years. And it was fraught with drama and, and difficulty. And Doug decided to do all these movies before before he did Brainstorm, which kind of kind of surprised me. And but it made it, it gave him a greater uh, visibility and more power to get the movie made. It was a long a long haul. By that time, I had moved to DeKalb, Illinois, where my wife got a job as a professor <coughs> at Northern Illinois University, and I even ended up teaching public speaking there for a while because I couldn't get any other work. We had another little child, a little boy named Ari. And we were living there, and the film finally got the green light, and they shot it. And I, uh, I borrowed money, got on a plane, went to L.A., and watched my first movie being made at MGM. And it was like the thrill of a lifetime. And, and Natalie Wood, I had once met her when I was a kid. I was, take, I was a photographer for my high school newspaper, and she and uh, her husband, Robert, um, were doing an interview for something. And I got to go down and be the photographer with my little – tiny little Kodak camera, but, but it was really, I was excited that she was in my movie and it was no longer exactly my movie because even Phil had been replaced now by Robert Stitzel who came in and changed the script, I guess, according to Doug Trumbull's directives, I, it, it didn't get better in my mind. It kind of went strangely sideways in some ways. And I didn't think it had, didn't have cohere the way I wanted it to. And the day I got there, they were shooting one of the scenes in the lab, and I realized that Chris Walken was throwing out all my all not my lines, but their fill lines, but they came from my story, and he was changing. I was going, no, no, you can't do, you can't let go of those lines. They're the they're crucial to the story, and yet Doug didn't seem to mind. I was mildly devastated, but on the other hand, I was being welcome to Hollywood. This is welcome being a screenwriter. And so I stood there watching it be changed and going, I, I, I have no idea how this is going to work. I, did, I really couldn't figure it out. Um, so it was, it was a bit painful. It's the reason they usually don't let writers on the set because these things happen all the time and the directors don't have time to deal with a writer being upset about uh, something being changed. So I, I was only on the set for a few days up to just before the day before Thanksgiving of the year they were shooting and uh, was thrilled to see it, thrilled to meet the actors, go out to lunch, you know, all that kind of stuff is kind of like 
mind bending for a neophyte. Even though I was in my 40s already, I was like, wow, I've got a movie here. Just looking at the sets was incredible, and they were great sets. You, you saw the helmets in that picture that I sent you the other day, that video. I had never seen that before. They were beautifully designed. Anyway, I, I, to, to make a long story short, I went home on, just before Thanksgiving, and two days later got the phone call that Natalie had, had died. And I didn't know what to make of it. I, I'd had so much... I don't want to make this about me because I was very devastated that Natalie died. But, but I had so many obstacles in my career getting anything to go forward, one thing after another. And this was like, of course, this is what would happen for me. I would not have – this would not get done. And, and I didn't know what to do. And I was getting calls from all over the world about Natalie Wood and what did I think had happened and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't know. I, I was, you know, living in DeKalb, Illinois. I didn't know how to talk about any of that. But um, I didn't know that the movie would get done. And, of course, the story is, and you probably know it, that Doug very heroically locked himself supposedly in the vault with a negative and said, I'm not coming out of here. And I can finish this movie. The studio was trying to abandon it because they wanted the insurance money. But he persuaded Lloyds of London that he could finish it for less money than paying off the the. the that, you know, what he'd have to pay if the film was canceled, what they'd have to pay. And so they gave him the money to finish it. And I ended up with a T-shirt that said, Brainstorm, a Lloyd's of London production. And in a way, it truly was that. It was amazing that it got finished. Then it opened in, in 1982, I guess. Uh, and again, I didn't have enough money to go out, <laughs> really to go out to the to the premiere, but I borrowed money and my wife and I flew out and nobody had money in those days. And the, the, the producer didn't have enough money to get us out there. And so what we ended up all together going to the, to the theater. It was playing at the Cinerama Dome and it was opening there. And, and we rented a car and all of us, and there must've been 12 of us. I don't know who we all were at the moment, but 12 of us fit into this car and it arrived in front of the, the, the theater. And we all piled out like the, clowns coming out of a car in the circus, you know, one after another, after another, after another. But I, I watched the film with such awe because it was, I think it was the first time I saw it. I thought it was amazing. I loved it. I thought, I just thought, wow. And my name, I had a, a, a soul card on the screen. I went, that's amazing. And, uh, and I loved that the title sequence was really pure Doug Trumbull and beautiful, uh, mystical almost. And I thought the film worked. I thought it was a very strong film, and I thought it had a really big future ahead of it. But I was I was wrong. <laughs> it it had a very modest little run, but I had had my first moment in Hollywood, and I really felt like, in a way, I had arrived. But the, what the biggest thing that happened to me in that moment was I went to visit my friend Brian De Palma, whose career was much more advanced than than mine. He loved Brainstorm. And he said, you know, Bruce, if you want a career in Hollywood, you have to move here. And I had always been terrified of that because I could imagine moving there and having all these disruptions and no money and no way to get to move forward. But but we, we went back to our house in DeKalb and my wife t- took a picture of the house, printed it out with all these little tear sheets, things on the bottom and said for sale. And she said, we're moving to Hollywood. It was the most courageous thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I was traumatized. But I thought, okay, if my wife's going to be open to this, I'm going to do it. And at the same time, I'd written, while I was in DeKalb, I'd written this movie called Jacob's Ladder. And that seemed to be getting a lot of attention. 
I don't know why or how, but at that point I had an agent, I had a lawyer, and they were getting it seen, and there was a a guy writing an article for a a magazine called American Film, I think, and and the article was the 10 best unproduced screenplays in Hollywood. And he had picked Jacob's Ladder. I didn't even know how he had found it. It turned out it was from a woman named Lindsay Duran, who later became the reason that Ghost got made. But Lindsay had shown it to him and said it was one of the best things she'd ever read. And this guy loved it. And and when I finally got out to Hollywood, Jacob's Ladder was my calling card, not Brainstorm. Brainstorm, and I'll, I'll tell you this because it's a sad thing, but if you have a movie that doesn't make money, you basically have like a child who died. Nobody talks about it. It has no residual value in your life or meaning. It's just a sad point of something you've put away. So I never talked about Brainstorm at all. And so my career all started really with um, the fact that I had written Jacob's Ladder. And that also was very hard to get made and took a long time and might have never gotten made. But Adrian Lyne, somehow the gods brought him into play and he really fell in love with it and, and did. And I had gotten work doing a lot of um, hired, hired-handed hired work in Hollywood, which was good stuff. I did a movie with Wes, Wes Craven. Joe Dante and I did a film together. Uh, Joe Rubin had me working on a film called Sleeping with the Enemy, which I rewrote. Uh, all these things. But the big deal for the career, and I know not part of your story so much, but was that, that I, I had this idea for a movie about a ghost told from the side of the ghost. And I started pitching it around town to no interest whatsoever. I even lost an early agent when I told him I wanted to do a movie about ghosts because he said nobody wants movies about ghosts. And uh, I heard later that he regretted that. But I did have this idea, and I was, through my agent, able to pitch it all over town. And as I was pitching it, some of the people I pitched to came in with ideas of their own that were really smart, and I got to to pitch it better. The story got sharper. And... uh, Finally, about a year or two into pitching this idea, I had a magical week and I went to five different studios and everyone wanted it. The one woman who wanted it the most cried when I just told her the story. And I said, that's who I should go with. And she was a paramount. Her name was Lisa Weinstein. And the vice president there was this woman, Lindsay Duran, who had gotten the script of Jacob's Ladder to the American film article, Steve Rebello. So I... um suddenly was writing a script for a movie studio, a big studio of my own. And it was very exciting. And at almost the same time, Jacob's Ladder found Adrian Lyne. And so for a brief moment, I was very golden in the Hollywood firmament because there was a lot of attention being paid. And for the time that those films got made and came out, it was as good as it gets for anybody in Hollywood, including getting an Oscar for, for ghost and, uh, an opportunity to do kind of whatever I wanted. And that lasted for, for for quite a while. I was I had a very good a very good run. You know, it's a rarity, unfortunately, and to get good runs like that. A ten year career in Hollywood is good and I kind of had thirty years, but uh, I, I had nothing but gratitude for the good fortune that came to me and the and the fact that I got to tell people what I saw in terms of the the LSD directive, and I did all these movies, every one of them, even the kids' ones, all trying to talk to the world about 
the possibility of something more going on in this space than we realize. Did the success of Ghost and Jacob's Ladder, is that what allowed you to write and direct my life? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And God knows if that was the right choice of movies. You know, I, I suddenly had all the doors open. I could have done pretty much anything. But for some reason, that movie spoke to me emotionally. I wanted to tell, I wanted to tell that story. I, I, I had other stories I wanted to tell, but this one seemed to be grabbing me. If, had I known it was going to open the same day as Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, probably would have, you know, thought maybe I should do something else or different. I didn't. I didn't have a really clear sense of what it meant to make Hollywood blockbuster type movies, even though I had made one. I don't. I mean, Ghost was the, it was a massive hit. Um, Jacob's Ladder was not, and my life was kind of a real failure on a lot of on a lot of levels. Not to me, it wasn't. But to you know, in public terms, it was a. It did not make money. It was not well reviewed, and and I always felt kind of bad about it. But about a year after the movie came out, a woman came up to me at a party and said, "I need to talk to you." I said, "Okay," and she said, "I need to tell you a story." She said, "My husband died about a year ago, and at that point, uh, I had my son was four. It was eleven or twelve. I forget exactly, but he was on." able to ever talk to me about his father's passing. And then I discovered about six weeks ago or something that I have terminal cancer. And I could not imagine leaving this world without having this conversation with my son. And I did not know how to create it. Then we went to see your movie, My Life. When we came home from that movie, I sat down on a chair and my son crawled in my lap. And I had the conversation with him that I needed to have for me to leave. And it wouldn't have happened without your film, so thank you. And at that time, I realized I had made that movie for her. And that was enough. Totally, totally enough. Over the years, I've heard that kind of story replicated in many different forms, so I've made that movie for more than her. And then just last month, the New York Times, I, it has a listing of all the movies that, it's, that are being shown on the air. Uh, on the major channels, and 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 for some reason, my life was playing, and they had not liked the movie when it came out, but it had a star next to it, which is a big deal in the New York Times because it means this is what you should watch. And at the very end, it said affecting. It's a complete one hundred degree turnaround from where they had one hundred and eighty, I guess you'd say, from where they had been before. And I went. It takes thirty, forty, thirty years for people things to finally get to where they're supposed to be. I think people now like that movie. I think people are starting to understand that there's a commonality in the movies that I write, and it goes all the way back to Brainstorm. And I think it's a really wonderful beginning for a career. And I'm very proud of Brainstorm. And even though it's not my words exactly because other writers came in, I am proud of where it went and how it evolved. And uh, could it have been more? Yes, could all of my movies have been more? Probably, on some level, other than Ghost, which I think was word for word, kind of how I imagined and hoped it would be. But you learn after a while in Hollywood, it's really interesting. Its primary value is that it completely destroys your ego. And if you have, if you have a Buddhistic Hindu, Hindu sensibility of the, destroying the ego as a freedom, as a liberation, then it's really good for you. 
if you if you find it punishing and terrible, then of course you're going to suffer like mad. But for me, it was like, oh, okay, <laughs> that failure, whatever. You know, you you get you get the whole ride. And for me, it was like very very liberating. I I, I am very grateful for Hollywood and to Hollywood. Everyone, everyone in it for all the stuff that they did and all the complications that I went through. And I have, you know, like every other writer's story upon story of, you know, of, of, of awful experience. On the other hand, uh, it was uh, it was a remarkable ride and everything in me is grateful for it. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I feel the same way. And uh, I feel, Mike, that we are uh, this was meant to be. Next up, screenwriter Frank Messina. Are you the same Philip F. Messina who was behind the film, is it called Skizag? Yes, I am. That's me. There's such a time difference between that and Brainstorm. I'm very curious, how did you get into filmmaking and, and what brought you to that project? Well, I got into filmmaking. I went to NYU uh, when I was 21 years old in 1965. Did three years there. Came out of it with, uh, you know, a pretty good film resume and a student film that won a lot of awards. So I was immediately began working in the business as a very young director, you know. But in, in New York City, in the, in the commercial world, documentaries and industrial films and all that kind of stuff, which is great, you know, it was a great training ground also. In 19... 70, uh, 1970, it was actually late 69, believe it or not, we, my buddy and I were sitting on my stoop on St. Mark's Place. We were, uh, we were, a guy came up, a black guy came up to us on, on the street and tried to sell us drugs. And he was very funny and kind of very, <clears throat> he was a great character, uh, very charismatic, very funny, very charming. And we spoke with him for a whole hour and uh, found out a lot about him. And Joel and I looked at each other and we said, we should make a movie about this guy because he's that good. And in those days, people were doing portrait documentaries, you know. They don't do them that much anymore. But So we, scram- we scrounged up a camera and a, and a nagara and some equipment and lights and stuff. And we went to his apartment the following week on the Lower East Side. And he had a roommate who was into heroin. Now, Wayne was not into heroin. He was into all kinds of drugs, but as a kind of for his own entertainment, you see. And so we started filming. And one of the things that we decided to do uh, was to sort of break the rules of the documentary form, especially when you interview people. We were going to be participants. We weren't going to just be, the, you know, the objective off-screen reporter, we were also two white guys filming a black guy and a Puerto Rican guy, and we wanted it to be very, you know, real and spontaneous. And a third person showed up three hours into the shoot who was a Puerto Rican revolutionary. Yes, at the time, his name was Angel Sanchez. And Wayne, the main black guy, the charismatic black guy, was really a hustler into money. And the other Puerto Rican guy was kind of a docile sort of go-along guy. Anyway, a big political clash developed in the in that night, okay, between Wayne and this guy Angel, and we were kind of you know liberal lefty types, and uh, 
that whole evening was one of the most remarkable evenings of that. First of all, they all shot up with heroin. We filmed it all. We were there talking with them, participating, and then this fight, big fight developed, an argument over Wayne is a, you know, a sellout and Angel's this Puerto Rican rebel, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it, it became a kind of a cross-section of what was happening in, at that period in history, you know. But the important thing is that it was all about drugs because they all shot up. And Wayne made the claim, you know, because he was so, he was really the star of the movie. And, you know, we asked, I remember asking him, you know, how come you don't get hooked? You do heroin. He says, because I don't shoot heroin all the time. I, you know, you know, I, I, I'll do ups, downs, this, that, and the other thing. You know, he's very charismatic, very cocky, and, you know, presents himself, very intelligent, too, by the way. He presented himself as somebody who was above it all. And so we had this most amazing eight-hour shoot. Started at 8 a.m., at 8 p.m., and ended at 8 a.m. We had 21 rolls of 16 millimeter. And it was incredible. And the dailies were just unbelievable. It was a little bit like scared straight. Nobody, you know, yeah, it was very rough and tumble, really rough and tumble. And we had this amazing cross section of people. And immediately people wanted to get involved with us and give us money and help us and so on, which we, which we did. We got a couple of investors. And then while we were cutting, we figured we had a good hour piece. And while we were editing, we needed to just talk to Wayne about something, I don't even remember what it was, and we got in touch with Wayne, and we met him on the street, and he went from a guy who was not hooked to shooting 15 bags of heroin a day, and he was totally strung out, totally strung out with pock marks in his face, and he was, you know, mumbling, and we said to him, Wayne, he was leaving town because the mafia wanted to kill him because he was drug dealing, and... Um, we said, if you let us film you now, we will have the most incredible film, a statement about drugs and the whole 60s and 70s, you know. And he did. And the last 10 minutes is four months later of Wayne Shirley on camera trying to get high, trying to find a hit because all his veins have been destroyed. And he talks about how he bullshitted himself about drugs. And so Skazad became one of the most... Uh, popular anti-drug films of the 1970s. It was, uh, it was seen, it, was, it opened, premiered the Whitney Museum New American Filmmaker Series. And ironically, Bruce Rubin, who was, you know, co-wrote Brainstorm, was one of the curators at the time over there. We were all young, you know, we were young kids. So Skazag was a huge success that I had with my partner, Joel, at a very early age, 26 years old, and we, be, we became our own distributors, too. We were smart enough to know that people didn't know what to do with this movie, but we knew we had something very special. And it, it did open theatrically in New York. It got very, very good reviews. And we basically ran our distribution company for two or three years, where, you know, it was seen in colleges and all over the country and lots of different places. The Marine Corps bought 56 prints at $800 a print, believe it or not. And so... We, we had this interesting success and, um, you know, of a completely independent movie. So I, I kind of got, you know, I got a taste of what the independent scene was, as did my partner, by the way, Joel Friedman, who will also come up and brainstorm. 
So that was a big success. And by that time, I was already, you know, directing and shooting my own industrials and documentaries and so on. But I was also beginning, I was writing too. I was writing scripts. And I always knew I wanted to be, you know, in the narrative form. So I uh, finally wrote a script, a <clears throat> spec script that a, a producer read and liked a lot. And I got my first writing job. And then I transitioned eventually into coming to Hollywood and after Brainstorm got, well, actually before Brainstorm got made, we, I, I was, uh, I came out here and I, you know, I got an agent and I did all that stuff and I was now gun for hire and also a director. And so that started a career that is continuing at essentially to, to today with me in my seventies. So, you know, I, I don't want to go into all the details, but you know, Hollywood is fraught with peril. So, you know, you can work a lot in, in, in all kinds of stuff, but the independent world to me has always been the most exciting part of the business and still is, you know, uh, and I worked on, you know, I've written 26 screenplays. I just finished my last screen, my 26th screenplay, which I'm trying to get produced. So, you know, hello, here I am. <laughs> I directed, produced and directed a documentary feature that opened at the Quad Cinema in New York called Released, which was about uh, four ex-cons who did 70 years in prison between them, and they all transformed themselves into law-abiding citizens. And it's an amazing piece, and it opened in the Quad and got great reviews. The Times, New York Times called it inspirational. So, you know, you know I'm one of those guys. You know, I'm a filmmaker. When did, uh, for your ears only, when did that happen? For your ears only, how do you like? It was really a 10, 15-minute thing about hearing for, that I did with Keenan Wynn. Keenan was deaf, and Keenan and I did a bunch of projects together about the deaf. So while I was, you know, while I was out here, I was also earning money as a, you know, as a director. I directed probably over 85 commercials, you know all during the period when I was younger. And even while I was out here, I'd fly back to New York and occasionally direct, direct a commercial. So I was doing everything, you know, we had to do everything because we had to make money and we had to, you know, keep going. When you even were what professor and, and did workshops and everything for, I've been a professor. I, I, my first teaching job was actually at NYU when I was, I guess about uh, 30 I taught screenwriting. I taught the same course Marty Scorsese taught, taught when he was there. And then I moved out here. And then when Brainstorm uh, opened, and it had, you know, this great controversy because of, you know, the Lloyds of London and all that stuff. It was a big, big media thing, you know. You know, Doug Trumbull was, you know, challenging the studio system. And I, got, I started teaching at USC. I taught a night course about, screenwriting and, and storytelling, you know, my reputation from Brainstorm sort of got me that. And then uh, later on, after I did my feature film called With Friends Like These, that's one of my main credits is in the theatrical world. Well, with friends, after With Friends Like These, I started teaching at USC and I taught there for 14 years. I taught uh, a couple of, couple of key courses and I also taught writing at Loyola and currently I'm teaching at the Academy of Art University. So I've been teaching a lot part-time, you know, a half a day to a day a week at the most, so, which is a lot of fun and it keeps you sharp, you know, and I get to know young people. I'm not, you know, I don't feel like I'm living in a bubble as much, you know. So how did you come to be involved with Brainstorm? 
NYU was, you know, a, you know, an important place still is. But back then, uh, one of my classmates was Joel L. Friedman, who became the executive producer of Brainstorm. And Joel was friends with Bruce, Joel Rubin. And Bruce had already established himself to some degree as a very inventive writer, uh, particularly science fiction. And he, he and this other writer had written this movie called Quasar. I'm sure Bruce will tell you about it. What Bruce has and had, he was a genuinely metaphysical guy. For real. He was a real thing, Bruce. He was, he was, he raised his kid and kids in an ashram in the Midwest. He was a renowned yoga teacher. He was very much part of that 60s, you know, counterculture movement towards spirituality and the rest of it. And while I grew up Catholic, I broke from Catholicism. I understood, you know, metaphysics from having grown up Catholic. Bruce wrote this, mo this movie called The George Dunlap Tape, which was the first draft of what became Brainstorm. And Joel read it and optioned it. He loved it. But he knew it needed a rewrite. And I read, I read it, and I said, wow, what an absolutely great concept, which is the, you know, the, essentially the uh, foreshadowing of virtual reality. It was a great concept, and it was, again, it had the metaphysics of Bruce very scary metaphysics, too, by the way. But the script needed work, and the script, Bruce was a, a young writer then, and he was still, you know, learning the craft, and maybe I had a little more experience than he did and so on. I, I was actually involved in a rewrite that kind of established the relationship between the husband and wife, the love story, and the evolution of the two of them and the uh, the issue of the meta of the political issues, you know. Now, a lot of this stuff was already planted in Bruce's script, but it wasn't well-developed yet, you know. So that was my main role, which was to humanize it and make it, structure it better and, and make it cleaner, you know, and simpler. And it was, a, it was you know, it was very challenging and a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience. And the thing that I always tell people about Bruce, which will, I didn't, by the way, I wasn't friends with Bruce. I didn't know Bruce well. I didn't know him at all at NYU, by the way. When he read my version, he said, actually said to me, Phil, thank you. You took it to a place I couldn't take it to. From that moment on, we became friends and we're still very good friends, you know, and he's an amazing human being, Bruce. And then he went on to become a very skilled writer I mean, it's a very, we have a very interesting history because Bruce uh, at one point was going to move back to New York City. He was living in Bloomington, Indiana, in an ashram. His kids were still kids. And he was going to move to the East Coast because his wife was, had a connection there for a job. And, you know, we weren't making money yet. You know, we were still young. And uh, I was starting to make some money. I was getting some development deals. But... And I said to Bruce, what are you going out to New York for? <laughs> I said, get your ass to Hollywood, man. Your ideas are, like, incredible. Eventually, that's what he did. And he wrote, the, he wrote this script called um, oh, shit, Jacob's Ladder. You, I don't know if you're familiar with that. And I read it, and I can tell you, honest to God, I had chills when I read it. It was utterly terrifying, and it, in, a, in, the, in a good way. And... You know, it also had some of the issues of metaphysics that didn't make complete sense, but it was so scary and so brilliant 
that everybody in Hollywood read it. Everybody. It got passed around. That's how good it was. And so Bruce got, finally got a really terrific agent and was getting known with powerful people, you know, and uh, then he, he sold a pitch for Ghost, which he then wrote, you know, many times over. I know that because he had a, you know, he was working with a very, very good studio development person and Ghost won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Careers are odd that way, you know, and uh, then, of course, there was the whole thing with, with Doug and the, and the studio and all that, and there was a chance the movie would never be seen, and on and on and on and on. There's all kinds of shit like that, uh, which, is, which is, by the way, true of almost every movie that gets made. The money's there, it's not there, oh my God, the studio wants to do this, and somebody else wants to do that, and blah, blah, blah. That was my involvement with uh, Brainstorm. So I had, a, I had a very important role in the creation of the movie. So what was the, the George Dunlap taste? What were those like, the original stuff that, that you came to? The original George Dunlap tape had the basic concept of a machine. And if I can remember, it's kind of going back now a long time. Basically, it had the machine, and it had what it could do, and it had the, the, a lot of stuff about being able to see the future somehow. And, but the future, he, he had a future that was very, very bleak and dark with computers take over the world. One of the very, very, he had a very, dark, very elaborate, fabulous, beautifully written most of it, but it, it was, it needed work, you know, it needed work to be boiled down. So it becomes, you know, a, a traditional three act structure about, and that, that was where, you know, I came in and developed that whole relationship between, uh, the husband and wife and made it more of a love story, you know, that evolves and grows and so on. And, and then I was also very important in, in terms of the, uh, the political story that the back, the story where the bad guys want to take over the machine and how, and how they, and how George and, and Natalie, I'll call her Natalie. I can't remember her name anymore. Ruth, George and Ruth, uh, out with them. And, and are able to get their, uh, their science, their technology, out of their hands and make it public domain. That was the concept. You know, then it went through several more evolutions after that. Once Doug Trumbull came in, uh, it went through a bunch. No, I did a, one more rewrite for, for, for Doug. And then the studio guys came in and do what they do, which is they bring other writers in. It was a whole, you know, I went, we went through the whole experience of what it is to, to do a Hollywood movie. And then, ironically, Doug was at Paramount, I believe, at the time. And then they put it in Turnaround, which is, you know, they just, I, in my opinion, they just wanted Doug Trumbull to do the special effects to Star Trek. And they would have given him anything to please him, you see. That's just a theory. I can't, this is, there's no proof of any of this stuff. This is only a theory. But when it went to, I guess it was MGM or wherever it went to, they looked at all the scripts and they went back to my script, my, my, my rewrite. And they built the, the new one on that. But, and I have to be honest with you, Bruce would agree with me. And by the way, Joel became executive producer of Brainstorm. So here we have my buddy who on Skazag became executive producer on Brainstorm. I just spoke to him three hours ago. We're still great friends, you know. But I didn't like what Doug was doing, neither did Bruce. Uh, he was, he took a very excellent piece of science fiction with a moral center that was really great, 
and uh, he turned it into something else. You know, more of he wanted it to be more of an entertainment vehicle for his show scan stuff. So you're hearing the classic writer, the bitching and moaning of a writer. But, you know, it got made, and I share screenplay credit, and Bruce gets story credit. And Doug was a good guy, but he was really not a, a, he's not a narrative storyteller. He was a special effects whiz, you know? You know, if he was in my class, Doug, he would have been bitch slapped because he, 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 he's a very serious movie, right? About science fiction, about this and that. And then he does this comedy thing, you know, where the computers and the machinery is breaking all the things and guys are now slipping and falling like it's a Chaplin movie. I mean, it's, it, it's just, it's just it's so indicative of somebody who's kind of learning on the job, you know, but that kind of thing is just, you know, it's just part of the, part of the game. And you learn, we learn from it. I mean, Bruce and I actually, at one point when we saw the movie and we saw the ending, how, you know, the ending made no sense in 10 minutes, we said, we should tell Doug, tell Doug, he should, he should do this, this, and this in the last scene. And, you know, it'll really make it work better. And we did, you know, but Doug wasn't going to change anything. I know, you knew that, you know, so that's a way, that's a, also you can't just change something, you know, at that point, you're talking about, you know, a million dollars worth of uh, anything, you know, breakdown negatives. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's uneven. And, and the, uh, the great thing about this art form is that um, the unevenness almost always arises out of story elements that are inappropriate and or or aren't properly um orchestrated when you look at a movie like the godfather and you and you and you just observe that last scene michael lies to his wife for the first time and says he didn't kill the brother-in-law you know and then she goes in the room and he, I mean, he goes in the room and she watches as everybody kisses his hands godfather godfather and then the last shot is the guy comes to the door and he shuts the door in her face. It's amazing. I mean, that's what it is. That's what storytelling is, you know. The original concept of Brainstorm, and Bruce had an, a, a version of this, which, which also kind of I took and made more relevant, which was you're sitting in a movie theater and the screen suddenly starts coming alive, right? And it becomes very abstract. And well, actually, Doug used that when where you're coming out of this, superficial thing and guy has the machine on it but what happened what 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 the movie what the original movie concept was the whole movie was the vision of george dunlap you were watching his mind unroll unravel unfold so you're seeing the entire movie through this main character and actually the the, the way it got transposed when i came in was we the first scene takes place in washington dc and Ruth Dunlap is in a, in a limo, in a VIP limo, and is rushed into the Academy, the Academy of Sciences to meet with the head of the Academy of Sciences. And the whole thing is, why is she there? What's going on? And she, she opens up this metal case, and there's the machine. And, and she says, you have, to listen, you have to play this, okay, essentially. And then it's the same thing, only now we're seeing it through the eyes of the National Academy of Sciences head guy, and the whole story would unfold. And the, the most crucial thing that was changed, and I understand why, we all understand why, I understand all of this stuff, you know. At the end, when George Dunlap, uh, George and Ruth are 
faking the uh, love story and their brains are being you know, transposed. They're trying to, she, he's basically depositing his brain into his wife's brain so that the, so that they can't, they can't um, um, corral all of his data, all of his knowledge, you know? Uh, I, I think that's still in the, in the, in the movie. And what happens then is she's in a phone booth and she's listening and he's, he's depositing his brain through the machine into her and running away from the bad guys. And, and the final scene is the, uh, the, um, he gets, he's in a phone booth and she's in another phone booth and the last bit of data is being deposited into her mind. And one of the guys comes up and shoots, shoots him. And, you know, the bullet sort of transfers comes in through and it hits him and she experiences this too. Right. And he dies, he dies only this time she sees the vision of where he goes, which is heavenly. You see? So there's a very different concept, but a great concept. So he sacrifices himself for the good of humanity so that this technology won't get in the wrong hands. And the current theme is he wants to take an acid trip. Well, that's what it is. A man says, oh, I go to see if his life is your best. All right, yeah, come on, give me a break, will you? So anyway, <laughs> but you know what? Here's the good news. It got made in 1983. It's an amazing experience. Uh, it really helped me with my career tremendously. I was able to, basically, I had the credit, and I, I had the agents now, and I was, you know, I could getting hired, and as was Bruce. So in that sense, it was, you know, very uh, wonderful. Uh, but it was also, you know, the typical journey that we go through with uh, movie making, especially studio movie making. And, you know, one of the problems was it was, it was really ahead of its time. It was a story that was really ahead of its time. It needed a kind of Ridley Scott brain to be able to make it make sense. You know, you know the genius of Ridley Scott is that he could take a science fiction piece like Alien, brilliantly realized, and it also has meaning, too. And at the end, you, have, you feel the meaning of it, you know, how a human being and has somehow survived and beaten this horrific piece of DNA in nature. And I, I often refer to, to Blade Runner, what he did with Blade Runner, too, you know, how he was how he was able to, although Blade Runner in many respects is not as sad, certainly not as satisfying as Alien, but it's a classic because it, he created this magnificent world, you know, and uh, was able to pull through this interesting story about love, you know. So these, these are not easy things to pull off, you know, and that's why, uh, you know, particularly in science fiction. In the version that came out, it was kind of a... I don't want to say love triangle because there was a fourth person involved there, but there was this whole idea of you know the the Christopher Walken character had broken up with the Natalie Wood character, and then the Louise Fletcher character was in there as this new person. Was Louise Fletcher was her character in your version at all? Oh sure, oh yeah, that was very important character, and the scene where um, George plays the tape when she dies. That was always one of the key scenes that Bruce envisioned, and it was chilling. But in, in Bruce's script, let me see if I get, I may not have this right anymore because it's a long time ago. What he sees is a nightmare, nightmare of the future. With his, with his machine 
essentially being used to, to basically control everybody's minds throughout, you know, and then the computers take over. And now that the people are eradicated eventually, it's just computers. I mean, it was a very, you know, extensive, extensive post-apocalyptic science vision that went on a million years. It's, you know, goes into a million years into the future. And that, you know, was wildly, wildly, but, you know, it didn't make, it, the script needed to, so anyway, the, the, those ideas were juxtaposed a little bit and the, uh, but it was always that George was going to die at the end, that he can't survive. He has to sacrifice himself, you know, for the good of everybody. And that was the, and you know, in those days, you know, post, uh, post Star Wars and post, uh, you know, George Lucas and post Spielberg, you know, all that in the seventies, you couldn't have a tragedy anymore. You know that you couldn't have a, a downer. It was not going to be possible. Cause, and they went, oh, oh it's a downer. The hero gets Meanwhile, you know, I'd say, well, well, go look at Lawrence of Arabia, schmuck. <laughs> go, go, go look at them. Hey, schmuck, go look at Lawrence of Arabia. Hey, schmuck, go look at um, West Side Story, right? One of the great box office bonanzas of all time, as was Lawrence of Arabia. But you know what happens? It, it's the human thing. You can't, you can't dissuade them. Of uh, of these belief systems easily, so that's that that insti- that instigated, a, in my opinion, a long, long series of we we're not going to tell no downers, man. We don't want downers, man. Kids won't go see downers, you know. And lo and behold, guess which mo- which movie finally busted that rule completely? Titanic. Titanic, maybe the biggest box office gross of all time. And as a teacher, I would ask my, you know, a lot of people, because if you were hip, you weren't supposed to like Titanic, you know, but bullshit, everybody in the world loved it. And the, and the kids went back two and three times. And I would talk to my students about that. And I would say, especially to the girls, you know, you went, how many times you go two or three times? And I say, and then, you know, I would analyze it. Basically, I would have done a lot of thinking about this. And I said, it's the first time they've ever seen a movie where somebody sacrifices themselves for the love of somebody else. And that's the brilliance of Titanic. Jack dies for Rose and the world is transformed. When I say that to these kids and the girls, they all go, yeah, 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 right. You're right. Cause it, I am right. I know what I'm talking You know, I'm a dramatist. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, so nowadays, uh, uh, you can do it more often. I, well, Avatar, well, Avatar is not, but, you know, um, Titanic is a genuine tragedy. And um, anyway, onward. So what are you working on now? Well, I just finished uh, a, a passion project that I've been wanting to do since I'm a very young man. I was 14 years old, grew up in Brooklyn. I was, the, uh, I was a, a rabid Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Uh, they, they were the most popular team in baseball. They were legendary. They ended racism in sports. They were the great bums. And they won the World Series in 1955. They played the Yankees six times in the World Series in 10 years. Six pennant wins. They, they won the World Series in 1955. And in 1957, they moved to Los Angeles. And... 
as a kid that was such a, not just me, by the way, it was such a profound experience to see how, you know, marketing and, uh, you know, economic forces could, could literally betray an entire city. So I wrote a movie. I almost sold this pitch years and years ago. It's called The Day the Dodgers Left Brooklyn. And I, I just finished it, and I'm sending it out right now and getting very, very good responses. And hopefully I'll get it made someday. We'll see. Here we have screenwriter Robert Stitzel. From what I understand, you grew up in Illinois? Yeah, I grew up in Rockland, Illinois. And how did you decide that you wanted to be a writer? As an undergraduate, I got a degree in psychology, which I didn't want to continue with. At that time, I didn't know what to do. And a friend asked me, well, what do you want to do? And it was an interesting question at a time that I wasn't holding on to anything. I didn't have any expectations. I didn't have any desires, nothing. It was a open question. And what popped in my mind was to be an actor. And in that same instant, I realized that I'm too inhibited to be an actor. So I'll work on the other side of the camera. I'll make movies. That's what started it. And I started making short films. I was going to Colorado State University. And I, was make, I started making short films and won some awards. Then went to USC Cinema uh, on their master's program. And that gave me a great education in understanding film and filmmaking. And at that time, I still wanted to be a, a, a director to make films. And I started a business where I was making short films of famous short stories that were read in high schools, like Jack London's To Build a Fire and James Thurber, The Night the Ghost Got In. And I was making these short films for a, a subsidiary of CBS. But yet I couldn't generate enough income to live off of these things. Most of the money I got went into the films. Then I had a friend who had an idea of remaking the Little Rascals show for Saturday morning cartoons. And I started writing for NBC uh, Saturday morning cartoons. Our show didn't get on the air, but NBC liked our writing. So I, was, I did Captain KB and Jan in the Jungle and Fantastic Four, along with some live action, uh, a series called Thunder, which was a live action Saturday morning show for kids. Then I did an after-school special, and the point was, I go back to the old Eddie Sutton story where he kept robbing banks and getting uh, caught, and a cop once asked him, Eddie, why, why keep robbing these banks? Because you're just going to end up in jail. He said, well, this is where the money is. And I, I could have had all the aspirations to be a director, but no one was paying me to direct, but people started paying me to write. And that's how I became a writer. And I didn't want to do Saturday morning TV. I did a movie uh, when uh, I think it was NBC, might have been CBS. I forgot what network, but I did a, a movie for them that had uh, Harry Gould and Tyne Daly and a bunch of people in it. That was a big success. And uh, then I wrote a screenplay called Icarus. Uh, about a retiring fighter pilot stealing an F-15 and not giving it back, and they have to get him out of the air. And that particular script, feature-length script, opened up every door in Hollywood for me and gave me about a 30-year career writing. 
that one with Harry Gould, um, Better Late Than Never, I think it was called. Yeah, that was it. You're credited along uh, John Carpenter, and then Richard Krenner was the director. What a, a strange mix of people. Yeah, well, John, I knew him in film school. He was, a, I think, a year ahead of me in film school. I remember him going around looking for a guy to play Jason. <laughs> and he actually, you know, was, was checking me out the plane, but I wasn't big enough. And uh, he hired, or he got a guy, guy I forget, uh, Myers, I think was the fast, I, I forget his name, uh, the guy that he finally used in Halloween. And we would go in and look at dailies of the shooting, and we thought how cool it was that he got Jamie uh, Curtis to, she was kind of a star at that time. We thought, wow, you know, how cool is that? And uh, little did we know the, the lesson that that film became. You said that Icarus opened up a lot of doors for you. Was it just a really hot screenplay at the time? Yeah, it actually was written up as one of the famous unproduced screenplays. It was first optioned by MGM, and they had Paul Newman, Gene Hackman, and William Holden to star in it. But we needed Jets, and uh, at that time, Jets, the F-15, were the frontline fighter jets, and there's a whole big story around that. We had the Secretary of the Air Force, and uh, everyone wanted to make the film except the head of the Tactical Air Command, a guy named John Creech. And uh, he he couldn't put a kibosh on it, but they found out that he wasn't going to be uh, appropriate or he wasn't going to be supportive of the project. So that languished, and, oh, geez, I guess about 14 years later, Paramount bought the script. And this time, it was going to star Bruce Willis. Uh, was going to be the the pilot, takes the F-15. And Walter Hill was going to be the director, but Walter Hill and Willis had a falling out over Last Man Standing, which didn't do well. And they had to pay or play with uh, Walter Hill, so it took almost a year to get rid of him. And in the subsequent time, Sherry Lansing was a... Uh, executive at Paramount, and she wanted Fisk, the character that took the plane, to live. And I did battle after battle after battle saying, look, if if Fisk lives at the end, it wouldn't be the Icarus story anymore. Subsequently, uh, they hired other writers, John Scarrett Young, I know was one, and I forget whoever else, and they really destroyed the script. Uh, in the process, and I was very disheartened, but while they were doing the rewrites, 9-11 happened, and one of the big set pieces was that Fisk took this jet plane down Wilshire Boulevard in an afterburner effect, blowing out all the windows of all the buildings. Paramount got cold feet, needless to say, because of 9-11, and the project just, you know, collapsed uh, at Paramount who own it. But oddly enough, about two weeks ago, a financier, I forget his name. This is through a a producer. I know, uh, wanted to maybe rekindle it. So that screenplay, it was originally written in 1978. And how many years ago, 30 years ago is still generating interest. So you get an idea, the impact of that screenplay had on people. So how did you get involved with brainstorm? This was after MGM had optioned Icarus, so I was a known writer there. I had written another screenplay for him called Night Blooming Jasmine, and they liked that a lot. 
they had Brainstorm was originally written by Bruce Earl Rubin, which was a very different screenplay than what I did. And they couldn't get anyone, any actors commit to it. Uh, and they had a bunch of writers on that project after Joel Rubin. So they brought me on to rewrite it and hopefully get actors. What I wrote, they got actors, you know, Walken and Natalie Wood and all those people. What was the state of the script when you first got involved with it? They had a device, you know, that would read, measure people's thoughts and play them back. I think that was always integral to it. I never read... Uh, Bruce Rubin's screenplay. Uh, I read the Messina screenplay, which was overly talky and more philosophical and not much happened. So I was doing the rewrites and there's a whole long story with all this because with Trumbull, we were trying to create a visceral experience of people in watching this movie. Uh, and part of what he wanted to do was to do another, a, a different projection way of projecting the film at 40 frames per second and then having a subliminal sound effect track that would accompany the film that would give people almost a subconscious experience of the film itself. And MGM got a little worried about that as to lawsuits and this type of thing. So that was kind of dropped. But it was a film to me. Uh, they had a tremendous amount of potential, and I never realized it. And part of me, this was my first big break in Hollywood. We had a lot of story conferences uh, with the actors on the MGM lot with Walken and Wood and Louise Fletcher and Cliff Robertson. They were all there. Uh, and I still remember this clearly. We were all sitting around the round table uh, on the MGM lot, I think it was studio for, uh, soundstage 14 where Esther William movies were made. And above us was about a hundred foot skylight that Esther Williams would dive off of. So it was, it was kind of weird to be sitting there all this. And, you know, I mean, everyone at, there at the table had won an Oscar and, uh, there I was, I was 31 years old at that time and felt a little bit intimidated to say the least. And, Trumbull came in, sat down at the head of the table, and announced to everyone to forget that we have a screenplay, that he wanted to hear all their ideas. And I'm sitting there, hell, I've been working for six months on the screenplay, and obviously wrote something that attracted all them. Suddenly, I felt very out of place. And the one thing I learned is that an actor, a star, was interested in one thing and one thing only, and that, that is to have to see how many pages they are in, in the final script or in the movie. Uh, if they had three pages, they wanted six. They had six, they wanted 20. So everyone was sharpening their knives on the screenplay, and it was a mess. I was uh, very discouraged, and I remember Cliff Robertson coming up to me. Obviously, you could see my face. And coming up to me after one of the meetings, and said, hey, uh, he said, hey, don't worry, kid. It's a good script. Subsequently, the producer, a guy named John Foreman, a real kind of class act brought in a reader who just sat down with everyone and read the script aloud to everyone at the table. I think they kind of got that. Hey, this script sounds pretty good and uh, kind of shut him up. So I had two weeks to do the rewrites uh, and they had a stenographer there. I got a 
notes, a book of notes. That I'm not kidding. It was almost 400 pages long. And it would take me two weeks just to read all the notes. <laughs> you know? But, you know, through the discussions, I, I had a good idea of what needed to be done. So I had an office there and I was, you know, banging out the pages. And Trumbull had come to me and said, you know, at the end of each day to give him the production uh, office the pages because they're doing production boards as to, you know, locations and who, what actors are in what scenes and all that kind of stuff. So I was doing that. I was giving them the pages. And uh, I think it was the last day, and I really, really felt great about the screenplay. It, 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 it was a very unique screenplay. It had elements in it that we'd never seen before. And, all. you know, I, I felt very good about it when Trumbull walked in my office and laid down the screenplay that he had written. And what turned out is that he was taking those pages that I'd given to the production board and rewrote them. And he was not a writer. And I don't think he was much of a director either. But uh, I looked at the screenplay and the dialogue just sucked. And, you know, I was, I was devastated, you know, just devastated. And I found out later that a lot of the problems with them not getting the cast is that Trouble kept rewriting everyone. And uh, what he came up with just, you know, no actor, wanted, there was no subtext or anything. It was all on-the-nose kind of writing. And, uh, you know, actors didn't want to do it. So I told John Foreman, he says, you know, someone's got to take charge here. You know, you, you, you're going to go off and film this? And uh, I remember him getting up from his desk and saying, you're absolutely right. And with that, he walks right into the wall opposite of his desk because the guy was so loaded on quaaludes, he didn't know what was up or down. And uh, supposedly he flew off that weekend to North Carolina with my script with the idea that this is what we're going to shoot. And he flew out on a Saturday, and by Sunday night, he was back home. My script pretty much sat in a box, and Trumbull did a version of my script and his script. Uh, and that's what we see today in Brainstorm, which has this moment. But it, uh, it wasn't the script I had envisioned. Well, what was yours like? One of the big differences is that the hero, Bryce, the Walken character orchestrated his own death because the Lillian death tape didn't go to the other side. It was a teaser. It'd take you almost to what the other side was, but not all the way. And he was now obsessed about getting to that other side. So he indirectly orchestrated his own death with all what was going on from the film uh, to record his own death and leave it to his son. And the, uh, uh, studio, they, 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 uh, that's a little too weird for me, but emotionally it, it resonated and it really worked. It had been a very unique film, but, uh, the, yeah, not that brainstorm isn't unique. It is, it still plays today, but I think there, there could have been a lot more around it that didn't get materialized. Yeah. The pace of the current film as it is, always seems a little strange to me and I'm I'm not exactly sure why because I know that at the beginning of a movie you shouldn't necessarily know everything that's going to happen before the end of the movie but when when Louise Fletcher her character dies it feels like the movie just takes this weird right turn and it becomes something else that it wasn't going to be from the beginning does that make sense 
Well, a little bit, because you got to remember a lot of the important scenes that the film led to uh, weren't shot because Natalie Wood was dead. And uh, that was a whole huge issue, too, because MGM uh, was under a lot of financial strain and they wanted to bail on the movie and collect the insurance. Trumbull had a huge Hollywood fight, which pretty much ruined him in Hollywood to get the film released and, and convinced Lloyds of London that it could be. There were some holes that shouldn't be there uh, emotionally anyhow that, that never got shot. And that, that might had some of what, what you're thinking. Well, because the other part of the film feels like it's you know, scientists versus the military, which is a familiar thing. And I've seen that before. And that seems to hold it together. That was a big issue because in all labs across the United States, the military has first dibs on everything and anything. And that the, if anything has a military application, they, they get a hold of it. And, uh, I didn't like it. You know, I, I was, I was trying to write something a little bit counter to that, you know, being a good liberal, I, I was, making military kind of bad guys. Well, which feels like it, that's the way that it should be. Yeah, well, that's what I thought. And uh, it came off kind of hokey. It didn't have the substance and the depth that it needed, you know, particularly to, to explore some of that. Trumbull was not a director, and I think a large part of that was because of the Walken Wood affair that they were having on the set. And it was disruptive. I would hear stories where the AD would come to the trailer and say, you know, Mr. Walken, you're one on the set. And he'd be in there screwing Natalie. And they'd be both laughing. Walken would say, well, tell Dougie we'll be out when you're out. You know, I don't think Walken treated the movie particularly seriously. He felt like he was, you know, the new Brando. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think, you know, did kind of a crappy job. And, uh, didn't take the film that serious. Do you remember what were some of those holes that were left when Natalie Wood passed away? There were two versions I wrote. One was the suicide version, and then another version, which is more what they shot, that there wasn't the suicide version. And in that, there was far more depth, emotional depth, between Natalie Wood and Walken as to their characters and what they're embarking on, what they were doing and a deeper emotional resonance than what the film portrayed, which gives it far more depth. And they couldn't do that. And what walk or what Trumbull did was to take the Hale character and used him. But those scenes, as far as, you know, going to the other side, those scenes were all supposed to be played out between Wood and Walker. And, uh, it, it, you know, you lost it. <laughs> it wasn't there. Uh, and, and that became a greater culmination of their relationship, you know, a, a, a very poignant ending. And the ending right now, is, I would not say is particularly poignant. Yeah, it feels like it ends a little abruptly. So the story I heard is that they both got drunk and shot that. And it, uh, it kind of looks like they're both drunk and shot it. And again, there, there wasn't, I do think that their affair really kind of superseded the movie you know when i look back at it and it ultimately led to wood's death indirectly i mean it's 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 sad as to what happened and trumbull was not a strong enough of a director to withstand that onslaught particularly walken i guess 
when when he came on on the set, I mean, I I felt that something weird was going to happen, and uh, it did. Yeah, what was your understanding as far as what went down? What's written is that there seemed to be argument about their roles, or so. I, I, it, it had nothing to do about the affair, or that Wagner was suspicious of an affair between them, or, or something to that effect, which was kind of nonsense because. I knew about the affair. Everyone connected with the movie knew about the affair. I'm sure Wagner knew about it. Exactly what, what went on on that boat would be anyone's guess. But the official version that we have so far, I know is not accurate. Something else went on there uh, than what's been written so far. You were talking about the Hal character, and he's the one who ends up kind of flipping out with that. Is it like a porn loop that he's watching over and over yeah, again? Yeah, right. Yeah, it's a porn loop. Which, you know, unfortunately, in the movie itself, it seemed like he just got so sexually aroused. But the idea is that it took him to like another dimension, another reality, that the whole idea is that we're so married to physical reality and that there is such a thing as non-physical reality that's just as strong as physical reality. And anyone that questions that, you say, well, have you ever had a lucid dream? which is a non-physical state, a non-reality, yet at the time, that lucid dream seems very, very real. And that's, that's what he got. It, it's, it wasn't the porn tape itself, but it was that sense of another reality. Uh, and that didn't come across. You know, it just it didn't come across. I think in the script I wrote, you get a better sense of that, but uh, not, not in the final version. So did working on Brainstorm, did that do anything for you? No, it, the only thing it did for me is made me very depressed. You know, I, I, maybe I wanted to get in another business. I remember, I think it was my 32nd birthday, and I went down to the lot to see a rough cut of it. It was a black and white rough cut. And I was so, I, I remember feeling just terrible that, that this is it. Then after the screening, the film sure looked better, you know, with color and music and everything kind of put in. I didn't feel quite as bad, but no, that that film did not, you know, necessarily help me in my career at all. No. How were you able to recover from that, or, or did you still have the heat from like Icarus? Well, yeah, I mean, I think people knew I was a good writer. They were certainly willing to hire me, and they did. You know, I I, I worked from studio to studio to studio to studio from really 1979 till about 1997, which is a long run. And uh, I was a working writer for over 20 years. When did you decide to get into teaching? You know, you get to an age, a a place in your career that you want to give back what you've learned. That's what the whole teaching thing was about, to hopefully inspire other kids and it was really a great experience for me because for a lot of the students I had, writing a screenplay to them seemed like, you know, performing neurosurgery or something. It was, it was like they were scared of doing this type of work. It, it seemed to way outside their, their boundaries. And I devised the way of presenting how to write in a very accessible way. And what was so exciting for me is to have students come after the after the, the course had ended 
and saying, oh, Mr. Stitzel, you know, we, you, you know, I never thought I could ever do this. And I did it. I said, yeah, you sure did. And, and give them possibilities in their own life. You know, a few of them wrote some stuff and, and didn't necessarily have careers, but, you know, a couple of my students made some money at writing. But more importantly, like I said, it, it knocked down some of their barriers as to what they could do or what they thought they could do. And they did it. Then, you know, that was a good experience. I'm still in contact with some of those guys, you know, some of my students. We, we, we had good relationships and it was, it was, it was fun doing it. I taught for almost six years and it, it got kind of redundant for me. So I quit. I, I, I stopped teaching. And then what did you do after that? I rode my motorcycle around a lot. Uh, I'm still riding, by the way. I, it, it, it's never ended. I'm working on a project now with George Page Productions about extreme skiing, extreme athletes. I've never stopped riding. I, I think once you, you write, but I'm fortunate in that you know, I made some money, and whether I sell something or not isn't going to change my lifestyle. So I can, I can write from my own heart, you know, just writing stuff I want to write. And uh, I've done that. And also I've done some ghost writing for people and, you know, things like that. So I, I still write, but I don't have to worry about paying the mortgage anymore. So I ride my motorcycle. I, I raced bicycles for many years and uh, had a lot of other activities that I enjoyed doing. Yeah, I didn't figure that you had quit writing because it feels like most writers I talk to, once a writer, always a writer. I, believe me, there are times I, you know, I've, I've written something. I said, you know, this is the last damn thing I'm ever going to write. Screw it. I'm just, you know, because it's a business that for every yes, and, and this is if you're good, if you're in the loop, for every yes, you'll get about 10 no's. You know, it works on you after a while. It really does. Because I really believe that my best work never got produced. And probably never will. And you live with that, you know, and that's, that's tough. You know, a a novelist or a painter, uh, you can read the novel or hang the painting. There it is. But a screenplay has no literary value and it sits in a desk drawer someplace. That's it. A lot of times I felt Hollywood is like, as a writer, you're building these elaborate popsicle stick designs. They have someone come by and just, you know, flip their hand and knock all the six down and say, yeah, well, try something else. Try another thing. There isn't particular note to having achieved a good screenplay. As a writer, if the screenplay turns into a movie that really works, who gets the note is the director, of course. And I've thought a lot about that where, you know, I, I hate that possessatory credit, you know, filmed by, you know, some director. Well, that's just bullshit, you know, because uh, that director had a huge group of people supporting him or her to do that, and in particular the writer. I don't know of any director, and I don't care how good they are, could you just go out with a camera and film something and have it be accepted? I don't think so. I've had the, the, the displeasure of working with a lot of asshole directors. Mr. Stitzel, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great talking with you. No problem. It's always, particularly at this point in my career, you know, fun to talk about it. You begin to start putting things in perspective, which at the time that you're doing it, you're doing it. You're not putting anything in perspective, but, but now I feel like I, I can do that. You know, and I, I actually appreciate the opportunity 
to talk about it. And last but not least, we have author Joseph Madry, whose book on Brainstorm should be available, hopefully, right around the time this comes out in January or February of 2020. So how did you decide that you were going to write a book about Brainstorm? Well, this really kind of snuck in the back door because I I met Bruce Rubin. I actually reached out to him because I'm a big fan of Jacob's Ladder initially. And we talked about that. We ended up becoming friends. He taught, at the time, meditation classes every week uh, here in Los Angeles. So I actually started going and doing meditation classes with him. Then we started having lunch every month. We just became uh, really good friends. And at, at some point, he told me that he had a closet in his house that was basically filled with boxes of all the paperwork related to all of his films, just boxes and boxes of old scripts and, and, and magazine articles and just everything, all of the research for all the different projects he's done and you know, tucked away with toys from his kid's childhood and vacuum cleaner parts and stuff like that. And so, you know, as a geek, I got really excited because this was this, there's this treasure trove of, of insights that I suddenly have access to. And he's, and he's got this amazing body of work. He had written about Jacob's Ladder. There's a Jacob's Ladder book. When the script was published by Applause, he kind of summed up the process from his point of view of the making of that film. So I said, all right, there doesn't need to be a book on Jacob's Ladder, which might have been where I was inclined to go first. So I started really thinking about Brainstorm and his early scripts for Brainstorm. Uh, his script, his initial script was called uh, the George Dunlap tape. And it went back to um, I think 1975 was his first draft. So well before the film got made in it. And, and it was the kernel of the idea that is what makes Brainstorm Storm so special is there, but it, it really was a wildly different story with different characters, different goals, a different kind of philosophy on life even. I got really fascinated by the idea of trying to track the development of that project and, and figure out how it got from the idea that was in his head uh, in the early 70s uh, to the film that got made in, in 1983. And it went through a, a lot of different heads. I mean, just a lot of different minds, people reconfiguring it, the, the basic idea, um, according to their own interests. So I was studying this development process. And that's all of the studies, uh, all of the books I've written are about is really creative process. And this was a unique opportunity to dig down into the nitty gritty in, in a way that normally you can't, the, the materials just aren't there. So was your first step to help him clean out the closet? Bruce and his wife just moved to New York fairly recently. And they had uh, this big house that they'd been in in Los Angeles since 1986. And they were going through and and clearing everything out. And Bruce, uh, when he told me about the closet, he said, listen, I think all this stuff is probably going in the dumpster. And if, you know, if he hadn't told me, maybe it would have, but I wasn't going to let that happen. Uh, So actually, all of the materials... I went through, I spent about a month going through and cataloging everything. I went, went through uh, every single box and organized things and made a list. And then he ended up donating all of that material to the Academy Library. So all, all of that material has now been uh, preserved. Uh, I don't think it's accessible at the library yet, but it will be, uh, I, I assume, in the coming months. So is your first step to go through the material and access it? Or is it to say to a publisher, hey, I want to write this book? 
The practical thing to do is probably always to uh, work out a deal with a publisher in advance. I never do that because writing books is not is not my day job. Uh, it doesn't tend to, to to pay the pay any of the bills really. Uh, it's kind of a black hole financially. I don't pitch things to a publisher because I'm really afraid of committing to a deadline because I don't know what my my day job workload is going to be. So I just dug in, uh, and I think. I believe that I actually sat with Bruce and we talked through all of his films and we were working toward a biography of him before I even thought about doing this brainstorm book. There is a version of the of the biography that's completely first person account, his words, but sort of stitched together and put in order by me. So that does exist. But at some point, the, the focus kind of shifted to brainstorm. And I, I had a friend who had written a book for the Constellations uh, series for Auteur, a UK publisher, which also does the the Devil's Advocate series. And uh, he had done a book on Close Encounters, and I really loved the book. I loved the format. Um, I love both of the series, Constellations and Devil's Advocate. So I so I pitched Brainstorm for the Constellations series, and, and that's uh, where it's going to end up. So I know the lion's share of the work is going through all of these different scripts, but other than Bruce Joel Rubin, how easy is it to get your hands on the other drafts? Well, Bruce had a lot of those drafts. I, I actually, the Academy had some, the Academy library had some drafts in, in the course of, of, of Bruce moving and going through everything. I actually found all the drafts that they had and more. I did not find them in order, which would have been convenient. I mean, I, I read them all out of order, and then I ha- then you have to go. And some of them weren't dated, so it really took some work. And of course, then interviewing the different writers to to try to sort everything out. Again, the thing that was fascinating to me was figuring out that uh, that that process of development. And so, looking at every single stage along the way, every every stage that I could pinpoint and that there was documentation for, and then and then trying to fill in the gaps. Well, why was this change made here? So then it was just about interviewing people and saying, why did it go from this to this? Um, and, and charting that. And it, and it, like I said, it was an arduous process because I was finding things literally up until I delivered the manuscript to the publisher, I was still finding things, which is, which was maddening. That was just the the way that it worked out. And, and some of the pieces I found at the end were sort of these, these missing link pieces that really gave me a lot of insight into uh, like little story changes that Doug Trumbull made to the project really late in the game. And I had already interviewed Doug. So I was, you know, it was, it was, it was tricky kind of, uh, stitching this all, all together. Uh, but it was, but it's fascinating. I, like I said, I just, I, I love that. I love the, I love being able to study the development process. And so it was a real opportunity. I picture you at home with like the big conspiracy wall with the red threads and all that, just kind of tracing <laughs> through like where these characters came in and when did this particular thing happen? Is that at all close to what's going on in your den right now? It, it would be, except that I'm actually in terms of, of my living and working space, I'm kind of a minimalist. <laughs> um, so I don't want the physical stuff there. I don't even, uh, for as much as I read and, uh, and, and for different projects, as many different projects as I'm juggling in my head in it, at any given time, I don't amass a lot of books and materials. Um, I, I try to keep things digitally as much as I can. So what I have is, is just these giant text files you know, of, of all the quotes. And the night, and the thing that, that that allows me to do is 
um, is to put quotes from all these different documents, different interviews, different people, and to just make it all chronological. And so usually that's sort of how I will outline a book is by doing just creating a giant chronology of the research and then kind of going through that document. Once I think I've got all the research, uh, w- which wasn't the case with Brainstorm, but I, <laughs> what I thought when I thought I had all the research, you just go through it and look for the threads um, and, and try to figure out what's missing or wh- what questions you still have, um, in, you know, and, and just sort of put the puzzle together. From your description of the George Dunlap tape, it seems like there's, a, let's say, a strong echo of some of the ideas that were in that that ended up being in Brainstorm. It wasn't like you would never recognize one thing as the other, but there were a lot of differences. Oh, yeah. And I think that's a product. Well, you, you, uh, my understanding is that you, you're talking to um, all of the different writers on this project, and and I'm sure that in talking to them, you'll you'll get a sense that they're they're all coming from different places. They all sort of had. It's not that there's not any overlap, but they're all they're all really strong storytellers with their own ideas, putting their own stamp on the material, and and brainstorm the finished film to me is just, I mean, it is a brainstorm. It's, it's this, this, this wealth of ideas just crammed into this movie that no movie could contain all of the ideas that these different people wanted to put in. So it's, it's actually to me kind of a, 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 like a schizophrenic uh, film, (laughs) but hugely ambitious. And I find it endlessly fascinating for that reason. Almost every version, every draft of the script that came along, you think, wow, that, that's a film right there. And then, and then the next draft is, is completely different. <laughs> so, um, so at any point, you know, and this is, I guess this is just indicative of Hollywood, you know, it, it, until, until somebody pulls the trigger and puts the money on the table, a thing just stays in development until, and people are just trying to do whatever they think needs to be done to get that cash flow happening but in some ways, it can be a little bit arbitrary, I think, a lot of the times when the trigger gets pulled and what draft happens to be on the table at the time. That's the thing that goes forward. Uh, there, I think there are a bunch of different points where this well, – if you've talked to Bruce, you know that – I mean, he almost made they, – they almost made the first draft of the George Dunlap tape as a, an independent film when he was living um, – I think when he was in Indiana. And, and then there are various stages – uh, along the way, uh, you know, Star Wars coming out and making a lot of money, I think, kind of hel- helped Brainstorm move forward, but but also sort of shifted what type of film it was going to be. Um, you know, there's just so many the, the intricacies of uh, of how a film gets made. It's frankly a miracle that that any great film ever gets made. You know, and I, I think that Brainstorm is sort of a testament to I don't want to say how something can get messed up, but it does, it is to me very much sort of a movie by, by committee. It's not sort of congealed, you know, it's not entirely related to all of the different storytellers that were involved. It's also just very practical production problems. The the biggest and most obvious being the death of Natalie Wood, which has really dwarfed the film itself uh, in terms of legacy. I mean, you know, there's for uh, maybe not for younger generations, but certainly for 
viewers uh, who were aware of the film when it came out and then in the early years of, of home video, Brainstorm was was Natalie Wood's last movie. And that's that was its identity. I don't want to put you on the spot because I know you have put this project to rest a little while ago and now it's just in the publishing phase, which can take a while. But I'm curious if you remember, what are some of the things that actually stayed the same from some of those early drafts up until the version that we see? Bruce's original idea was this was a spiritual idea kind of about empathy about really i think it started with with a question of if you let's say as a married couple because it is about george dunlap and and his wife at least at the beginning of that 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 first draft that's that's the story and george dunlap invents uh, a way to share his innermost thoughts with his spouse and and vice versa. And the question I think for Bruce was, well, if you can do that, uh, would you ever stay married? You know, I mean, could could anybody ever really read somebody else's mind and still love them? And Bruce being the person that he is, the answer was yes. That's just, I mean, that's just a fundamental, his fundamental beliefs answer that question. For him, the answer was yes. It was it was going to be yes. He was writing a story. Uh, you know, of course, you're going to have conflict because there, without conflict, there's no story. But but the answer was going to be uh, yes. And he was just sort of, I think, working his way toward that answer. You know, like when he was writing, I think he was just trying to convince himself that that was the case. And I think that still is in the movie. This sort of the second half of his original idea was that if this invention existed, you wouldn't just be tapping into another person's consciousness, you would be tapping into sort of the Jungian collective unconscious, you you would be getting in touch with every living thing's mind. And and again, it was a matter of philosophy that was just that, you know, it's it was Bruce's belief, sort of put on paper, Bruce is very much a Jungian. And that idea goes through that, that, that idea really morphs. Uh, a lot over the course of the different drafts, and there are hints of it there in in the film. The um, what Doug Trumbull called the memory bubbles, uh, you know, basically that the character sort of slips into this uh, this this field of of um, of memories, and I, I'm, I'm the finished film does not. It sort of hints at this idea of a Jungian collective unconscious, but I, but it, it's not very clear. It's very muddled. Um, I, I find myself, even as I'm, I'm thinking about it, trying sort of having a hard time talking about it, you know, articulating what the distinctions are because you get into these sort of heavy duty, uh, philosophical ideas and, and just frankly, different spiritual beliefs. I mean, I think that, that for all of their, um, uh, similarities and similarity of ambition, I think that, you know, sort of Bruce and Doug, really see the world very differently. And and there's a little bit of kind of a tug of war going on in the finished film there. The one thing that I saw that seemed to run through, if not all of the drafts, a lot of the drafts, was this whole idea of the guy who becomes uh, almost addicted to the uh, sex tape, the, the, the pornography loop. If it's not in the very first draft that Bruce did, it's in the second one. So it is. A, it, I'm pretty sure that is a scene that originated with Bruce. And yeah, I don't think anybody tried to remove that. But the implications of that, I think, changed over the course of the draft. And you sort of end up in the finished film. The 
character who goes through that and basically has kind of a kind of a breakdown. I mean, he, he sort of overdoses on virtual reality porn and and has kind of a mental break. And then when you come back and visit that character later in the movie, uh, he has this really kind of vague line of dialogue that's that's I'm more now I'm 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 more than I was. But it's not really explained what that means. You kind of have to go through the earlier drafts to sort out what the, what that means or what it was supposed to mean. Uh, at least that's that's my perspective. When was the first time you saw Brainstorm? I saw it on video probably when I was in um, high school. I don't know that it made a huge impression on me initially, which is probably what, with, with movies that I really love that I saw early on. I can I can you know tell you the furniture in the room where I saw it. And and I don't have that kind of vivid memory with with Brainstorm. I think because in a way it is sort of a, a muddled film, and it was it was also just honestly way above my head at the time. Bruce sort of jokes that that he's he's always been really really popular among uh, like college age moviegoers. You know, when you're sort of discovering philosophy and 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 really you know especially Jacob's Ladder. That's probably where um, it, it clicked more. You know, I saw it several times, I think, before it really before I became really fascinated. And I never uh, honestly, if I hadn't had the friendship with with Bruce, I don't know that it's a film that I would have thought to write a book about. So which is why I say that it sort of snuck up on me. But now that I have, I, I'm just I'm amazed by everything that is there in the finished film in in sort of vague forms and in and in some cases in really brilliant forms and amazed by everything that ended up on the cutting room floor or didn't even get shot you know every, everything that was that was uh getting worked out in that long gestation process i mean the i i've i've at this point i would definitely say i'm more in love with the all of the different permutations of the story than i am with the finished film which is a strange thing well, it must be an interesting experience now to go back and rewatch it and just have all of those different ideas floating around in your head going, oh, that's where this came from, or oh, that kind of represents something that I read in this draft from, I don't know, 78 or something. Yeah, and I think when I when I delivered the manuscript, uh, literally, I think it was last December, so a year ago, I think I was much much more able to do that. I mean, I should go watch it now, uh, you know, or watch it when the book comes out. And probably I have, I have, I mean, I know that I've already forgotten a lot of the details because there was just so much, you know, there was so much research involved with this one. And, and I might be able to watch it now, having gone through that process and picked up all these, all these little bits that, that would be sort of subtext for the finished film. I might be able to watch it now without overanalyzing it and just and just watch it as a new movie. That, that could actually be pretty interesting. <laughs> well, I know that when the death of Natalie Wood happened, that there was a lot of attention paid to this film. But was there before that? Were there even making of articles that you were able to reference before that? I wish I actually had uh, the big timeline in front of me because I, I know that there were definitely uh, more articles. I think a lot of the, when it was in production, you know, I, I definitely remember there was a Cine Fantastique article uh, when it was in production there in the, in the research triangle in uh, North Carolina. And so there were set visits 
I can't remember how much Doug Trumbull was talking about it before it went into production, but certainly he was talking about ShowScan, which was a big component. And I think he would sort of allude to this project, might have even been alluding to it as the George Dunlap tape early on. That was some a project he wanted to use uh, as as his first ShowScan movie. You know, it, it was it was in development for a long time, so it would it would come up in these kind of uh, oblique ways even before it went into production. And then, you know, once you sign a cast, um, of, of the caliber, uh, that this film had, everybody was paying attention. Um, certainly there were articles in, you know, local newspapers about, uh, about the, the production, uh, all these people coming into, uh, the Raleigh, North Carolina, Raleigh, Durham area. And, uh, and, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was certainly big news there. For you, what were the biggest challenges of writing this book? I think it was just an endurance contest. Like I said, continuing to find things um, and and really wanting to have in-depth conversations with the people who came up with all these brilliant ideas and realized all of these brilliant ideas. Just wanting, just wanting to explore that, and and because I had so much enthusiasm to explore all of that, and wanted to do it right. Uh, I mean, I did want to write, you know, the definitive book on brainstorm. And whenever you, I don't often <laughs> set out to try to do anything that's that's definitive, <laughs> because it's 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 exhausting, and I tend to like to take giant bodies of work. You know, uh, the last time we talked, it was about a. Uh, uh, you know, a 200 page book on the Western genre, which is me trying to take a giant, giant body of work. Uh, I mean, that was six years of just watching Westerns and going to filming locations and reading everything I could find, and then trying to construct a linear narrative um, that really boils down, boils, boils. I mean, and, and this was a different, this was different because I thought going into it, Oh, this will be easy. I'm used to writing, you know, books about hundreds and hundreds of films. This is just one film. I, I really was dumb enough early on to think that it would be easy. Maybe it would have been easier if I hadn't had uh, the kind of access that I had, hadn't made the discoveries that I made. But I, I'm glad it worked out this way. And I just was gonna was gonna stick with it until I I, I felt like there was nowhere left to go. Um, no, no rock left unturned. Uh, frankly, actually, I take all this back because you know what, if somebody wanted to do a deep dive into what the special effects team did and some of the, some of the, some of the things that they created that never saw the light of day, I didn't dig too deep into that because my focus was so much on story and the development of story. So, you know, the, the, like I said, there's always it's ridiculous to try to do something definitive. There's always more. I actually just saw Bruce just sent me a video um, that one of the people who worked on the special effects side had posted on YouTube. It's, you know, behind the scenes and, and all of these photos and talking about things. There's this whole sequence that I'm fascinated with, the heaven and hell sequence that is just barely in the finished film. I mean, it's it's a matter of seconds in the finished film, but apparently they, they created these, these, uh, massive displays and, and, and shot them. Uh, and then they just didn't make it into the movie. And, and again, it's an example of just how there were so many ideas and there were so, so many roads that they could go down, uh, with the subject matter. You know, your whole story is, is an invention 
that makes the impossible possible. Well, that's a that's that's a pretty broad subject. Maybe that's why doing <laughs> this film appealed to me so much because it it kind of was like tackling you know a couple hundred films in one. <laughs> was anybody reticent to talk to you about this? Everybody that I, I you know, like I said, I was I was going after the story, the development of the story. That really was the was the spine of the book for me. Uh, that's what I was really interested in was the was the development of the storytelling. I suspect that if I had come at it from a different angle and said, ah, what I really want to talk about is the death of Natalie Wood, <laughs> I would have gotten very different reactions. There's obviously a certain air of, of scandal that circulates around this this title uh, because of her death and because of this sort of uh, battle that that ensued over whether or not the film was going to get finished or not and whether or not you know, they had the, the material in the can to make the movie, uh, make the exact movie that they would have made had Natalie Wood not died. I mean, you know, that the people weren't, I'm sure, for good reason going to get into all of that. And I didn't want to get into all that. Just that that wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't interested in writing a, a sort of a salacious book about uh, Brainstorm as as Natalie Wood's last movie. I feel like that's been done. And this was I was trying to write a book that was about brainstorm the movie just the movie because it deserves to be known for something other than the that that air of scandal that that uh that that swims around as scandal and tragedy what was the most surprising thing that you found while you're doing your research i didn't know until having conversations you know private conversations with bruce that the film went back as far as it did you know that it had that it had been in process for 10 years. And that's not shocking. I mean, I've been around the entertainment industry enough to know that things can sort of sort of percolate or be an active development for that that kind of time. But it's really it's mind boggling what what a movie has to go what any movie has to go through to get made unless all the stars are aligned and you've got this perfect script and you, you know, the director comes in who wants to make it exactly as it is on the page. Everything is, you know, maybe maybe not surprising, but it's a, but everything is a is a discovery. Um, I'm working on a book now on on uh, The Shining, on Kubrick's The Shining, and uh, as you know, because you've done a very in depth uh, uh, podcast on on that movie. <laughs> Um, there, there's no shortage of rocks to be turned over related to that one. And I, I, but, but I have found some things that, and I've done, I've done my fair share of research too. I have found some things that I don't think anybody else had found or had, had written about, uh, or, or some things that people haven't compared some connections that people haven't made, uh, without even going into all of the, the various, you know, theories about what, what different things, uh, mean or what Kubrick's intentions might have been. You know, I'm trying to stick to if if he if there's not a record of it somewhere that he thought this or had this intention, then, uh, you know, from uh, uh, from Kubrick himself or from people who are working closely with him, I'm not going down the road. So, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to narrow the scope and I'm still finding just an overwhelming amount of information. Um, and, and all of it is, is, uh, like I said, not, not surprising, but it's, it's, a, it's a discovery. So what is your focus your because you could get so out of whack with that movie because it is such a, just, well, the maze perfectly encapsulates that film. I'm trying to chart the development in 
uh, kind of the same way that I did with the, the brainstorm book. I've, I've actually found early drafts, early treatments, some things that are pretty rare, uh, but they do exist. And the book, this is actually only a chapter of a book, which is, uh, which takes me back to, to saying that I love to take on giant subjects. So, so I'm working on um, a book that is about adapting Stephen King, but I, I'm tackling it in a, in a way that nobody else has, because I think there's 11 or 12 books on Stephen King films, and usually they're coffee table books. They're pretty superficial. There's a couple of, of in-depth ones, really smart in-depth studies out there, but, but it's a huge field. And nobody, what people usually do is they compare Stephen King's novels to the finished film. And they sort of casually assume, and anybody who sort of chases the auteur theory does this, but they, they just sort of casually talk about the transition from, from you know, the novel to the finished film as if the director made all these decisions uh, about how to change the story, and then we end up with the film. And that's not reality. <laughs> um, you know, and, and people usually don't try to to go back to interviews and really look at the development process and really look at the timeline and then try to find treatments and scripts and and sort of dig into the nitty-gritty and figure out what that process is and and brain like I said the brainstorm book really taught me that I that I love that I love doing that uh that deep dive which is which is obsessive and I'm sure that some people don't care you know it's too much I get it but I love it and and so I can't now read any anybody talking about the finished film and making any sort of conjectures about what it means or what Kubrick intended without having all this sort of background noise in my head going, well, no, so-and-so says this and this script had that. <laughs> and, you know, so yeah, to live in my head for a day, it's nuts. How many Stephen King movies are you taking on? I started just compiling all of the research, collecting scripts and, and, and anything I could find and just, and, and interviews, especially trying to find interviews with anybody who was, um, was involved in adapting. So I'm, you know, I'm primarily looking at interviews with the producers, the writers and the directors. And I just started cobbling, doing, doing my sort of master document or master documents for everything and, and quickly realized that I was going to go insane, uh, and that it was a multi-volume series. <laughs> So where I'm at now is is really I'm I'm really only thinking about uh, volume one, which is going to be as long as any of my other books, if not longer, and it's just going to be Carrie, Salem's Lot, and The Shining, all adaptations of them. So so you know the, all three of the the Carrie adaptations and both of the Salem's Lot and then uh, both of The Shining, and I'm I'm sort of on the defense uh, on the fence right now about uh, where I want to go with uh, Doctor Sleep because it's um, you know, it's not an adaptation of The Shining and yet adapt, kind of taking a part of The Shining that that Stanley Kubrick did not import into his film of The Shining is what, in a way, defines the last act of Dr. Sleep, even though even though it's not in the Dr. Sleep novel. So it's so, yeah, it's a that's a strange that's a strange hybrid of a movie. That's a whole other conversation. Don't take me down that road because we'll we'll be talking all day. Have you ever seen Carrie the Musical? I I have not. Uh, <laughs> they did a version of it out here um, in L.A. a couple of years ago. So one of the guy the guy who was doing the set design <laughs> for that actually contacted me because I had 
I had done a trip to Stephen King's Maine, basically to Lisbon Falls, um, where he grew up, went to high school. And I had taken all these photographs and stuck them up on my blog as sort of the real location where, where, you know, Carrie would be set. It's set in a fictional town, Chamberlain, but really that's, that's, um, you know, sort of a, a fusion of, uh, of, of Lisbon Falls and, um, and Durham where, uh, where Stephen King, uh, where his, where his house actually was, he went to school in Lisbon Falls and the house was in Durham. But so somebody contacted me and said, you know, we're doing Carrie the musical out here. And, uh, you know, do you have any, any photos that aren't on your blog that we can use as kind of reference? We want to basically create Stephen King's real high school gym for this, uh, this theater production. <laughs> and then we'll invite you to the opening. So, I gave him all my photos, but I never got an invitation to the opening. So that's my sad story. <laughs> so I missed it. I missed it. It sort of, it sort of came and went. Uh, and I, I should have just bought the tickets and gone anyway, but I did. <laughs> I think, I think I might, when they were here, I might've had a, uh, an infant at home and that might've had something to do with it. So, well, I know these things change, but as of our recording, do you know when the brainstorm book is going to be available? Uh, my understanding is that it should be out in uh, either January or February um, from uh, Otour uh, in in the UK, and I assume inter- internationally they they have um, all the international rights, and then the domestic book will come out from uh, Columbia University Press. So I'm I'm hoping to see it uh, in January or February. Fantastic! Is there a good place for people to keep up with you online? I have a uh, sadly neglected blog, uh, which is uh, madri.blogspot.com. Uh, it, it basically, at this point, is uh, is sort of an archive of of uh, a whole lot of different. I mean, you know, if you're interested in the subject matter of any of the books I've written, you can you can jump onto the blog and and do more digging on that on that subject. There, where there's bound to be a lot more material there. Well, Joseph Madry, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Have you ever jacked in? Have you ever wire-tripped? No? A virgin brain. Well, we're going to start you off right. This isn't like TV, only better. This is life. Yeah, it's a piece of somebody's life. Pure and uncut. Straight from the cerebral cortex. You're there. You're doing it. Seeing it. Hearing it. Hearing it. You're feeling it. It's about the stuff that you can't have, right? Like running into a liquor store with a 357 Magnum in your hand, feeling the adrenaline pumping through your veins. I can make it happen. I can get you anything you want. You just have to talk to me. Talk to me. Talk to me. Talk to me. I'm your priest. I'm your shrink. I'm your main connection to the switchboard of souls. I'm the magic man. The Santa Claus of the subconscious. You say it. You even think it. Yeah. Are we beginning to see the possibilities here? You know you want it. All right, we are back and we are talking about Brainstorm. So yeah, as you heard... This project had been kicking around since the early 70s, and it is just amazing that the things that that he wrote about, that that Bruce Joel Rubin wrote about in early 73, that that 
can still, there's so many parts of it that are in the final product. And it's just, yeah, it's amazing that this movie makes any sense at all because it had passed through so many hands and everybody had a different POV when it came to what this movie is going to be like. There's a part of me that wishes we could have just seen all of the separate versions. This, in a way, has enough in common with some other kind of similar films, like even something like Videodrome. So you could have had different stories that I think would have been more successful when you were talking earlier about how it adds the weird kind of empathy machine aspect. Like, I wish that could be a separate movie than the movie about, you know, which is basically the first half of the film up to Lillian's death about how we have this technology and we don't know what it does. Like, they're all fascinating stories, but here they're all just kind of jammed together. David, I know you mentioned James Cameron earlier with the whole idea of Avatar and this immersive technology, and I have a feeling he might have been a fan of Brainstorm because Strange Days, to me, from 1995, feels like a real spiritual sequel, let's call it, to Brainstorm. The whole idea of this machine where you can record memories and then play them back, and you again, you're experiencing more than just the visual. You're experiencing the whole thing, all the feelings that go with it. I mean, it just, it feels like had the brainstorm technology been commodified, like they were talking about in the movie of brainstorm, that it would have very quickly led to some of the same technology that Lenny Nero uses in Strange Days. And they're both flirting with the same overall idea at the bottom of it all, which is that if we have this technology to empathize with others and experiencing, like, you know, walking a mile in their shoes, as, as the old adage goes, you know, then we will come together. In a way, it's a very optimistic vision from both movies, except for Brainstorm. It's, it's more about the fact that it even exists in Strange Days. It already exists and it's treated as like, you know, basically a plot device. It's like they, they never go into, in Strange Days, at least as far as I remember, they never go into like how it came about or, you know, how people deal with this new technology. Strange Days is more like, it's, it's kind of like a film noir murder mystery sort of, but futuristic and sci-fi about, you know, the cops, you know, killing uh, an activist, I believe, and, you know, being caught on a headset by a witness, which will upend the political whatever and people want to stop it and etc rodney king is all over strange days i mean they might as well call the guy rodney king because it is just so similar and then also interestingly enough 1995 movie that this is coming out and it is playing with the idea of the millennium so much which I mean, by 1999, we were having Millennium movies all of the frickin' time, and it was just this whole thing. And it, some of the parts of Strange Days reminded me also of uh, another movie, which is um, uh, Surrogates. And that is somewhat similar, too, where you're inside of the body of a robot, and then the robot is pretty much invincible. And it's this whole idea of the control and who you are and who your avatar is, because it's it's this whole idea of being able to 
you know, see the world through somebody else's eyes and this, uh, you can put on whatever body that you want. But I think more than that, it was just this black activist who's played by, I think, Ving Rames in, uh, surrogates. And then here it's, uh, it's one of our favorite actors in the entire world. Yes, the guy who says, People got AIDS and shit. Glenn Plummer as Jericho One, who is probably one of my favorite characters in the movie Speed. And unfortunately, he isn't in the whole movie. He's just there for like five minutes. You know, I watched Speed for the first time in years with my boyfriend who had never seen it before. Wow. And yeah, and well, I mean, he's a bit younger, but, uh, you know, he had just never seen it. And we watched it. All he knew is it had to do with a bus in L.A., and that's really it. So, so you know, it's interesting watching Speed with those people because, like, the first, you know, 20 minutes and the last, what, 30 minutes or the first 30 minutes, last 30 minutes have nothing to do with the bus. You know, so we're in this building and it, he was just like, aren't they supposed to be on a bus or something? Isn't this, like, Speed? I'm just like, well, just watch. They're in an elevator, okay? He wants to blow up the elevator. He's like, that's not how elevators work. I'm like, no, no, no. Just, just go with it, okay? By the time we get to, the, like, Glenn Plummer in the car, I had forgotten that he was in it. I was just like, Glenn Plummer, I'm like, oh, God, that's awesome. <laughs> Glenn Plummer, I remember this. Like, you know, that whole moment where he's just like, he's like, you know, I'm going to take your car. Like, you know, or no, I'm going to get on that bus. Like, yeah, 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 you get on that bus. Like, <laughs> Get, get on that! If you bus. hurt my car. We're going to have words. Like, why? Why would like like removing the door be the best option for that? Never mind. I'm sorry. Why are we talking about speed? We're talking about brainstorm. We're talking about brainstorm. We're talking That's about strange, strange days. days and strange <laughs> days, which just. Man, it is such a time capsule. I mean, back when Tom Sizemore could be in movies, back when Juliette Lewis was in movies, I sure don't miss her, but I sure miss Angela Bassett, who I wish had had a career as some sort of ass-kicking superheroine, because she's fucking fantastic in that Angela movie. Angela Bassett is amazing, and now she's a big television star. And I have to say, for, for, for Juliette Lewis, let us not forget the most amazing part of Gem and the Holograms, is Juliet Lu- like I just want a supercut of just her in that movie because she is unbelievably funny in that movie. Intentionally so? It's intentional, it's amazing. She is like if you have not seen Gem and the Holograms, it's actually A much better than you were ever led to believe it was and B Juliet Lewis plays the evil record executive and she is a scream. She is literally one of the most amazing, hilarious like supporting roles of any kind of cheesy kind of mainstream movie you've seen in a while as a villain. Like it's absolute, you must see it if for no other reason than Juliette Lewis in that movie. I did not see this episode taking a turn towards Gem and the Holograms. I, Me <laughs> I gotta <neither>. tell you. <laughs> if I had made predictions at the beginning of this episode, <laughs> Exorcist 2 would have been on it. Uh, yeah, Exorcist yeah. 2 definitely would have been yeah, on I it. I knew we were going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I think we even mentioned Brainstorm when we were talking about it, because we were talking about those weird headsets and everything, and they weren't necessarily designed by Natalie Wood, but I love that that's her job in this movie, is like industrial design and getting these headsets down to a really kind of hip look to it, and that she paces them off of his helmet with his recumbent bicycle. <laughs> he looks like such a freaking dork on that he recumbent does. bicycle. <laughs> Do we want to like kind of touch base on the 
ongoing and still current open investigation of Natalie Wood's death because it was it's very difficult to talk about brainstorm without actually talking about this and I think that's probably a bit of the audience uh, of the youngins which are you know younger than me uh, which is a lot of people who might not know the suspicious circumstances of Natalie Wood's death while brainstorm was in production yeah, it's such a sad story. And it to me, it seems kind of insane that you would have a star of that magnitude and her death is still sort of not resolved all these decades later. The very short version of it, because um, she died in November of 1981. She was 43, so not old at all. They were off Catalina, Catalina Island. Island on their yacht. With them, the yacht skipper and actor Christopher Walken with whom Miss Wood had been making a film. Saturday night, they dined ashore, then returned to the yacht. A short time later, Wagner said he discovered his wife missing. Yesterday, her body was found floating in a cove about a mile away. Nearby was the yacht's motorized dinghy, which, according to a family spokesman, Miss Wood frequently took out alone. Coroner's deputies say she apparently died of accidental drowning. Just how, they're not sure. The coroner's office said today that actress Natalie Wood was intoxicated and angry after an argument between her husband and actor Christopher Walken when she stormed off a yacht this weekend and apparently fell into the sea. Shortly after midnight of their Sunday morning, she apparently attempted to get on to the uh, dinghy, slipped and fell in the water, unable to return to the dinghy or the boat. Coroner Noguchi said under California law, she was legally intoxicated. It's uh, one of the contributing factors. Perhaps uh, seven, eight uh, glasses of wine certainly will not cause a person to be drunk. Noguchi also indicated there was an argument between her husband, Robert Wagner, and their guest, actor Christopher Walken. It was not violent and did not involve her, according to Noguchi, but she then walked out of the room anyway. After a long evening of partying, Miss Wood apparently left the salon of the family yacht alone. This month, she was to complete the picture Brainstorm. How do you feel that Brainstorm is going to be released? I don't know. I hear it's going to be released. I have some, uh, a little bit of looping to do, as a matter of fact, this weekend on it. I haven't seen it. I never hear anything about it. The untimely death of Natalie Wood during the filming of Brainstorm, did that make that entire experience painful for you? Oh, sure. I mean, it was, uh, you know, on, on, on so many, in so many ways, it was a terrible thing. Did having a co-worker and a friend die change your attitude about living, Christopher? Well, I suppose, uh, you know, confrontation with the, the sudden absence of somebody you're working with and know uh, for anybody, you know, it's bound to make a difference in your life, yes, sure. How do you feel about the way the media handled the fact that Natalie Wood did die during the shooting of Brainstorm? How do you think that was dealt with? They handled it, uh, you know, in the only way they could. It was a shocking thing. and. Uh, and uh, I think everything happened that you know was going to happen that way. Do you think that the real story of Natalie Wood's death has actually come out? Mm -hmm.
the real story of her uh, death is that she um, drowned. And uh, nobody knows uh, how she drowned or what happened except uh, her. That's what it is. There is no real story. You know, there is. Nobody will ever know. The information we received made us want to take another look at the case. With that, a mystery that has gripped Hollywood for almost 30 years, the death of screen icon Natalie Wood, was back in the headlines. And one of the reasons is this man. I believe that Robert Wagner was with her up until the moment she went into the water. Dennis Davern was the captain of Robert Wagner's boat, the Splendor, the yacht Natalie Wood disappeared from. It was an accident, said the coroner back then. But Davern now reveals Wagner had been arguing with Wood. And tells CBS's 48 Hours, Wagner not only knew his wife had fallen overboard, he claims he did little to help. Is Robert Wagner a suspect? No. Wagner admitted to the argument in a 2008 autobiography, but told CBS Sunday morning back then his wife's death was an accident. We were so in love, and we had everything, and in a second, in a second it was gone. That information that was put out, the media back then went with the accidental drowning, and the authorities didn't ask many questions beyond that. And now I think what they're doing is taking the old files, looking through them, and seeing what they missed. Their agreement now to reopen this case, I think, is an admission that, yes, this case did, did deserve more attention than it ever did receive. Does it surprise you, then, that they're already taking suspects off the board? For example, Robert Wagner, not a suspect here. Well, they have just begun their investigation. It really doesn't matter what I think. I think the important thing is that there's a proper investigation done. But you do think there's somebody who did this, and you do think they were on board that boat that night? It doesn't matter what I think, really. It's up to the investigators to figure this out. The rumors were that she was having an affair with Christopher Walken. These have never been substantiated, and I don't really want to add fuel to a rumor fire. But basically what happened was... You know, they, she drowned. She fell off the boat and drowned, and it was never determined how that happened. The question is, how'd she get in the water, and, you know, was she hit on the head before, or was it, you know, basically was a murder? There were, I, I believe it was, it was, the case was closed, but then it was reopened just in the last decade, I want to say, like sometime in like 2017 or 2018. You can't really underestimate how a major movie star dying during a movie's production will affect that movie. What happened then was, in the movie, Lloyds of London, I, I think we went over this, Lloyds of London, the insurance company, and because every movie is insured against, like, you know, a, a lead dying or something horrible happening, because, you know, you just don't go into production without that. MGM was hurting for money. Basically, they saw this as an insurance call, and they were going to just shelve the entire movie, send everyone home, and collect the insurance money. And just get, you know, repaid for it. After Trumbull and others testified to the insurance company, they realized that the movie was, 
you know, mostly done, at least for production, not the post-production. And a lot of shenanigans started happening. And basically, you know, you know, other studios were, were bidding for it. Lloyd's of London had to put up millions of dollars just for post-production. MGM ended up putting up money for post-production. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, the movie was not financially successful. It made probably about half of its production cost. It's since gotten a cult following, but um, the publicity around Natalie Wood's death and the fact that this was Natalie Wood's last picture, and you know the fact that you know it wasn't it may have not have been an accidental death, really put a pallor over this project. You know, now you can watch the movie as the movie, but you know at the time it was impossible to watch this movie and not realize that like this is what hap- you know what Natalie Wood was working on when she died, and MGM almost didn't release it. The movie almost didn't get finished. You know, this almost didn't happen because there's just a lot of people wanting to cash in. I found it very interesting reading the script last night and seeing the original thing that was supposed to happen with the son when he puts on the headset because there's this whole thing you know we've talked about him swimming there's a pool inside of the house he's really into swimming his father not getting him the right uh snorkel and then getting him the right snorkel and so when he puts on the headset he immediately starts to think that he is drowning and it is him drowning it's his parents arguing and them not paying attention and it just becomes this whole horrific scene so they had to completely reshoot that once natalie wood died because they did not want to have this flavor of drowning and so anytime there's i mean their their house is on water there's so much water in this movie and it just is really kind of eerie when you watch this movie with that in mind and you're just like oh shit there's still some weird like drowning type metaphors going on in this movie you know it's kind of similar like what happened to the film to be or not to be with carol lombard this is a deep dive but if you're a film nerd you know that it you know i believe it was like 1943 or like sometime in the early 40s to be or not to be is carol lombard's last film and one of her lines in the film uh as she's leaving said what could happen on a plane Unfortunately, the actress Carol Lombard died in a plane crash before the movie was released, so they had to cut that line. Much more minor version, but uh, somewhat uh, <laughs> reminds sad. me of it somewhat. Yeah. Well, that's really kind of creepy because we actually started off 2019 with To Be or Not To Be, and we're wrapping up with Brainstorm. So it's kind of a little spooky. We're talking about our main female actresses who have passed away. Lots of synchronicity today. Again, it's like poetry, so if they rhyme. We're all going to come together in one empathetic mind, and we just all have to prepare for that. Connected by Richard Burton. If you're, Are yes. you the good locust? Are you the good locust? I personally will be spitting tomatoes at everyone during this process. They're plums, by the way. I, I have to tell <laughs> everyone, I know on good authority, because I asked, it's a plum. Is it really? Yep. This whole see, time look, I thought they were tomatoes. It's it's a plum. You see, you learned something today. See, he talked to James Earl Jones. It was like, Jimmy, what what were you eating that day? <laughs> what were you launching from your mouth that day? <laughs> I went to a restaurant the other night called BJ's, which is funny in itself. So many ways. But so many ways. And they have on their uh, dessert menu, they're famous for their pizookies. <laughs> so, of course, when I ordered um, my dessert, I said, I would like the monkey bread pizuzu, please. Mm-hmm. We didn't really talk about the hell sequence. It's so strange because it's so quick, but it's so elaborate. Like, it seems like so much went into it, and you're just left with 10 seconds of it. And really so no brief. explanation for why he has to kind of 
experience that as well as what seems to maybe be heaven? Yeah, I mean, even in Christian theology, I would think you would go to purgatory, which probably isn't that great, but then you would go to heaven rather than having to go through hell to get to heaven, even though I think that's a song lyric I just quoted. It's like Elizabeth, New Jersey. You know, you're on the turnpike, (laughs) you know where you want to go. There's Elizabeth, New Jersey. Do you get off at Elizabeth, New Jersey? No. You just stay on the turnpike and you go through the tunnel and you get into the city. That's what you do. We should also talk about existence if you want to go into movies that like are about like, you know, that's which is one of my favorites going back to David Cronenberg, uh, a movie well worth watching. At the beginning of the episode, I said that the first time I saw this was only a couple years ago when I was sort of trying to go through and watch some experimental sci-fi movies that I hadn't seen. And for some reason, I, I've, I've seen almost all of Cronenberg's films, and I'm uh, obsessed with them, but I had never seen Existence somehow. So I watched that probably within the same week or two that I watched Brainstorm, and they go really well together. I love Existence. I, I think it's actually one of his unsung best movies. And I, I'm probably in a minority on that one, but I think that it's it's so kind of the distillation of so many of his ideas and sensibilities that at least at that point in his career, without kind of a lot of stuff hanging on to it, and you know, it's a, it's not a big budget. He's not married to some kind of source material like the Dead Zone or The Fly or, you know, he's he's just kind of doing this thing. and it's not really even a horror movie. It's not like not even really like a body horror movie like, you know, a, you know, Scanners or Rabbit or The Brood or anything. It's just it's just pure sci-fi. It's just fascinating. And that movie holds up so well on repeated viewings because you just catch more stuff every time. It's, you know, that's a it's a big uh, if you, if you're listening to this and you have not seen the David Cronenberg film Existence uh, with Jude Law and Jennifer Jason Leigh and Ian Holm and uh, a bunch of other people, really go out of your way and see it. It's a very very good movie. I think it would also make a really interesting double feature with Strange Days because they're mm-hmm. around the same time, right? I think Strange Days was I want to say 1995. Existence was a few years after that. I want to say it was like 1999 was or 2000. Yeah, that that sounds right. So it also plays with the Millennium stuff, even though it doesn't necessarily uh, address it explicitly. Well, this was like the VR moment. Like there were a lot of VR movies, like Brain Scan and The Lawnmower Man, and like you know, much cheesier movies mostly um, that that dealt with this kind of like. Oh, oh, what was the Denzel Washington Russell Crowe serial killer movie? Virtuosity, oh. yeah. Stuart Baird. That's not. That's not a bad. I, well, actually, I can't say. I, the last time I saw it was probably in the movie theater when it came out, but I don't remember hating it. It's probably a cheese fest now. But yeah, there, there were all. The, I remember all these movies in the '90s that were just like, oh, VR. It's gonna like you're gonna be like, what's real? What's not? It's like you know, it's gonna tap into your brain. Like the cell. Right. Yeah. Like the. Oh my god. That that's actually, that's actually a good movie. It. And now with uh, deep fakes, I mean, we can recast movies with older actors and just not. go right ahead and do that. But let's, yeah. let's, let's never do this. No. Yeah, it is interesting. I didn't realize that Videodrome and The Dead Zone also came out in 83, the same year that this came out. Because, yeah, such a different performance from Walk-In. And, yeah, I think Videodrome and Brainstorm would be a really good double feature as well. Yeah, no, I mean... The way that they explore sort of similar ideas very differently, I think, is so fascinating. They do both have a similar problem with The Last Third, though, 
where like, okay, what's the stakes again? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> James Woods. Okay, so they're controlling you. So what? What are we doing? What's the stakes? What's happening? I don't know. It's one of those Cronenberg titles. Like I tend to obsessively rewatch movies I love, and for some reason, Videodrome is one of those movies that I don't rewatch. So when I have a chance to revisit it, like I got to see it on 35 millimeter over the summer. I think I noticed some of those third act problems more, but it's just so gorgeous and so wonderful. I like Videodrome more in my head than I do when I watch it, if that makes any yep. sense. There's so, there's no, so much too. there's so much in it that like the I mean and and famously with Videodrome they they ran out of money and he had to change the ending or, or basically destroy the ending. Like they couldn't shoot the ending and then he had to just end it abruptly in the in the boat the way he does, which I think is just I don't know. I I I, I don't like the ending at all. But you know, forgiving the movie all of its flaws, there's so much in it that's so interesting that you can't you know even if I say this movie doesn't really work, but it's so interesting that you just have to see it. I feel like you could kind of say something similar about Brainstorm is it has some issues, but it's just such a fascinating experiment that I think it's really worth watching. It's fascinating because of its failures or because of its issues, not despite them, I guess. Right. No, no, I completely agree. I think that's absolutely right. I think that this is, I'd rather see a movie that fails because it tries too much and it has too much on its mind than a movie that fails because it just doesn't try hard enough or does something very obvious, not very well. You know what I mean? It's like, I, you know, if, if this is, I mean, the one thing about brainstorm, I think we can all agree on, like whether you like it or not. And I, I genuinely like it. I genuinely think this movie generally works. Generally, I mean, I have problems with the last third. I think that the stakes are, you know, basically non-existent. But it's like I'm with it. I'm never bored. The movie was a huge, huge, huge thematic and production risk. It was a. It, this is a big, ambitious movie. They did it for less than twenty million dollars in the early '80s. Now, I mean, basically, if you want to put that in scope, I mean, like you know, the Black Hole, which was Disney's hugest budget, everything, and cost a ton of money. Cost, a, I think, a little over twenty million uh, a couple of years before. So basically, we're 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 at the top end of Hollywood budgets if you're looking at movies around this time. You know, you're doing a movie basically about the nature of life and death at the you know in the last third. It's just a lot, and, and it's very ambitious, and it's. I really genuinely believe that this could make a fantastic. Of, like, of all, I don't generally say that people should remake movies. This is a movie that I, I think could work better now than it did then. I really hate remakes, but I think I might agree with you because I think if, especially if you have a director who wants to continue to try to do some experimental things with the way it's shot. Like, you could make something really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I'm saying IMAX 3D for all the brainstorm stuff and then, like, just standard whatever for 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 not. And you watch this in an IMAX movie theater. That would be a journey. Both Bruce Joel Rubin and Douglas Trumbull have said that they want to do some sort of a remake or revisitation of it. And I would I'd love to see that. And I would actually like to see those two guys get together and have it be closer to Rubin's um, – source material rather than passing through all of these different hands. Oh my God, that would be amazing. Get somebody from Hollywood on the phone with a bunch of money and be like, look, 
you need to just give these guys like $150 million and just do this thing because it would just be so amazing. Yeah, let's do it up. Let's let's start a GoFundMe right now. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for being on the show. So I'm very curious, David, what is going on in your world these days? Well, I am still working on my documentary uh, about Exorcist to the Heretic called Heretics. And uh, I have a bunch more uh, interviews. And I am right now, cross fingers, knocking on wood, looking to be done with a cut sometime mid next year. So I'm, you know, you'll probably be hearing from me before then because I'll probably have to kickstart or whatever. But it's like, you know, so far, uh, money seems to be okay. And, um, you know, people are very excited and the cuts are starting. And, yeah, I mean, this is going to happen. So I'm, I'm really, you know, you can hear it in my voice. I'm kind of like, I don't know what to say, don't know what not to say, but I know it's going to, you know, most likely be finished next year. And I'm really excited. And Sam, I know most of the time you just hang out at your apartment, nothing going on, <laughs> no big projects going on. But, you know, do you have anything that you can talk about for coming out in 2020? Really? I'm just sitting around waiting for David to finish this documentary. <laughs> mm, that too. I, I love you, Sam. <laughs> I can't wait to see it. No. <laughs> I know. I, I can't. I, lo- I mean, if anyone has made it to the end of this episode and has not listened to our Exorcist 2 episode, you should, <laughs> you should probably listen to that next because it's great. <laughs> I had so much fun. That was so much fun. It was. More people in the world need to know about the joy of Exorcist 2. I want to try to get that out there. But what's up with you? A couple months ago, I had a book on Fritz Lang's M come out, and right now I'm working on a book about Polanski's The Tenant, which I'm hoping will be out next summer. Oh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, I've never seen it. I have <gasps> to see it now. I know. That's a Polanski movie I literally have, I, I have been told I have to see, and I have never seen it. I know all about the ending. This has been described to me by so many people, and I just must see it now because I need to read this book. I think it's his masterpiece. And I've heard other people say that too, so I know I'm not alone. But it's also one of his least accessible or least conventional films. Like, it's very absurdist, but it's it's amazing. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.